So maybe we should just start then with uh, like just Steven Pinker in general, I guess. Uh, so we're doing this book now, mm-hmm. Enlightenment Now, which was written, uh, well, it was published in early 2018. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, you and I, I'm sure we, we've uh, read um, uh, texts by Pinker in the past. So maybe you could just sort of like introduce like, like what's been your experience with, with Pinker? Like, have you been influenced by, by stuff that he's written in the past? Uh, where would we put this book in particular uh, alongside his other work? Yeah, well, so I hate to disappoint, but I actually realized that this is the first book of Pinker's I've read in its entirety. So I have read pieces uh, and of some of his other books and then some articles and then also his quite quite good and lengthy written interview with Dan on Cosmoetica mm-hmm. years ago. So um, maybe you're the better one to give the the overall Pinker primer just because... I, I have not read the better angels of our nature in total or the blank slate or the language instinct. I mean, I, I know of these books and like I said, I've read pieces of them from time to time, but, but why don't you run with that? Well, uh, I remember when I, when I was in uh, college um, and I just, you know, my, my first year as a freshman, I was, um, you know, I was taking some introductory uh, English courses, some linguistics classes and, you know, Pinker's name obviously would always be coming up. Professors would be talking about, the language instinct. I think uh, at that point, um, when I was in college, it was the language instinct and um, the blank slate. There were his kind of like most popular, most well-known kind of you know pop, you know uh, science books. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I was uh, influenced by some of the kind of early science stuff. Uh, I, I remember like when I first read the blank slate, uh, I was already kind of making my transition from. Uh, Marxism, which is kind of like from my teenage years into kind of like other ways of viewing the world. And uh, some of his like, you know, um, uh, ideas about evolutionary psychology that you would find in the blank slate, uh, some of his uh, debunkings of the idea that human nature doesn't exist uh, from the blank mm-hmm. slate. Um, it, it, it tied well with like this, this transition, right? Because I remember like, you know, uh, when I was uh, much younger, I would always argue uh, how uh, human nature w- was a lot more malleable than I think it in fact is. I think actually more recent science shows that there is more kind of neuroplasticity than perhaps uh, uh, the blank slate would lead you to believe. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's more neuroplasticity than some of the kind of like early, I guess, evolutionary psychology texts uh, would have you to believe. But I think, you know, more or less, it's still, you know, uh, worth the read. I think he does make the case that you know, in in the past, like we definitely have uh, uh, tons of uh, political influence. You know, in, in the sciences, right? This is true of of conservatives that you know they try to deny, for example, uh, global warming. Um, it's also true of liberals that you know have have engaged in you know all manner of de- deceit going back decades. Um, mm-hmm. Simply, you know, simply because uh, th- they're activists, right? And this isn't necessarily true so much uh, of scientists uh, themselves, although, of course, like scientists are uh, all kind of, you know, uh, influenced by their own uh, ideas, their own politics. In fact, this is going to be like a major part of our discussion today. Right. Um, 
but you know it, it's still worth the read and uh but but to me like I, I think the most influential book of his for my thinking was uh the better angels of our nature it's a book from uh 2011 which uh just makes the case that for for uh various reasons uh mostly because we now have a more powerful state over time right we go from kind of you know paleolithic groups to chiefdoms to now kind of you know mature states uh, at this point now like with with welfare states and so on um by sort of uh, uh by, by people being able to like uh take justice and revenge out of their own hands and having a, a trusted intermediary um so violence is able to plummet a lot, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he 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 touches on on some of this in this book, but um, I remember when the book came out, like a lot of like liberals, they were sort of upset because you know uh, if if you are a progressive activist, right, uh, it is actually useful for you if some of the things that you're working towards uh, uh, are are not yet accomplished, right? So if you want to Correct. believe that right now the world is more violent than it's ever been you know that that means that you have you know this goal to work towards right this like we we, we could reduce that violence on the one hand and b we could justify by pointing to the idea that we are now more violent than ever right mm -hmm. and to me like that was really backwards because it was like when i would argue like with more kind of like hardcore libertarians which is kind of like more of the threat right if you if you look back in the last few decades it's people that are trying to chip away at the state at you know welfareism and so on and so forth mm -hmm. uh if i'm able to have something like that book you know uh prove to us that you know there is a role for federation there is a role for a powerful state uh, in terms of progressive politics that's actually good i remember once i'm arguing with a libertarian you know who, who was telling me that you know the, the 20th century uh in terms of like you know rates of death it's it's worse than absolutely anything in the past and because of that you know uh the, the we need to dismantle the state and have a kind of like you know a a, a narco-capitalist kind of you know a reality right yeah. and all i did was like just like i you know some of the information that he uses in this book our world and data is one of the sites that he relies upon you know i just showed him some information from there and uh he was like oh shit, i didn't even know that like his entire mm -hmm. like world view you know he had to sort of you know make an alteration to that so i think uh, a lot of pinker's work if you sort of you know get beyond your own political biases it can be quite useful um for activism right like if if, if you're a leftist like you could use his work for that purpose mm -hmm. um and, and and then just to like wrap this up uh he released uh the sense of style which i reviewed back in 2014 it was it mm -hmm. was published back in 2014 not a very good book uh you know he he for example tries to talk about things like you know what makes for good writing uh what is a cliche he's not able to consistently in any way identify cliches um i i go into that in, in detail in the review I'll, I'll, I'll link it into the um uh, the the show notes in the bottom of the video uh, for people to check it out um and i started noticing actually like with the sense of style like around that time that he was writing the book and and perhaps like even like a bit before he started like you know it, so it's a book that's supposed to be about you know how to write well but he has a lot of very kind of like workshoppy advice 
Uh-huh. And you start seeing this like workshop, the advice, like you could tell that he was even thinking about, you know, some of the concepts and the sense of style when he was writing uh, Better Angels of Our Nature, because uh-huh. in Better Angels, like he had like tons of like bad workshoppy elements, like one chapter that he started with, like about peace and about, you know, like a uh, reduction of violence. And in, in, uh, I think it was like on uh, like post medieval Europe, um, he was saying how, uh, uh, whenever he was young, people would tell him to, you know, uh, be careful about how you eat with your forks and with your knife. And now he appreciates the advice because he realizes that that advice has to do with like a reduction in violence, um, how people, you know, approach tools. I forget exactly the argument, but he starts like the, the, the chapter with that. He ends it with that. And it's like very kind of like hokey and silly. And, uh-huh. um, and you start actually seeing more and more of this with like later books. Like, okay, so we we'll go from sense of style now. Uh, to enlightenment now and honestly um you know i i wouldn't call this like a badly written book but definitely you know a lot less memorable argumentation just the way that he constructs arguments um a lot less memorable than even like the blank slate for example right like you you could pull out so many quotes from the blank slate that are just like beautiful like pieces of, of argumentation um uh-huh. uh stuff that you could go on and on about like he knows how to condense very well and there's and by contrast like in lima now feels like it has a lot of fat right mm-hmm. uh, a lot of stuff just feels kind of unnecessary the whole kind of alignment angle is is kind of um you know at, at times it feels kind of forced it does yeah. uh uh and and i mean we're going to get into this specific this is going to be you know a, a a long video so we're going to get uh precise and um uh, you 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 mentioned i think before we started recording that there has been like all these like positive and negative reactions uh, uh to the book i will say that some of the negative reactions uh, to this book right that's basically arguing that the world is getting better and better it's like basically building off of better angels but beyond merely looking at violence right just right. beyond the reduction of human violence like everything's getting better right like people are living longer they're in general uh happier on average there's less uh income disparity th- than there was like for example two centuries ago it's true that if you take it you know more so something like five decades as opposed to five centuries uh, you have, um, uh, uh, you know, it's it's more difficult to make some of these cases, but the long-term trajectory is there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so uh, lots of progressives, of course, they would have uh, issues with some of the framings of the arguments, some of the maybe overstatements that he makes. But I also found that, you know, many of the reviews of the book, especially negative re- reviews, um, you know, a lot, a lot of those uh, uh, objections are not really that good, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, there's tons of stuff that you know when Pinker tries to say that um, we 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 have lots of progressives that are that are kind of you know phobic about about progress. Um, you sort of see that in some of the reviews, but I also don't think that. Uh, this book is as objective as Pinker claims, and it's uh-huh. definitely very far from, you know, the classic quality, whatever that, you know, the highest kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, review say like Bill Gates says, it's like my, my new favorite book ever. Right. Um, that's yeah. like, that's like the top blurb. Um, yeah. so there's actually a lot to critique in this book and that's what we're going to get into, but I mean, be, uh, I've already been talking a lot, like giving this intro to, to Pinker and kind of where he, you know, sits, uh, you know, it, with me and my life and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, do, do you have like anything to say about like maybe introducing this text? Like, like what, what were your responses when you were reading it? 
yeah, let's let's transition to enlightenment now specifically. So um, bef- before I get to a couple of my own comments, I will say to your point about the, the general broader reception of the book, it's, it's interesting because it's been uh, attacked from numerous different angles. And, and so it's uh, as you read through some of those articles, you've got everything from people criticizing the the nature by which he seems to claim and, and does pretty obviously claim that uh, the status quo is working. So we just need to do more of, of what's working when, uh, as you and I'll get into later with some very uh, specific data points, it, it's not working for everybody. That's that's absolutely for sure. And, and there's still significant strides that we need to make. Uh, and so he's he's been criticized roundly for just basically advocating more and more neoliberal policies and, and letting that uh, take care of everything in due time. But then the other set of interesting critiques you'll see is uh, from people who are are frustrated by the Enlightenment angle, period. Mm-hmm. And, and that takes on a couple different uh, channels. So one of those is, well, Pinker got the Enlightenment either only partially right or maybe mostly wrong. And you've got folks who are, uh, you know, more more concerned that the Enlightenment, I, I think they're the ones more mis- misreading the Enlightenment by saying, you know, slavery still existed, all these things still existed. A lot of those thinkers uh, were were bigoted or, or biased uh, like they were broadly in that time. And I think you have to make the arguments um, that their, their ideas were to to move beyond that, uh, mm-hmm. and so you know it's it's not like they wanted to, uh, in the main, stay mired in exactly what they had going on. I, I think the Enlightenment was positive from 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 setting some of these uh, bigger ideas forth that we've now used. But you'll also see, you know, reactions from uh, religious figures, the clergy, right, who who are upset by the way that he dismisses religion and, and, um, you know, other forms of whether it's nation states, whether it's race, wh- whatever kind of dividing lines people prefer to draw in life to, to tribally align with something. Uh, Pinker's highly critical of that in this book and, and claims that, you know, the more open, the more secular uh, things tend to get on average, the better things tend to get. And, um, you know, maybe uh, I'd be interested to hear your comments. Maybe it's some of my own bias, but it, it seems fairly obvious that that is the case, and that that will likely continue to be the case. We're always going to have some some reactionary movements, like we've had even in the past several years, mm-hmm. um, to that. And and so it's interesting to to watch the number of different ways that that people will decide to uh, try to harpoon this book. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, from my own response to it, the the initial response is uh, is somewhat uplifting. I have to say, right? You know, like it, I, I guess maybe reading it uh, coming out of the, the Trump administration and this kind of stuff, it's it's a it's a bit helpful to think that there are some of these positive trends that are undeniable in in, mm-hmm. in a number of ways and. It's more now a question of how do we make these work for more people globally, mm-hmm. um, be- because it is skewed, certainly, in terms of who's benefiting and sometimes enormously skewed. And we'll talk about that more later. But it, it is, in a sense, a, a bit of fresh air to at least read some of the health statistics, the life expectancy statistics, um, 
violence statistics, you know, these different things. And, and we're going to, we're going to pick on some of the things that he excludes, I think that, that still don't tell the whole story on those things. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that's, that was my initial reaction was, uh, you know, looking upon some of these arguments favorably, but then you do switch over into that other enlightenment value of skepticism and Pinker's very light on skepticism of mm-hmm. any of this stuff, right? It, it's sort of uh, asking you to take it as gospel in its own way that all we've done is make significant progress on everything. And, mm-hmm. and, and so therefore exactly what we've constructed to do that is what we need to just keep doing. And, and that also felt wrong, right? There, mm-hmm. There's this kind of sense you read, you're like, so where is, I mean, he does put little caveats in there with, you know, we still need to do better. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's so small and it's so slight. Yeah, I, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that part. So you know, uh, when you see Pinker right writing his uh, articles defending this book or giving interviews, uh, he says all the time, you know, uh, no, I, I I'm not. I don't accept the status quo. I do think we need to get do better. Blah blah blah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you also do find these caveats in the book. But you know you're an intelligent guy, you're a close reader, I'm a close reader. The whole point of, you know, this Artifact podcast is we're constantly doing very, very, very close readings of texts. And yet you and I keep getting, uh, keep coming away and other people keep coming away with this idea that there is something very pro status quo about that, that book, despite the caveats. And, Mm -hmm. you know, is this simply an, an emotionally biased reaction in our, our ends, or is there something to it? And, um, you know, like I, I get the feeling that despite Pinker's objections, there is very much uh, a, a pro status quo strain. And we're going to get to, you know, like far more specific examples of why that is. But just kind of as a framework, um, you know, I don't think those caveats are sufficient. I don't think his self defenses in that regard are sufficient. And I think it's telling that, you know, here we are, like doing, doing, you know, uh, yet another extremely close reading of this text all i did for the past fucking week is just read this take notes read all the surrounding stuff read all the debates all the back and forth and sorry i i'm still coming away with the sense that he's very very pro status quo and this is coming from someone that you know i'm actually a fan of pinker's work right i had i did Uh say that he has influenced me so um and you know, I, I I'm very willing to see past uh, my own uh, uh, biases in this regard. Uh, but you know, you're coming away with this. I'm coming away with it. You know, like why, right? Like th- there must be something objectively there. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And so, um, a couple other final points I'll make, and then we can maybe get more and more specific into the book here and its its arc of argumentation and so on. But it, it, it's first of all a bit disconcerting when Bill Gates is your main blurb on your mm-hmm. front page saying it's his mm-hmm. new favorite, my new favorite book of all time. You know, that's the mm-hmm. direct quote. Um, you know, Bill Gates has obviously now for the better part of a quarter century and, and even more uh, been an exemplar of of neoliberal capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think we can all argue that uh, helping usher in the computer revolution is an overall positive development. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, he, he's... And I suppose been philanthropic. I mean, I guess I haven't read super closely lately. You know, he's announced a divorce uh, from Melinda and now seems to be somewhat caught in the the Epstein web or who knows what all is going to come out of all mm-hmm. of that. But um, so we, we maybe don't know a, a ton about his his private life still. But but publicly, um, he's definitely been the exact type of person that someone like Jason Hickel 
who we'll talk about later in his criticisms of the book, uh, is wary of because there's a tendency toward, uh, you know, let me make sure that I have tens of billions of dollars. I'll set up some foundations and I'll do some charitable things so that I'm not perceived as an out and out Dr. Evil type person. Um, but, you know, I'll dodge questions about offshoring Microsoft's taxes and profits. I'll dodge questions about, um, you know, what I really think on, on some of these key issues about inequality. I will justify my friendship with other mega capitalists like Warren Buffett and so on and so forth, right? And, and that's all there to be seen. So if Pinker and Gates are good friends, which it, it seems like they're, they, they have, you know, at a bare minimum, a, a very solid professional relationship, and maybe it's a good friendship. And if Pinker is going to get recruited to go speak at Davos, which, you know, seems more and more like an excuse for a bunch of rich people to get together and act like they're doing something to uh, help the world. And then you have some like Rutger Bregman, you know, call out the fact that they they don't propose some of the easiest possible solutions to some of these problems because it would cut into their advantage. Um, you know, if Pinker's a champion of these kind of people and, and one of their favorite intellectual figures for for a book like this, it, it should make you wary. So, um, you know, I I think that's, that's part of where you and I will be coming from as we go forward and critique what Mm -hmm. needs to be critiqued. Maybe Pinker didn't want to make any longer of a book than he already did. Right. It's Mm -hmm. clocking in at 450 pages. And so if we're going to go through some of the counterpoints that he just completely skips over, um, to your point earlier, he, he already wrote a long book here and, Perhaps he didn't want to trim anything he had already written to then make room for the, the counterpoints and flesh those out more. Uh, maybe he didn't want to present those at all because it's it's running counter to some of these narratives. So uh, yeah. that's part of the, the job that that we'll take up here over the next few yeah. hours, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I was I wasn't even going to discuss uh, Bill Gates, but since you brought him up, um, yeah, just just a couple of thoughts that that came to mind. Uh, well, first of all, Windows is superior to uh, Apple's uh, Apple in terms of a uh, you know uh, operating system, right? Yeah, I've, yeah. I've always been a very uh, uh, a big proponent of that idea. I remember the <laughs> first time uh, I, I got a Mac, and I was like, "What the fuck is this? I can't like you can't go in like you can't really you know uh, change anything. Like everything is supposed to be one way." Um, Whereas like, you know, like at least the Windows is customizable, not that there aren't uh, tons and tons of unethical practices in Microsoft's past, but in terms of like, what's the superior operating system, I, I would have to give it to Windows. So taking that out of the way, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think, you know, the reason why Bill Gates being so prominent, right, like just like on the very top, right, mm-hmm. the reason why it's so kind of, you know, telling in many regards, like uh, about like where this book uh uh, does uh, in many places go wrong is the fact, okay, so, you know, uh, we're going to get to like income inequality later on, but, you know, very often we have um, uh, Pinker, right? He's like poo-pooing this idea of, you know, inequality itself being innately, you know, philosophically something bad. Um, and, you know, uh, you could make, I guess, different kinds of philosophical arguments, but the practical reality is if you're someone like Bill Gates, um you have so much power and influence, right, to begin with. So if you suddenly get this crazy fucking idea in your head that, you know what, I think um, charter schools are a good idea. Let me push for this. People mm-hmm. are going to go for it, right? You're going to have Bill Gates money. You're going to have this idea, you know, that, that came out of the ether. Uh, and this thing that is like just a complete failure, 
right? We should not be going towards any kind of privatization of schools. We should be going the opposite direction. We should be banning any kind of private schooling, which sounds kind of extreme. But if you think about it, and you know, I, I guarantee you that you know, uh, if Pinker actually debates this the subject, like there's no way that you could you know accept privatization going forward over something like this. But because you're Bill Gates and you suddenly have this idea in your in your fucking head, that becomes kind of like a, a new emergent status quo, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why income inequality is so terrible. There should not be these kinds of outsized influences on the world based merely on well, I happen to have made a lot of money like that, that, you know, like, like money is having made a lot of money is not an indication of anything at all other than an ability to make money. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, that's part of it. Like we, you know, we, we brought, okay. So if we bring a Bill Gates and and Epstein, uh, well, you know, does anybody believe that if Epstein was like some random fucking, like, you know, guy with like, uh, I don't know, a $50,000 a year salary that he could have gotten away with like multi-decade child sex trafficking with nothing but like a slap on the wrist. Of course, the fact that he was nearly a billionaire at some point in his life played a role in the fact that he was able to get away with like, you know, the most kind of cartoonish example of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, you know, th- that's another example. Um, and, you know, uh, a- a- also with Bill Gates, like, so, you know, Bill Gates has all these positive things that he says that he wants to do in the world to the world. But one thing that he would never accept as he does these nice things is he would never accept a different tax regime that negatively impacts his bottom line. Right. right. He would, ne- he would never, like, I remember like he, he sort of made an offhand comment about like higher taxes being a good thing. But then when he was actually asked to like sign on to these like statements that would actually be able to do something in this regard, um, he completely like, you know, like no comment, no response. He, he, he doesn't want to actually do anything about that. So yeah. bringing Nietzsche a little bit into this, like Pinker hates Nietzsche. Uh, we're going to get into that near the end. We have a very long section planned on, on, on Nietzsche, but Nietzsche, he would, he would look at some like Bill Gates, and he would say, it's true, for example, that Nietzsche, like he does not want compassion to be part of his morality, I guess, uh, in some ways. But he would look at somebody like Bill Gates, and he would say, well, this is exactly why I am not looking for compassion in these fake moralities. Because if you're saying that you want to make the world a better place, and your sole sacrifice is hoarding up a bunch of like vaccine patents, Right. So like things could get out of control in India and elsewhere at this point or, you know, pushing for charter schools and avoiding like real genuine sacrifices, such as like, I don't know, you know, taxing your wealth away at something like 25 or 50 percent, which would really hurt right while you're alive. Right. Not the right. shit like I'm going to give it away, give when, all I'm, away yeah. <laughs> when I'm dead. Yeah. Right. Like what, what, yeah. when I'm no when I'm no longer able to like pig out like right. on life that I could give away. Right. So Nietzsche, he would he would look at that and he would say. This is exactly the motivated reasoning that I see when it comes to this kind of oddly Christianized morality that pretends to be secular, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is the psychological motivation there? Are you really just like trying to engage in doing, you know, positive things for the world? Or are you Bill Gates that are trying to do everything but the costliest and the most kind of painful sacrifice that you could do, mm-hmm. right? And, and this is where like tons and tons of like Nietzsche philosophy is useful, you know, in assessing so many of the claims in this book, so many of the ways that, and, 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 and it's just so funny to me how Pinker has this like very like over the top reaction to Nietzsche, while on the one hand, employing Nietzschean morality uh, in, in this text over and over again, and B, having so many 
reasons, right? Motivated reasoning to try to like dismiss Nietzsche because it it, it speaks to you know the, the 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 very kind of core concepts, right? That he's that he's discussing, but not in the kind of superficial way that he thinks, right? He's like you know Nietzsche is a fascist. I'm a humanist, right? So, but that that's mm-hmm. not where we're going to take this conversation. That's not that's such a surface level reading. It's not interesting to kind of the deeper questions that this book and Nietzsche and people like Bill Gates pose for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, do you want to just like go through like the, the opening epigraphs? Because I feel like, you know, they are kind of telling about maybe some of the content in this book, both good and bad. Um, sure. Yeah, so there's two. The first is from Spinoza. Those who are governed by reason desire nothing for themselves, which they do not also desire for the rest of humankind. Um. Uh, I mean, like, so like when you read this, like, what, what, what did you think? Like, what, what was your response? Well, with, without having gotten into the book at all, um, you know, it, it's just kind of a fancier way of outlining the golden rule. Right. So, yeah. you know, do, do unto others what you'd want done unto yourselves. Um, now, I, you know, I, I think that for, I don't know that saying those who are governed by reason is necessarily the best way to frame up mm-hmm. the idea than the golden rule. You know, someone governed by 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 humanism or you know some kind of like more embedded um, ethical system and morality might come up with that, and reason would play into that, right? You can extrapolate out why what's good for you is reasonably good for other people, and that should be a mutually you know enforced and mutually beneficial setup. Um, but you know, there are plenty of people who might be believing themselves to be governed by reason or based on their specific situation are operating according to, to reason, uh, outright who go selfish and, and take a different set of motives, uh, and can justify that. So, uh, you know, generally I, I, I think it's really just restating the golden rule, which, mm-hmm. you know, which, which I think, which I agree with. And I think most sane people agree with but uh what do you think there yeah i mean when i read it so like i i know exactly why so just to read it again those who are governed by reason desire nothing for themselves which they do not also desire for the rest of humankind i mean i know exactly why pinker uh you know pinker does make these kinds of arguments for an ethics based on reason and it's not that i necessarily uh, uh reject that you know i think any kind of ethical system will have that he also references um for example john rolls uh you know the the veil of ignorance the original uh-huh. position and you know, uh, for for you know, framework of kind of you know liberal ethics, um, you know, it makes sense, right? So like you know, for, for Rawls, right, he, he has this thought experiment of if you have this veil of ignorance, right, like if you cannot choose who you could be, uh-huh. right, in the world, and uh, you're just asked to create a set of rules by which everyone is governed and potentially you, would you ever allow for something like slavery, knowing that you might be a slave, right? Uh, uh, the right. answer is is no, right? It would be unreasonable for you from the veil of ignorance to make that, you know, uh, a determination that you would want a society with slaves. You would uh-huh. also, you know, feel very differently about things like extreme poverty or, you know, income inequality. You would think very differently about, um, you know, uh, the kinds of rules that you want for men versus women. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a very useful thought experiment in that regard. Um, but, I am not so sure that uh, uh, the right framework is is reason. I mean, uh, uh, okay, so if you're governed by reason and you desire nothing for themselves that 
they do not also desire for the rest of humankind. Uh, well, you could be perfectly uh, uh, governed by reason, right? In a very different way, right? You could have a set of end goals that have absolutely nothing to do with that thought, thought experiment. You right. could have a set of end goals that are just kind of sociopathic. And mm -hmm. the reason in that regard is it's all the steps that you would take to fulfill that goal, right? If you could, you know, think of like, you know, in the most kind of, you know, cliched sense of like, you know, like a, like a mass murderer or whatever, a mass murderer might very well be governed by reason in the sense that what is the goal? How can I kill as many people as possible without getting caught? And you could have a very, very elaborate system that you follow, right? That yeah. in fact fulfills that goal. Um, so to to frame it as as a reason in that regard, it, it it didn't always make a lot of sense to me. And uh, this kind of preferential treatment for reason uh, there, uh, it 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 just it just doesn't really work, right? Because we're talking about a value system first, right? We're, we have a value system first before we get to the reason part. And uh, I, I think in some of the misreadings of the Enlightenment of of human of Nietzsche. Pinker seems to want to like elide that portion of the argument, right? That we have to start with the values first, right? Immanuel Kant, he says um, that we, we first have, have a kind of like aesthetic appreciation for what we want, right? And then we fulfill the reasons, right? So, um, uh, and uh, what else did I have here about this? Um, uh, and and also like you know this this uh, uh, this this reason like it slips into like desire without justification later on uh, in, in ways that I don't think Pinker even necessarily notices. Um, so anyway, that's 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 my response for Spinoza. What about what about the uh, David Deutsch uh, quote? Um, yeah, Deutsch says everything that is not forbidden by laws of nature is achievable given the right knowledge. So. I, I think you know, reading that, it's um, it's geared mostly toward the the progress piece of reason, science, humanism, and progress. Uh, it's it's obviously an advocacy for continuing to move things along, and and uh, a bit of that shade of uh, if you can dream it, you can do it kind of thing, right? So, um, I, I you know, I guess it's a fine quote. I, again, I don't know that. Um, that's entirely true. Again, if you just want to pick on one word, their knowledge, right? I mean, yeah. I, I think that one of the main things that stands out about about this book and like the trajectory that that Pinker uh, outlines for for our world and where it's been and where it's where it is now and where it's going is that um, the truth is we we have plenty of knowledge. Uh, mm -hmm. We we know unequivocally some of the things that we could do within the next month mm -hmm. that would solve the, the, the broader issues that persist. So it's not knowledge. It's a matter of, of will. It's a matter of, uh, if you had to, uh, coercing the people who have the power to do such things into doing them. Mm -hmm. The issue is that they don't want to, and they're, yeah. pro they're reasonably protecting their own self-interest that they've either inherited or built up and now want to maintain. So, um, you know, th this idea that, that anything and everything is achievable if we just have the knowledge, uh, certainly knowledge has driven many, many, many of our advances and, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. I'm someone who values knowledge, seeks knowledge, thrives on knowledge. Uh, I know you're the same way. So there's nothing, uh, inherently wrong with, with accumulation and then, uh, 
hopefully good use of knowledge, but, uh, but there's an awful lot more that's required to get things done, especially on a mass scale. You know, if you just want to talk about one individual person living their life, um, even then you, you still need, you still need a lot of other pieces to the puzzle to really execute things. So, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a little bit, a uh, little bit of a Pollyanna flair there with that quote. Yeah. And I, I think it just captures like so much of, of, of where alignment now goes wrong. I mean, you know, this, this, this kind of idea that, uh, all that's in the way of progress is just knowing what to do, right? Or, or how to do it. Or, you know, like, uh, if we only, we understood what the goal was, uh, that, that's so much downplays how power works, mm-hmm. how, you know, you said entrenched interests, you know, that creates so much inertia. Yeah. Um, I mean, like the world, like literally like the world could come together today and they could solve extreme poverty overnight. It's going to be extremely fucking coercive in terms of the tax regimen that would have to be put in place for that to happen. And of course, people will try to fight it like, no, you can't do that. Of course, there's going to be laws in place that Mm -hmm. say that, oh, no, you can't actually do this kind of tax right in many places. Uh, But we could solve it right now when we, we, we know we know what it would be. Right. It would have to be a redistribution scheme. Mm-hmm. What gets in the way is the value judgment of, I can imagine, you know, uh, I don't want to necessarily put this into a, a Pinker, these words into Pinker's mouth, but I could imagine a Pinker type person or someone that, you know, believes, uh, uh, you know, the ideas in this book and accepts them. Um, I could imagine them saying, well, okay, I understand that extreme poverty right now is, is terrible, but, you know, you know, creating this new level of coercion overnight, that's also bad for society in some way, or that is bad, that is bad. So you have like all these reasons why you wouldn't do it. And they all kind of go back to like, you know, I want to protect my bottom line. Uh Um, And, you know, like, it's really a matter, it's, you know, it's not knowledge, like, like, whenever he talks about knowledge and, and the enlightenment, it's always in this kind of, you know, uh, it's, it's almost as if it's this, you know, uh, uh, you know, beautiful princess locked away somewhere, you know, in a castle, right? Like looking, you know, down at the world, you know, like uh, uh, away from all the impurities, right? And only if we could somehow allow her out of her, you know, dungeon, right? She could sort of bless the rest of the world and, and, you know, spread, spread her love and so on and so forth. And that's not really how things work. I mean, knowledge interplays with, with power, right? And there's so many other considerations as well. So, um, and, and that's the thing, like, I, I doubt that, you know, when Pinker was, you know, when he was like selecting these quotes, he's like, what's going to be my, 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 my epigraphs. Like, I doubt he really thought about it in this way. And another level, like it, it's also not surprising because for him to make some of the arguments he makes in this book, these epigraphs have to be what he thinks that they are. Right. He, he has to be able to take them at face value to use them. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is where we, we come in. Um, now that should give you like a, a taste of what the rest of the video is going to be. Like, I, I doubt anyone, any review that you could find of Lamy now will assess the two epigraphs in any kind of detail. Right. But we're <laughs> going to go, we're going to go through everything here. So that, cause that's the thing, like, you know, so many of the critiques of the book are in fact, like they're not always fair. Right. Mm-hmm. And, P- and Pinker, you know, like you don't want to give Pinker ammunition to say like, well, that's clearly not what I wrote. That's clearly not what I argued, blah, blah, blah. Like you, you yeah. actually want to take things seriously. Right. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah. And well, and, and, uh, one final thought on that before maybe we just really start getting into the book proper and some direct quotes, um, is that 
you know, Pinker did write a, a pretty lengthy response to a lot of the criticism, yeah. almost one year to the day of publication originally of Enlightenment Now. Uh, it appeared in Quillette. It's called Enlightenment Wars, and it's it's him. Uh, I, I think you have to say, t- in a way, to his credit, um, taking in a lot of direct criticism mm-hmm. and then making an effort to respond, you know, kind of kind of piece by piece. So, um, you know, if someone reads this book and then they start looking around at, at the criticism, um, then you know, if you're willing to spend another good chunk of time, you could go read that piece. Uh, but, but he doubles down, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the thing, you know, if you, if you read some or all of that, uh, enlightenment wars essay, it's definitely a, you know, if anything, I've been misunderstood and here's yeah. another piece of data from our world and data, which seems mm-hmm. to comprise at least 50% of the charts and, uh, and data points in this mm-hmm. piece. And we'll probably talk about some of the issues with that as well. Um, but yeah, it, he, he definitely just digs in even deeper. And, uh, so it's it's been a it's been a hamster wheel you know for the past mm-hmm. week running around and around and all this stuff but anyway um do we want to just talk about the overall thrust of the book in case people haven't already sort of picked up on what it is um well just to, uh, i was going to go through like a summary but ju- just the idea right that uh, on any kind of conceivable metric um when we think about like what makes for well-being right in terms of leisure time overall in terms of uh peace violence you know homicide rate that kind of thing uh uh you know world wealth and how much uh people are getting in terms of like a share of, of the total pie uh you know infant mortality lifespan in general uh human rights you know uh, the fact that right now you know um uh, even in you know some religious countries women probably have more rights than they had you know in in you know enlightenment era nations like the united states centuries ago mm-hmm. um you know all, all of that right the long term trajectory of all those things is up right we're sort of like you know uh, on the up and up uh there's things that you could sort of uh um you know quibble with there's uh, stuff that often takes a kind of you know a uh, uh, backsliding right things like um uh, the the income stagnation over the last few decades that's an mm-hmm. example of a backslide but generally speaking the trajectory is up I uh, accept uh, most of that argument, right? Um, and you know, if, if I were to be asked, like, you know, would you pick uh, a time to be alive other than today? My answer would be absolutely not, right? right. Uh, in fact, like, if I, you know, could have been born, you know, today as opposed to uh, thirty-three uh, years ago, you know, mm-hmm. I would have to think about it because um, I, I wouldn't want to do away with all the advantages that I've accumulated in those thirty-three years. But you know, uh, I, I think as we go on and on in time, generally the answer would be like, yes, we would pick today to be alive, especially if you do that kind of you know veil of ignorance of Rawlsian experiment. Right. Um, you know, I, I I would not want to be you know the average white man in the eighteen hundreds. Right, compared to the average white man today. And I would definitely prefer to be the average black person today than I would the average black person in the 1800s, right? And this is only a couple of centuries. Going back further and further, you know, things get grimmer and grimmer uh, in many ways. So, uh, th- that's kind of the, the general argument. But I think like we're, we're going to like, we, we, so we mentioned the Enlightenment. So, uh, he uses the Enlightenment uh, to frame much of this argument, right? And I, I'm just going to read, this is on uh, page four, like pages like four to five, um, uh, how he uses the Enlightenment to 
uh, uh, to frame the, these uh, arguments in the book. Mm -hmm. The enlightenment principle that we can apply reason and sympathy to enhance human flourishing may seem obvious, trite, old-fashioned. I wrote this book because I have come to realize that it is not. More than ever, the ideals of reason, science, humanism, and progress need a wholehearted defense. We take its gifts for granted. Newborns who will live through more than eight de decades, markets overflowing with food, clean water that appears with a flick of a finger, and waste that disappears with another, pills that erase a painful infection, sons who are not sent off to war, daughters who can walk the streets in safety, critics of the powerful who are not jailed or shot, the world's knowledge and cultural uh, available in a shirt pocket. But these are human accomplishments, not cosmic birthrights. In the memories of many, re in, in the memories of many readers of this book, and in the experience of those in less fortunate parts of the world, war, scarcity, disease, ignorance, and lethal menace are a natural part of existence. We know that countries can slide back into these primitive conditions, and so we ignore the achievements of the Enlightenment at our peril. In the years since I took the young woman's question, basically, what's the point of living? I have often been reminded of the need to restate the ideals of the Enlightenment, also called humanism, the open society, and cosmopolitan or classical liberalism. It's not just that questions like hers regularly appear in my inbox. For example, dear Professor Pinker, what advice do you have for someone who has taken ideas in your book and science to heart and sees himself as a collection of atoms, a machine with a limited scope of intelligence sprung out of selfish genes inhabiting space-time. It's also that an obliviousness to the scope of human progress can lead to symptoms that are worse than existential angst. It can make people cynical about the Enlightenment-inspired institutions that are securing this progress, such as liberal democracy, and organizations of international cooperation and turn them towards atavistic alternatives. The ideals of the Enlightenment are products of human reason, but they always struggle with other strands of human nature, loyalty to tribe, deference to authority, magical thinking, the blaming of misfortune on evildoers. The second decade of the 21st century has seen the rise of political movements that depict their countries as being pulled into a hellish dystopia by malign factions that can be resisted only by a strong leader who wrenches the country backward to make it, quote, great again. These movements have been abetted by a narrative shared by many of their fiercest opponents, in which the institutions of modernity have failed and every aspect of life is in deepening crisis. The two sides in, in macabre agreement that wrecking those institutions will make the world a better place. Harder to find is a positive vision that sees the world's problems against the background of progress that it seeks to build upon by solving those problems in their turn. So that's that's how he frames uh, the Enlightenment and, and the purpose of, of using it for this book. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I remember, you know, the first time reading through that. And again, I, I don't know that you can find much to disagree with there, I, I think, on principle. This is the right general direction to be to be headed, you know, to use reason, science, humanism, progress, and and other things uh, for the greater good. And so, um, all over again, you know, there are 
a, a plenty of examples in the book that we'll go through where that's that's still happening. It's still um, that's still the trajectory that we're on. But um, you know, I, I think it's it's wrong to conflate criticism of the directionality in the present day of of where these things will continue to head, and still acknowledging that they're good and, and in a lot of ways the right idea mm-hmm. with wanting to throw the whole, you know, the baby out with the bathwater and just be done with, with our whole modern system. You know, he, he seems to, and and I know some people have made that exact criticism um, toward this, you know, people, he, he says, you know, progressives hate progress or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, You know, that that we'll probably talk about here in a minute, but um, you know, but that's not true. It's, it's not that if you're a progressive, you, you, you hate progress and you're going to argue, I think if you're, if you're thinking through it clearly that no progress has been made, that's not the argument. You know, the, the argument mm-hmm. is where do we go from here? Um, you know, now that these things have borne fruit for, mm-hmm. for a lot of the world and certainly a lot of these advancements, uh, you know, to your point, I'm the same way. I'd, I'd prefer under the veil of ignorance to be born today. And I suppose that would be no matter who I am, but let's also not at all, forget that you could absolutely be born into a horrendous situation today still. And, 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 and that's know, the problem. And, and generally that's kind of the, um, that would also be generically speaking, that would be the median, right? Like if, if mm-hmm. you were born under Correct. the veil of ignorance, right. If you were just randomly anyone, you probably would have a fairly, you know, maybe not outright miserable, but you would not have a good life generally speaking if you were right. born today. Right. Um, so, so yeah, and, and another thing that I that I would say is, uh, uh, like e- even here, like you know, uh, even if there's like not too much to quibble with, just in these several paragraphs, you already are getting just like so early on, um, uh, like hints of of what the problems are going to be in the future. So, for example, when he says. Uh, the ideals of the Enlightenment are products of human reason, but they always struggle with other strands of human nature, loyalty to tribe, deference to authority, magical thinking, the blaming of misfortune on evildoers. So mm-hmm. you think of the context of this paragraph, he's sort of talking about, you know, he, he quotes uh, Make America Great Again, like he's talking about Trump, right? Trump, you know, uh, obviously um, and famously. Uh, scapegoated, you know, Mexican immigrants as like, you know, the, the cause of like uh, so many problems uh, for many workers in the United States. Um, there's also, you know, like hints of like, you know, the past, the Holocaust, that sort of scapegoating. But mm-hmm. um, he, you know, he, uh, he doesn't uh, like most of the time, though, that he discusses scapegoating in this book, the scapegoating has to do with people that are blaming the rich for things like income inequality or poverty like <laughs> right like so, so so you know already early on like you know when we're talking about like well you know like if you would say if, if pinker were to say like well i'm not a defender of the status quo I, of course i want things to improve faster and faster and faster well again even if he could say that and even if he could make that argument and i think he truly does want things to get faster and faster i don't think he's sociopathic i think he's you know probably overall a good person right mm-hmm. in that regard um Still, though, you could point to stuff like this in the text where, like, even in this paragraph, he's conflating Trump and Bernie Sanders together, right? Yeah. Like, and if, if, if his idea is that Trump is bad, Bernie Sanders is not necessarily all that better, well, 
who does he prefer? Does he prefer Hillary Clinton? Because that's status mm-hmm. quo. You know, that's Correct. the thing. Like, you could say all you want that you're against the status quo, but functionally, you know, he's giving, you know, um, he's setting up the argument where, you know, the status quo just gets these kinds of like odd justifications. And, you know, again, like scapegoating later on, like most prominently is featured. And like the most memorable example that he gives of like the Russian peasant that uh, doesn't, you know, he doesn't have a goat. So instead of wishing for a goat, he wishes for his neighbor's goat to drop dead. Right. Mm-hmm. It almost kind of like, you know, like uh, th- that, that to him is like, what scapegoating functionally is in the pro in the process of this book right so you know he could say all he wants that he's not for the status quo he drops in too many status quo crumbs where this is kind of like the only place politically where you could end up because you know you, you you could say in the abstract i want this 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 and that well you know, if you're saying that in- income inequality is to to the degree that exists in the United States is still a problem and you wanted to make it better, well, Biden is definitely 100% not going to make it better. And we know this for a fact now, after the first few months of this presidency, we know income inequality is not going to get better under what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump is not going to make it better. Bernie Sanders, are you saying that he would not have made it better? He would have made it better probably, maybe not in the way that you want. Maybe it's going to affect your bottom line in ways that you don't want. Maybe it's going to affect Bill Gates in ways that he doesn't want. But you know, uh, of the status quo, um, uh, Trump presents a status quo. Clinton presents a status quo. You know, it, it's hard to sort of uh, uh, avoid this conclusion, right? And this is just kind of like the first little example that we have. Yep. Yeah. Uh, do, I, do, do, I do, do, do you want to tackle like the the enlightenment in general, like how, how it's like used in the book and, you know, what maybe some of the problems are uh, while we're on the topic? Yeah, well, I, I think that these, those paragraphs that you just read through um, do sum up fairly well um, wh- what he's going for in terms of using the enlightenment and, and some specific enlightenment thinkers to to talk about, you know, the, the framework by which the world got a fresh, fresh focus to move forward and, and tackle some of our problems. Um, I'll, I'll read from page 11 real quick, uh, where he talks a little bit more about this. So he says a humanistic sensibility impelled the enlightenment thinkers to condemn not just religious violence, but also the secular cruelties of their age, including slavery, despotism, execution for frivolous offenses, such as shoplifting and poaching, and sadistic punishments such as flogging, amputation, impalement, disembowelment, breaking on the wheel, and burning at the stake. The Enlightenment is sometimes called the humanitarian revolution because it led to the abolition of barbaric practices that have been commonplace across civilizations for millennia. And he kind of goes on, uh, you know, further into to, to some of those other things. He talks about voluntary exchange, uh, you know, and, and a modern economy coming through as as a result of Enlightenment ideals and this kind of stuff. So. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he's definitely making the claim that whatever trajectory of progress we had pre-enlightenment, because there, there was still some, you know, however slow it might have been moving, that the enlightenment is, is what helped secularize more of the world. It was the catalyst. It, it was an accelerator uh, to move these things along, which, uh, I, again, I, I think is fine. I, I don't know that it's all that easy to refute that unless you're someone who's like we said earlier you know trying to to pull the whole well a bunch of terrible 
shit still happened during the mm-hmm. enlightenment and obviously still happened. So obviously mm-hmm. it wasn't that great of a set of, of fresh ideas. Um, but I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Uh, I, I do think there's a lot of benefit to it, but you know, he's, um, he, he's giving throughout the text, you know, quite a few examples of kind of uh, a copy and paste, right? Like take a certain enlightenment ideal, pick a mm-hmm. few issues that it can, latch on to most specifically and then show a chart of how that bad thing has declined because that enlightenment ideal got implemented. Um, and that's, that's the book really. I mean, you know, in, in large part kind of over and over and over again. Um, I don't know if that exactly answers your question and if, if you have more comments on that, but well, well, it, yeah, well, I mean, well, I could just maybe, finish. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe one last thought too, is that, um, and I, I said this to you in my kind of summary of the book and in, in the show notes I sent. And hopefully this is something you and I'll have a chance to talk about in more length, maybe toward the end of the discussion. But um, one of the other important things, though, ab- about this book is that the picking and choosing of Enlightenment ideals and focusing it on well-being, mm-hmm. right? A- 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 and, and talking about economic progress, medical progress, scientific progress these things that you and I have already said, we agree have happened, uh, at least for certain people in the world. Now, uh, the thing that gets excluded is, is the cultural side of that, right? So, you know, what about our arts? What about the, the, the higher pursuits? Um, what about just, you know, the, the, the greater ideals of a broader liberal education? Um, you know, these different kind of things. I mean, he talks about education a bit in the book, but but again, I, I don't know that the Enlightenment thinkers and that whole movement was necessarily thinking to themselves like, I, they probably were in part, but, but not as much as Pinker emphasizes, um, hey, let's create a fresh engine for the progress of well-being for the average person um, 200 years from now. You know, I think a lot of it was oriented still a fair amount around scholarship around the humanities around um skepticism of uh, of different things and trying to 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 take things apart and put them back together of just philosophical concepts so again you know um pinker's taking all that he's appropriating it for in a lot of ways still like we said status quo neoliberal economic arguments Mm -hmm. um for problem solving yeah. Um, I mean, I, I agree uh, w- with that critique. I, I would even take it a uh, further in a couple of ways. Like, um, so for example, uh, you know, I, Pinker is nuanced enough, uh, to like, you know, when he wrote Better Angels of, of Our Nature, you know, he credits like this, this completely, you know, um, uh, the, 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 this change in violence very much to the material reality, you know, the, the advent of a state. Right. And the advent of people being able to, to trust a, a state with their own kind of, you know, vengefulness. Right. So mm-hmm. they don't have to engage in these kinds of like, you know, uh, perpetual uh, blood feuds that although, yeah, it's true. They're not, you know, the same thing as, um, you know, uh, wars or whatever. But, you know, in a typical blood feud, blood feud scenario, you know, imagine like, you know, living in your block, like it means that every single person 
that, that it means that there's someone from every single house in your block that eventually during your lifetime is going to get murdered per of a blood feud. And then later on, someone else is going to get murdered after you die and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Right. So it's this kind of war of attrition, right? Which he, he, he makes that claim a lot. So he understands like the value of the state. He understands the value of material reality, but it does feel very often in this book um, that by, by choosing the alignment frame, he starts crediting, you know, these abstractions, right? People's desire to, you know, have, let's say, a rational government, right? Uh, to uh, it being the, the 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 thing that causes it, right? And I know that he wouldn't make, you know, necessarily that type of vulgar argument, but you know, there's this kind of thing, this this strain in the book where, um, you know, uh, uh, the enlightenment represents, you know, the forces of of good, of knowledge, of light, of of, of you know, of of everything, you know, that that's positive in in Pinker's like definition of the word humanism, mm -hmm. and everything that bad that happens in the world is a product of these counter enlightenment forces. Sometimes he gives a name name to them, right? One time he names Nietzsche as an example of a counter enlightenment force. Mm -hmm. uh, there's counter enlightenment forces, uh, you know, an example of like, you know, uh, religious fanatics uh, around today. Uh, maybe, you know, leftist academics that he thinks are, you know, um, you know, uh, like postmodernists in, in some regard. And, you know, he, he calls them uh, counter alignment forces. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in reality, like things are not it's not this like Manichaean alignment versus counter alignment values or, or whatever. I mean, you know, the United States is founded on alignment values. And of course, you know, Jefferson is very much, you know, a child of the enlightenment. And yet, you know, when he writes about, um, you know, uh, all men are created equal, of course, you know, the, as the cliche goes, uh, uh, we, we have to add you know, presently the, uh, 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 to it, except, you know, non-whites, right? I mean, black mm -hmm. people weren't equal to him. And, you know, Pinker says, well, that's fine. We just need to, instead of looking at their personal behavior, look at their ideas. But again, implicit in that idea was, you know, black people are not part of the system that he's crafting, yeah. right? Like it's, you know, like we, we, because he doesn't say that explicitly, you know, we don't feel so you know, uh, uh, like we, don't, we, we, like we don't feel off reading, you know, uh, for example, something like the declaration of independence. Mm -hmm. Um, but we know that it's there implicitly. So we have to sort of, you know, add that in. So, uh, you know, and, and you know, everything, you know, good and bad that, that happens, it's not, you know, like alignment versus counter alignment, like these things will be used and misused by pretty much anyone because like the, the, the whole, like uh, to, to get to the, the, the second critique, um, you know, enlightenment thinkers, uh, he, he often isolates Hume and Immanuel Kant. And I think it's, it's very telling in terms of what he does quote about them versus what he doesn't. What they were both arguing and Hume, uh, Hume especially and, and Nietzsche after them is um, there's so much motivated reasoning, right? When it comes to um, these kinds of ideals, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be, you know, they are going to be misused. And, you know, to Pinker's credit, he does sort of like play uh, lip service uh, to that reality, but he also misses like the second part of their critique, which is as follows. So when Pinker quotes Hume, he says, Hume is someone that was well aware of how easily reason could be perverted, how irrational people are, how given they are to, to passions. But he never actually quotes what Hume says on this front. Hume says explicitly that 
um, uh, when it comes to reason, right? Reason always is and always ought to be, right? Nothing more than the slave of the passions. So when it comes to Pinker's caveats in, in this regard, he says something like, yeah, Enlightenment thinkers are absolutely aware of how reason has pitfalls. Reason could be misused. Reason that sounds reasonable could be, in fact, unreasonable completely. But they always believe that reason ought to be, you know, uh, the goal, right? He uses the word ought. And yeah. I think it's very telling that Hume, for his part, when he uses the word ought, he uses it in the complete opposite way. He says reason right. ought always ought to be the save of the passions. But but Hume is not making a counter-alignment point here. He's not saying that reason is bad and that we should just all become nihilist or something. That's not his argument. What he's yeah. saying is, and again, this is the second part of the critique. What he's saying is when it comes to uh, any kind of judgments that you make about reason or anything, you start with a value judgment first. This is the passion that the reason is slave to. You begin with you begin with the value judgment, and then you can construct reason around that. And it always works that way. It works that way in this book, especially because when we get to some of the data points, it's almost as if Pinker feels that he could wave this like you know magic fairy wand called data, and mm -hmm. simply because we have this thing called data. Um, that, 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 that is somehow enough, that that is the exemplar of, of reason when in fact, what Hume would say and what Nietzsche would say is, well, you're clearly making value judgments first and what you choose to use and not use as part of your data points and the conclusions that you draw. Even when you do something like make the choice to look at you know, the ratio of people who are in poverty, which is declining over a long enough time versus absolute numbers. If you choose to preferentially treat the ratio as opposed to absolute numbers, that is a value judgment, right? And there's no reason whatsoever why somebody can't make the argument that, well, we seem to be in a very unenlightened age in the sense that in absolute terms, there is more human suffering than ever because we have more people than ever. By definition, we have more right. people that are impoverished. We have now billions of sentient creatures that are capable of rationality. that are capable of living a good, honest, noble life, capable of using knowledge, capable of creating potentially great art, capable of doing science. They're not allowed to do that because instead they are essentially beasts of burden in this kind of world economy. Right. Mm -hmm. Hume would say, Nietzsche would say that value judgment in Pinker's mind came first. I'm going to look at the ratio first as opposed to absolute numbers. Right. So this is kind of the point when Hume makes these kinds of judgments. And again, very telling that, you know, Pinker name drops Hume, but he doesn't want to get into that part of the critique. Right. Um, right. So 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 anyway, like, uh, uh, I don't know if I have anything else to say about the Enlightenment. Uh, yeah, I mean, th that's kind of like a, a, a more or less, it. and just kind of like a, a side note, he has this thing on page nine where he, he talks about like, the differences between, you know, pre-alignment, post-alignment, like he talks about, like, for example, all the, um, 
you know, delusions that people had. Uh, you know, he believes witches can summon up storms that sink ships at sea. He believes in werewolves. He believes that the rainbow is a sign from God. He believes that the earth stands still, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, wow, like, you know, isn't it so wonderful that, you know, we don't believe these things now? And yeah, I, I sort of agree in the sense that it's great that these like truly like baseline, completely untrue things are, are able to, you know, be out of the question now that, that people, you know, don't, don't go for that kind of shit anymore. I think that's good. And I think it's true, you know, uh, to, to, to say that this is kind of no, no longer the case, but he does not ever in this book, um, sort of put up his own, you know, he says, first of all, he doesn't have an ideological side, but he clearly does. He he's kind of like in the, you know, in the Bill Gates sort of sphere of, of humanism and so on. He never, you know, puts forward, the complete sort of delusions of the present age. Like, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, if you're Bill Gates and you believe the charter schools are the answer and not a wholesale, complete foreclosure of private schooling, period, that is a delusion that, it, granted, it's not the same thing as believing werewolves, but <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the stakes in the 21st century are simply different. They're not werewolves anymore. It's not mm -hmm. slavery anymore. It's something else. The stakes right. now, you know, to today's werewolves are charter schools. It's just reality, yeah. right? So again, like we could all be appreciative of the fact that, you know, we, we're not going to be fucking like, you know, burned, you know, at, at a, you know, pie or somewhere, um, you know, for, for being a, a, a witches. That's great. But again, let's deal with delusions as they transform delusions, you know, they don't die out. Pinker would, of course, never claim that they do, but this is an example of some of the transformations. And it's not even so much that Pinker would like uh, deny that this is happening, but he would never in this book, you know, put up something like the charter school delusion or any other like neoliberal delusion. He would never put it up as something for attack in the same way that he would put up werewolves and witches for attack. And to me, werewolves and witches are such fucking, it's such low hanging fruit. It's not really worth, you know, spending the time any longer. And again, we could agree that it's great that people don't believe that stuff anymore, but the stakes are different. The reality is different. This is how delusions have transformed. Let's deal with that reality now. And, you know, uh, even if he says that he, 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 he sort of, you know, in the abstract accepts this argument, this book does not make does not make those claims, which is a problem, right? Which is why, again, earlier, why do we have this like sinking feeling that this is just so pro status quo? I mean, we've already given two examples. Here's a second one, okay? And and we're gonna have more and more as things go on, right? Um, yeah, I, I think it's exactly right, and I would imagine you do the same thing. But I think, um, you know, if if you're if you're trying to be a progressive in today's day and age, this is what you spend a decent amount of time thinking on is what, what is to your point, the belief in werewolves of 100 to 200 years from now, right? When I was alive in, in 2000 and then 2010 and 2020, you know, what will someone assuming humanity is still around, uh, you know, look back upon this time and say, can you believe that, that people used to think that that was a good idea and, and the right way to run things? And so, like you said, sure, you know, it's fine to, to um, go ahead and, and weed out the low hanging fruit and, you know, and, and, and pluck, pluck the weeds from the garden, uh, you know, of, of sorcery and, and, you know, breaking on the wheel torture and this other kind of stuff that I'm certainly glad it's gone. But um, again, to ignore that there's still an immense, immense amount of people, more people than ever, suffering 
in horrendous ways still, uh, you know, through through all kinds of insanely justified means from, uh, you know, protected interests embedded in our, our current economic and political system. Uh, it, it's kind of inexcusable in a way. Yeah. Um, and I mean, he, he, you know, again, he, he would say that I'm not I'm not actually doing that. But again, um, we'll, 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 we'll sort of, uh, show that this is in fact the case over and over again. And so, I mean, here, here's the kind of like next thing, right? So, um, on, on page 24, uh, when he, uh, uh, again, going back to this idea of misfortune, right? Uh, he has this idea of like intro, evo, info, entropy, uh, evolution, information, right? He has this kind of, uh, theory of, of how they're working, uh, into the present day, um, the first piece of wisdom that they offer is that misfortune may be no one's fault. And he italicized misfortune may be no one's fault. A major breakthrough of the scientific mm -hmm. revolution, perhaps its biggest breakthrough, was to refute the intuition that the universe is saturated with purpose. In this primitive but ubiquitous understanding, everything happens for a reason. So when bad things happen, accidents, disease, famine, Poverty. Wow. Put you know, like talk, talk, to talk about the fucking baited switch. Right. Accidents. <laughs> poverty. Right. What an yeah. accident. Right. Holy shit. <laughs> um, some agent must have wanted them to happen. If a person can be fingered for the misfortune, he can be punished or squeezed for damages. If no individual can be singled out, one might blame the nearest ethnic or religious minority who can be lynched or massacred in a, a pogrom. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, the whole 2008 thing. So many people were, were, were kind of like collectively responsible. So nobody gets punished. Right. Correct. That, that's all, you know, that's also part of the status quo thinking let's punish no one because, well, I'm personally not responding. I'm responsible for the 2008 meltdown. Are you kidding me? And of course, like they would technically be right. You can't pin it on one person. So they sort of, you know, they, they, they socialize all the profits and then they, um, or they, right, they socialize all the costs and they privatize all the profits, right? Right. Um, right. And like you know, like I, I, I'm just like wondering, like, like the Pinker, you know, like the Pinker not see, like he talks about logical fallacies in the book, but it's like, you know, uh, th this idea of misfortune may be no one's fault. Like we're going from this abstract idea of there is no such thing as cosmic purpose, which is true. There mm -hmm. is no such thing as cosmic purpose. There is no God like to tell you what you, what you can and cannot do. Right. Again, going back to Nietzsche. Wow. He keeps mm -hmm. coming up. Um, okay. You know, like uh, uh, th there is no cosmic purpose in that regard. This is true, but you can't make the transition from cosmic purpose on a cosmic scale to something like poverty, to something right. like income inequality, to something like, you know, we as a society or we, you know, the most powerful elements of society, you know, the, the most property classes that actually have a say in what laws get passed, how things work, you know, that, you know, you, you can't go from cosmic purpose to then saying that these people collectively have no real agency, have nothing to answer for, cannot be blamed, and cannot also be in some ways you know, expropriated of their property, right? If you do some uh -huh. sort of, you know, wealth redistribution scheme. So the fact that he just like slips this kind of stuff in, I mean, you know, uh, again, it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's, it's, it's very telling, right? Um, and it, it keeps like scrubbing, you know, uh, agency over and over again in these very weird ways. Uh -huh. Um, yeah. So, yeah. No, it's, that's, uh, that's so true. And the, um, the whole misfortune may be no one's fault, you know, italicized is, uh, 
It is wild because it, it you know, the, the things he's contradicting his own claim in certain ways, right? You know, if the enlightenment was so uh, grand in the, the reframing that it allowed humanity to do to bring us forward into this modern age where everything all the time is getting better in every way, which is a lot of ways the argument of this book. Yeah. And only um, knowledge is in the way, right? Only knowledge gets in the way, right? Knowledge, like knowledge, is, knowledge is the only problem. You know, we just need uh, a, a couple more Einsteins and Newtons and Marie Curies to, to uncover some more mm -hmm. knowledge for us and, and we'll fix the next thing. Um, but, but then, you know, to, to transition to this whole, like, we, we've we've moved into such an understanding of the universe that it's not God that that does any of these things. You know, it's uh, it's just it's just a, a cold, unfeeling universe. You know, things might not be anybody's fault. Well, no, you know, in, in the present age where we have billions of of human beings, sentient beings who know full well, uh, you know, what they what they are up to day to day, and in a, a lot of ways can project the future of the domino effect of their decision-making uh, of course, you know, the, the massive scale global poverty we still see today is it, it, maybe it's so many people's fault over time as to be no one's fault, but we know whose fault it generally is, mm -hmm. you know, as, as, yeah. as, as exactly a general idea and movement. And so uh, it's just, you know, just let people off the hook over and over mm -hmm. um, on this kind of stuff is uh Again, you know, if you're being skeptical as an Enlightenment thinker, it, it seems sort of counter to the Enlightenment, right? You know, hmm, I, I think if I sat mm -hmm. here for even a few minutes, I could probably figure out some of whose fault this really is. Yeah. The yeah. issue is a will to take on those forces. Yeah, and the, uh, the, the disturbing part is how, and I'm going to read now from page 26, how, you know, all of this is kind of setting the, the groundwork for his, like, chapter in inequality. Right. Mm -hmm. um, like it's it's kind of like it's sort of, you know, if, if you're not totally like if you're uncomfortable with inequality, if you think there's someone to blame, he's sort of, you know, setting it up in such a way where uh, ultimately those arguments that now, by the way, guys, let's not blame because he, he so far has not brought up like income inequality, except now he, he did use the word poverty. But, you know, it's like little by little, he's sort of like upping the ante little by little until he ultimately says like later on. You know, by the way, guys, inequality is nobody's fault. Um, mm -hmm. So just just on on, on page uh, 26, uh, when he's talking about like uh, the human moral sense. Um, so the human moral sense can also work at cross purposes to our well-being. People demonize those they disagree with, attributing differences of opinion to stupidity and dishonesty. For every misfortune, they seek a scapegoat. They see morality as a source of grounds for con condemning rivals and mobilizing indignation against them. The grounds for condemnation may consist in the defendants having harmed others, but they also may consist in their having flouted custom, questioned authority, undermined tribal so solidarity, or engaged in unclean sexual or dietary practices. People see violence as moral, not immoral. Across the world and throughout history, more people have been murdered to mete out justice than to satisfy greed. Um, I mean, like, do you have do you have any responses to, to that quote, or or I could take it if not. Um, my only immediate response is really in that last line. You know, people seeing violence as moral, not immoral, which I think historically is true and is today probably still mm -hmm. often true a lot of the time. But 
across the world and throughout history, more people have been murdered to mete out justice than to satisfy greed. Uh, I don't know how he knows that's true. He's got a citation here, uh, I guess. Hey, I went away, what kind of citation could you possibly? <laughs> right. Hold on. I'm going to try for something like that. I'm just going to try to find it quick. 28 on Entro Evo Info. Virtuous Violence, Fisky and Rye 2015. Uh, and then he says, Pinker 2011, Chapters 8 and 9. I, I don't know. Okay. Um, anyway. My, my, so he, my, so my, he quotes himself. Yeah, he quotes himself. My comment to that, maybe that's better angels of our nature is what he's uh, trying, yeah, probably. trying to quote. Um, and, and so maybe there is some actual data behind that. I'd be interested to see it. But um, <laughs> at, at a bare minimum, like when we're going to talk later about the colonial movements and, uh, you know, and, and the greed of the global north and like, I mean, the number of people murdered and killed and enslaved and and abused to satisfy greed might as well be innumerable you know what i mean mm -hmm. and, and and so i don't even really know how you can make a claim that you know more people have been killed uh to to meet out justice than to satisfy greed and and i know that one of pinker's arguments uh is that well you know slavery let's just take that as an example has been around since you know for all of human history it was only after the enlightenment that abolitionism started to become a movement and to move mm -hmm. forward that's that's true and that is good you know we can all agree upon that but still the, the you know the, the colonialism the 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 advantages reaped from maybe not out and out slavery but some other means by which to satisfy the greed of those in power and and drive the economic engine it's still just an immense amount of suffering and it persists to this day. You know, this is something that you've talked about uh, in other essays specifically about black people in America and them being boxed out of every conceivable meaningful way to advance their position and gain a better, true, fair, good livelihood. But the fact that we had the civil rights movement, you know, people can look to that and be like, well, look, okay, you know, again, we achieved the bare minimum. Blacks can come into the same bathroom and drink out of the same water fountain. Isn't that, mm -hmm. isn't that great? Isn't that good? Sure. It's good. But the point being, they, they got redlined. They couldn't purchase housing. I mean, this kind of, this kind of discrimination absolutely still goes on to this day. Then you have the whole, you know, billions of people in the developing world in the global South and, and whatever, who continue to, I mean, they're so far behind now that it, it seems like it would be the bare minimum to, massively move them hopefully in a direction of more equality mm -hmm. and even then who knows how long it would take for a true catch-up right but mm -hmm. there's this there's this whole idea that you know as we'll see later in some of these graphs because they've gone from a dollar 90 a day mm -hmm. to two dollars or three dollars or four dollars a day look their income has doubled isn't that mm -hmm. fantastic Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's, it's just kind of an insane metric to try to use to, uh, to justify some of these things. So I'm, I'm getting a little bit off track. You know, there's still plenty of violence mm -hmm. meted out against, against a lot of people to satisfy greed to this day. Um, and that's probably going to continue for a while. You know, what else, what else yeah. are a lot of our, our wars yeah. anyway today? Yeah. And I mean, just like repeat that last uh, line, uh, people see violence as moral, not immoral across the world and throughout history, more people have been murdered to mete out justice than to satisfy greed. Uh, I don't mean to be so disparaging my laughter, but it's, you know, it, it is kind of like funny, like what exactly would the citation be? Because again, 
this is just going back to this idea of like values, right? Uh, in the sense of Hume, in the sense of Nietzsche, in the sense of Kant, right? Uh, he would call it aesthetic as opposed to value judgment. But um, you could, you know, flip this question in so many ways. Like I'm, I'm not so, you know, I, I'm not convinced, for example, that, you know, uh, uh, if you look back on history, like people would blame, you know, religion for something like the Crusades or whatever. Uh to me, when I like the when I look at the Crusades, uh, it's not a bunch of people who thinks that they are the holy ones that are out there trying to mete out justice against, like you know, the uh, uh, the infidels, right? Uh, and then vice versa. When you have you know uh, Islamic conquests uh, trying to you know take over the infidels, right? We are the just ones. The infidels are in unjust. Um, I just view that as a very very clever a self-delusion, right? You don't want to feel like you're just kind of like killing someone for your own gain. B, a, a self-delusion that is then extrapolated to the rest of the world that you could then sell to others, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't want to, you know, nakedly claim that, hey, I'm doing this for my own gain. Again, to go back to Nietzsche, Nietzsche will look at something like that and say, there's a very, there's a very clear reason why they're doing that. Right. And they're trying to deny their own motivations. And Nietzsche is saying instead, well, here are the true motivations. Here's what that morality, in fact, looks like. And people like Pinker and others are like, oh, no, 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 that's too disgusting. That's too, that's too naughty. We don't want to look at that. When in fact, that's, that's reality. Right. So, um, e you know, even something like the Holocaust, right? Like, you know, is it simply because Hitler believed the Jews were unclean? Well, I'm sure, you know, that was part of it. I'm sure that was part of like, you know, his, his uh, self-delusion. Um, but the other part mm -hmm. of it was, here's a bunch of people that are financially well off and we could expropriate their property, right? So yeah. it's, it's yeah. so like, again, so like, is that a matter of justice? Meeting out justice against like the infidels or the unwashed ones or the Jews, like whatever, or is that greed, right? Like, you, you could, you, depending on where your values fall. And also I think this goes beyond values. I mean, I think, I think it's just a factual statement that people often, you know, people just say that they're motivated by X, Y, and Z because they don't want to say what their true motivations are. Well, th there's just one more quote on uh, uh, page uh, 29 that I want to get to that is also like a little bit uh, telling, right? So he's, oh, yeah. okay. he's talking about the various counter enlightenments that we have. Right. And, and, and he says, um, you know, there, there are people that are against the alignment. There are people that are counter to reason, you know, and it's so crazy that these people exist, but they do. And, and here's who they are and here's why they exist. So he, he introduces it by saying uh, these people absolutely do exist. Since the 1960s, trust in the institutions of modernity has sunk. And the second decade of the 21st century saw the rise of populist movements that blatantly repudiate the ideals of the Enlightenment. They are tribalist rather than cosmopolitan, authoritarian rather than democratic, contemptuous of experts rather than respectful of knowledge, and nostalgic for an idyllic past rather than hopeful for a better future. Um, and, you know, like it's, it's, it, it, it just kind of like jumped out to me that he, you know, he, he says that we have the, this, like, you know, growing distrust in institutions going back to the 60s. Isn't that, first of all, an interesting time to kind of isolate as the start of all this, right? This coincides a lot with wage stagnation. Uh, mm -hmm. Later on, we're going to go into uh, the differences between GDP, gross domestic product, and using that as a marker for human progress, as opposed to 
uh, uh, GPI, which is uh, the Genuine Progress Index. That has been stagnant and, in fact, declining since the height in the 70s. Um, and later on, like when he talks about uh, you know, the rise of, of Trump and Trump-like populist movements, you get the sense that uh, his whole kind of critique of that is uh, it, it just kind of amounts to little more than, wow, like, look at all these people, these like lumpen proles, if only they weren't deluded by someone like Trump, right? If only like they weren't tricked into, into believing these counter alignment narratives, then everything would be a-okay. And, you know, like you get the sense that part of the reason why he's writing this book, like, you know, he's, he, he says that he's against ideologues, you know, uh, political partisanship, but he clearly is an activist also in his own way, right? And the activism is, let me write a book like this to uh, try to, you know, uh, stem the tide of these movements. But a lot of his analysis does not really go beyond, you know, we have a bunch of these like abstract counter alignment forces. Like he doesn't really get into why they exist. Why, why would there be people like Trump that would cynically try to weaponize, you know, human ignorance Mm-hmm. And gullibility. I mean, like, you know, tr- Trump is so clearly not someone that at all gives a fuck about anyone in his life. He's clearly sociopathic. He has an entire life of just kind of, you know, theft and just like misbehaving in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, it's very easy to say like, wow, like if only if it weren't for these counter alignment forces, you know, all these people wouldn't be so gullible. Why are people so gullibly willing to believe that he's going to be their savior? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the fact that this is never addressed, like I, I think it's 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 both telling and very um, it's kind of disturbing in a book like this. I mean, you know, you, you have to be able to get to the bottom of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I, I think later, if anything, um, again, he he trots out, you know, Nietzsche uh, and, yeah. and, and some of those ideals for an explanation of somebody like like Trump or some of the other famed demagogues of the past so yeah you um you do need to you know to to make more of an effort at it than that and um i don't know for the moment that i've i've got a a whole lot more to say on those topics i mean he at the beginning of chapter four what page is this um called progressive phobia you know that's Mm -hmm. the chapter title Yeah, yeah And he he kicks that off by then saying intellectuals hate progress. Intellectuals who call themselves progressive really hate progress. It's not that they hate the fruits of progress, mind you. It's the idea of progress that rankles the chattering class, the enlightenment belief that by understanding the world, we can improve the human condition. And then he kind of goes on to cherry pick a number of um, you know, cynical or nihilist intellectuals, um, or, or even some that aren't, but he kind of lumps them in with that. Um, and I will say, you know, that was, was sort of a galling thing to read uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> as someone mm-hmm. who considers themselves, uh, you know, an intellectual and, a, and an artist and yet a progressive, right? It's just like, well, Jesus, I mean, of, yeah, of course, like that's going to be true for, for some people. Um, but, you know, he later on in the book, he also a- apparently considers someone like Steve Bannon an intellectual. He talks about the intellectual roots of Trumpism. I, I think it was being uh, maybe a little bit uh, sarcastic uh, there. Just, like, just there, yeah. I, I mean, a little bit, a little bit to like Pinker's credit. I think there definitely is this kind of like progress phobia that he calls it uh, in in liberal circles. I mean, again, uh, 
I, I think there are plenty of people that if you give them a book like this, they're like, fuck this. I don't believe this. Like, of course, the world is like worse off than it's ever been. Look at the Holocaust. Look at this. Look at that. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, so I, I, I think there's something there. Right. And there, there is. There is. Yeah. And, and, and Pinker's sort of like he. He, he does talk about this in a little more detail, surprising than this book. I think he should have talked about it more in this book than he does in uh, Better Angel, Angels of Our Nature. But, uh, you know, the idea why this happens is if, if you're progressive and you want to, you know, continually make things better, it is in your interest to say that the world has not been getting better because one of your best bargaining chips is to say, look, things are worse than they've ever been. Like you have to be able to say that um, uh, for people to like more easily, you know, like uh, get on board, I, I, I think in some ways, uh, or, or rather that's kind of like the knee-jerk reaction, but uh, it, it's also kind of like a, a double-edged sword in that regard because it's like, well, you know, if, if you are a, someone that completely denies progress, uh, you're also unwittingly damaging your own political platform, right? I mean, Correct. Um, yeah. like if, if if all that you could say is, well, look, you know, progressives have in some fashion or another, even if you didn't call them progressives in the past, they've always existed. There's always been people with a liberal strain and people with a conservative strain. That's just, you know, a psychological reality. Like it speaks mm -hmm. to carefulness versus, you know, experimentation and kind of like the human psyche. Um but uh, you know, if, if 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 you deny that there's any progress, and yet pro progressives have always existed, why should someone like sign on to your fucking political platform? I mean, like, if all that you could point to is like failure after failure after failure after failure, all your efforts are always for naught, always for naught, always for naught. Why shouldn't someone just be like, well, clearly progress is impossible. Possible? Then fuck you and fuck this. I'm just gonna make money. I'm going to go with, you know, the Epstein route and just like live a life of just like pure self-indulgence. Um, and, you know, that's that, like th that, that's also a very real, uh, uh, you know, potentiality. And, and you know, I, I think people that are very, very hesitant about progress, you know, I, I understand why they have the knee jerk reaction because it is a powerful bargaining chip to be able to say, look at all this evil, let's solve it. Um, on the other hand, like you are unwittingly creating, you know, um, you know, people uh, like a mass of people that are just kind of like, you know, I, I don't want to do the shit. I don't want to think about it. Like, no, you know, nothing works, nothing helps. Fuck it. Right. That's like the most common thing. Like when people like refuse to give money to charity or whatever, it's always like, well, there's always like, you know, the next poor child. Right. So what's the fucking point? Right. Mm -hmm. Which also kind of misses the point. Like, even if you can't stem the tide, like, well, you know, like what, how responsible are you? Right for some of what's going on, because everybody to some degree is, which which we'll get to. Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to tackle well, like like he has like oh oh go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, you know maybe my my thought on that when I when I read it and and I agree with with a lot of what you say there. You know, it is, um, and maybe it's because you know like in in the public discourse, if you're going to be someone that's trying to disseminate these ideas and talk about them, especially in the modern age, like it, it nuance is very difficult to get across. And it's, it's, it's much, uh, it sells much better and it markets much better to take a more extreme position. Right. And, and just say either, you know, no progress has really actually been made period anywhere. So the whole system needs to get chucked out uh, or to be someone who, you know, wants to argue in a more Pollyanna sense that everything's amazing. So let's keep the status quo. Look at how, mm -hmm. how much it's improved everything. So mm -hmm. 
yeah the, you know my, my whole reading of that was kind of instantly like you know what about an intellectual who's able to see multi multi-dimensionality to the problem here right like to accept that we've had progress and therefore a pro you know progressivism and a progressive agenda has validity I think it's pretty clear that 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 it has validity and we have moved forward in a number of things then you know we've solved certain problems we have other problems that continue to exist and we also have fresh problems so then mm -hmm. it's okay to also be a progressive pointing those things out and wanting more progressive solutions to those uh, and, and trying to you know trying to find arguments that that work across an entire spectrum. I mean, you know, these are, we're talking about the biggest ticket items here. So, um, you know, of course it's just never as simple as people want it to be. And I get that, um, you know, the, 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 the more, uh, you know, the, the more rooted to the spot you can be and just dig in and dig in and shout louder about that. Uh, you know, the more attention you can grab. Mm-hmm. And, but the, yeah. and that's that to me seemed more like what he was targeting there was like the most attention grabbing uh and you know anti-progressive intellectuals and the fact that they hate progress and therefore want to be able to say that uh you know everything's everything's terrible if you just look at it closer or or whatever so i don't know as, as someone who still tries to be optimistic about some of these things uh i just i felt like he he did a bit of a disservice there but Anyway, yeah, yeah, we can, we can move on. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's a good point, right? Like, I mean, just like there are liberals that will unwittingly, like, you know, get people like not signing up to their platform because, like, you know, what's the point? Everything sucks. Nothing ever gets better, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he does, like, you know, he, he sort of, like, you know, argues. Uh, well, he doesn't argue against that explicitly, but I could imagine him arguing against that. But he also does unwittingly the opposite, right? Which is. Um, he gets kind of like stuck in his own kind of inertia of the status quo, even as he denies that he's doing that, right? You have, you know, just example after example, right? That he's he's already like prepping you to, you know, accept income inequality as as, as something that is not right anyone's fault, as it were, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, and, you know, just speaking some of this progress, I don't know if you want to tackle it, but it's, it's at the end of the book, but on page 322, there's like a, there's like a couple of pages, um, where he just you know like like as we tackle like his kind of more data data uh driven stuff right uh, his kind of like data claims um he has like a summary here of kind of like his core arguments as far as like how the world got better maybe you want to like grab like just use that as a quote this is page 322 beginning of chapter 20 the future of progress since the enlightenment unfolded in the late 18th century Life expectancy across the world has risen from 30 to 71, and in the more fortunate countries to 81. When the Enlightenment began, a third of the children born in the richest parts of the world died before their fifth birthday. Today, that fate befalls 6% of the children in the poorest parts. Their mothers, too, were freed from tragedy. 1% in the richest countries did not live to see their newborns, a rate triple that of the poorest countries today, which continues to fall. In those poor countries, lethal infectious diseases are in steady decline, some of them afflicting just a few dozen people a year, soon to follow smallpox into extinction. The poor may not always be with us. The world is about a hundred times wealthier today than it was two centuries ago, and the prosperity is becoming more evenly distributed across the world's countries and people. The proportion of humanity living in extreme poverty has fallen from almost 90% to less than 10%, and within the lifetimes of most of the readers of this book, it could approach zero. 
catastrophic famine, never far away in most of human history, has vanished from most of the world, and undernourishment and stunting are in steady decline. A century ago, richer countries devoted 1% of their wealth to supporting children, the poor, and the aged. Today, they spend almost a quarter of it. Most of their poor today are fed, clothed, and sheltered, and have luxuries like smartphones and air conditioning that used to be unavailable to anyone, rich or poor. Poverty among racial minorities has fallen, and poverty among the elderly has plunged. And the next several paragraphs kind of go on and on, continuing to sum up um, really kind of each successive preceding chapter to this, because this is much later in the book, but, you know, Pinker goes through chapter by chapter with comments on and data on wealth, health, inequality, um, you know, food, technology, availability, um, mortality rates, all, all these different kinds of things, uh, violence, and so on. So, you know, this is the, the, the crux of his argument, essentially, throughout the, the middle section of the book is that uh, almost on any conceivable metric, if we throw up a graph of, of good things, they've increased. If we throw up a graph of bad things, they've decreased. Mm -hmm. uh, and that this has, uh, you know, mostly happened since the late 18th century. And, uh, and some of the, the charts are pretty remarkable, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if we want to highlight any specific ones, but um, anyway, this, this is the central part of his argument. I did, uh, you know, in, in that second paragraph, the poor may not always be with us. Uh, the world is about 100 times wealthier today than it was two centuries ago, and the prosperity is becoming more evenly distributed across the world's countries and people. Um, you know, this is, as you and I talked about earlier in the, uh, in the discussion here, maybe the the beef that the biggest beef we have with Pinker's purely data centric arguments, right, is is uh, when it comes to inequality and global poverty, a uh, a cherry picking of that data and a lack of contextualizing that data. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think in your notes you said you wanted to maybe use those couple paragraphs as the the launching point for just a broader discussion on Pinker's main arguments. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, that, that, those quotes are just kind of like, you know, the sketch of the argument. And, uh, I mean, you highlighted some of the, uh, graphs and charts in the book. Uh, here's one that I, uh, like, and I mean, it's useful. So this is, uh, the cost of light in England from 1300 to 2006 price mm -hmm. in pounds. I think it's like per kilowatt hour or something. So we start at the very top there. Right, um, with forty thousand pounds mm -hmm. per kilowatt hour, and we make it down to here, which is virtually no cost. And I mean, mm -hmm. if you and if you think about it, just in terms of like what light is able to provide, you know, for you, you know, how it enables to uh, fraction out your schedule, right? What you get to do at night, what you get to do during the day. Um, I remember when, like, when I first read uh, the Smart Twain novel, Connecticut Yankee and King Ar Arthur's Court, when he really went into detail about darkness in the medieval era, how like, yeah, I never truly thought about it, but it must have been a very, very dark time. Um, and I mean, you know, it, it is amazing, right? We, we go from uh, 40,000 uh, uh, pounds to almost nothing now. Mm -hmm. the, the question, of course, like in terms of context, like you don't want to deny that this is progress, right? This is clearly progress. But yeah. again, to, to you know, I, 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 I said earlier that um, 
a pinker unwittingly makes tons and tons of Nietzschean arguments, right? In, in the sense that uh, Nietzsche often says that, you know, uh, we are using, you know, suffering as fuel, right? He does not, he's not just talking about suffering of like, you know, other people, also your own personal suffering. You could use it as fuel for something greater. You could use it to uh, build off of in some way. Right to him, uh, suffering—it's not entirely entirely clear that suffering cannot be, in some way, a part of human values. Um, uh, and you know, Pinker, whether or not he realizes it, I mean, he is making that argument here. Like, even with this kind of light example, in exchange for very very cheap light, I mean, what do we do to the planet? Right? We have, right. you know, we've destroyed so many species. Like, it, you know, we we've been kind of, you know, engendering our, uh, these extinction events. Uh, ever since, like, you know, human beings, you know, pretty much came on the planet, you know, as soon as you had, you know, uh, people go, for example, into Australia, right, megafauna die off. As mm -hmm. soon as Native Americans came to North America, megafauna die, die off, right? So we're constantly engendering these mass extinction events, but we've definitely accelerated them in the last couple of centuries. Yeah. Um, what is the Nietzschean argument there? Well, it's kind of like, you know, essentially... Uh, fuck you animals, right? Like, um, you know, we, you know, we, we are able to use you as fuel essentially for these great things that we're building, right? The great things are science, the arts, right? We're sentient beings that are capable of rational thought, you know, rational extrapolation. We're more worthy than you in some ways uh, of life, right? And that's the thing, like, you know, Pinker doesn't necessarily, you know, he, he says explicitly that um, animals aren't excluded from his view of humanism and even from like humanism in general, right? Uh, but he never talks about animals again. And that's because if you do, um, just like now we have more people in an absolute number that are suffering under poverty than ever before, and, you know, and any time that we don't lift people out of poverty, this is a kind of, you know, collective guilt. Mm -hmm. Right now, you know, the extent of animal suffering, I think probably hasn't been the case since, you know, it hasn't been this bad since probably, you know, the, the last like true, like great, maybe like dinosaur level extinction event, right? right. Uh, where we have like right now, more animals, you know, a, a, you know, probably like a, a kind of like, a, a, you know, like numerical basis than ever. Uh, but there, you know, so many of them are like literally, you know, they're, they're factory farmed, right? And mm -hmm. listen, you don't have to be a vegetarian, you don't have to be a vegan, but let's be real. You are making the Nietzschean calculation that, you know, I can suffer, animals can suffer. I am cap capable of rational thought, animals are not. I am going to eat animals and use them as fuel, right? And we have been using animals as fuel. The fact that protein has expanded, right, all over the world, and, you know, people are not able, people are, don't have to go through these, like, cyclical famines again. People are able to grow more healthy by the consumption of animal products, like, you know, animal products get, like, a bad reputation, but, you know, there's a way to uh, healthily consume them. That's a Nietzschean kind of, um, you know, value judgment, right? You are, you're, you, that's a Nietzschean morality. You are saying that that is worth it, right? Um, so, you know, the example of light, uh, uh, you pointed out in, what was it? Um, I think it was in the chapter on wealth, right? Where if you look at the gross domestic product, right, um, compared to, you know, just a few centuries ago, mm -hmm. uh you have like essentially like this flat line that just takes off, 
in the last uh, century and a half, right? So yeah. this is Pinker's graph on GDP. This, this but, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, this is not like some sort of uh, y-axis. This is literally the spike in the graph, right? So Correct, we go from yeah. this flat line. You can't even see the little you know fluctuations in the bottom, although of course they existed. And mm-hmm. quite suddenly, you know, over the last two centuries, you have this, you know, parabola upwards, right? Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, he, he does say that GDP is a crude measure of well-being in the sense that clearly not everybody is able to participate in GDP in the same way. Mm-hmm. But his argument is, you know, it's better than mm-hmm. nothing. And we're yeah. going to examine that, right, when, we go, when we're going to get into uh, a GPI, right, as, as a kind of contrast to GDP. I'm not sure if you have, like, any, like, charts that you want to highlight or anything you want to show. But they all more or less kind of show the same thing. Like, anything that's good, everything is, like, kind of going up, right, in, in, in Pinker's reading. Yeah. I think that, so, again, you know, some of these charts are kind of, stunning and and uh, as you point out there's there's externalities to everything you know there's there's trade-offs with absolutely everything but that gross world product number i i knew that it had increased substantially uh, over the mm-hmm. past couple of centuries since the industrial revolution I, I didn't realize it was essentially a a completely vertical line so it is mm-hmm. uh it is a testament to, to to human ingenuity and to you know invention creation and um you know, even in a lot of ways, the the invention of the modern economy that allowed for the the trade of these goods and for the for global expansion and everything else. But of course, there's yet again plenty of of negative externalities with that that we'll talk about um, that persist to this day. And um, and so I think what I want to highlight is that because um, there are plenty of other charts we could look at, and uh, again, over and over and over again, they seem to tell the same story. And I think as you read this book, um, you know, Pinker obviously just arbitrarily picked how he wanted to divide it up and, and what um, subcategories he wanted to use, right, and, and show data about. But um, you start to suffer from data fatigue at a certain point. It's like, okay, I, I get it. And, and you know what's going to come next, right? There's really no element of surprise um, to the book, probably after 150 to 200 pages, because you know, when you flip the page uh, for the next chapter, it's going to be a different topic, but that the graphs are going to tell you, according to uh, to Pinker, approximately the same thing. It is important to point out that a huge amount of the data for this comes from just a couple sources, mm-hmm. right? We have uh, the Our World in Data website. Um, you have Hans Rosling's um, information. And, you know, th- these are people who, uh, you know, presumably... Pinker knows well, and um, you know they they all have kind of like jumped in to back him in a lot of these claims, right? And they've been forced to defend their data sets uh, against some of the you know the, the counter examples that have been given, and they've attempted to do that. Um, but I, again, I just think the the core the core point of it is uh, on the initial reading, it's kind of amazing, kind of encouraging. And then when you start to think about it and back up and dig a little bit deeper into it, you, you ask more questions and start to say, you know, what data is being mm-hmm. excluded from this? Uh, what counterexamples are we not seeing? What caveats are we are we yet to uncover? And, and then it falls on the reader to go seek those out in other places. But mm-hmm. um, some of these charts, a lot of them, um, 
they do they do depict heightened consumption usually vastly heightened consumption uh, of of whatever thing you know some sort of of good or service and that's pretty much always roundly praised as well uh whether whether directly or indirectly by mm-hmm. pinker and it 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 made me wonder throughout um and it gets back to another comment i i made earlier about you know so the, these enlightenment values like is is this what the vision was is this what it was meant to drive is that you know um hey everyone can have not just a refrigerator but like a double french door refrigerator filled with every imaginable type of food you could want from you know bought in bulk at a chain store that paved over a bunch of previous forest land uh you know just so that everybody in america can go consume in gluttonous amounts right i mean like these are these are the kind of things that are are praised and like talking about well this is a problem we used to have and now it's been solved look it's been solved mm. And of course, um, when we want to talk about the proportionality of these gains, they're still so skewed, right? We've got your average American, you and I included, who have the means by which to drive to any given, you know, big box chain store, load up an entire car full of whatever we want, bring it home and consume it. And still the majority of the world's population, uh, you know, could never, ever conceive of such a thing. And so um, I, I just don't know that uh, you know, that his extrapolation of it, the enlightenment values into some of these, into some of these uh, gains is, is really what was ever in mind anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, we talked earlier about little ways in which, uh, you know, he's accepting of inequality and there's sort of an insinuation that that's okay. And Hey, it's still gotten better for everybody. So it's fine. One other similar uh, time that I noticed that is in the chapter on the environment. And he, you know, he, he kind of like, uh, I don't know, faints and dodges throughout this whole chapter because there's like a continued, yeah, like we know there's a climate crisis and it's getting worse, uh, but like we are actively working on it. And here's some examples of, of pollutants that have come down or ways in which we're, uh, you know, penalizing over polluting corporations or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this little quote on page 134 where he says, but for many reasons, it's time to retire the morality play in which modern humans are a vile race of despoilers and plunderers who will hasten the apocalypse unless they undo the industrial revolution, renounce technology, and return to an ascetic harmony with nature. Instead, we can treat environmental protection as a problem to be solved. How can people live safe, comfortable, and stimulating lives with the least possible pollution and loss of natural habitats? Far from license and complacency, our progress so far at solving this problem emboldens us to strive for more. It also points to the forces that push this progress along. So mainly that first sentence, you know, retire this morality play in which we're a vile race of despoilers and plunderers who will hasten the apocalypse. It's like, yeah, but all the evidence says that's exactly what we're yeah, doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean yeah. come on, dude. Like, yeah. uh, wh- why, 
why can't you acknowledge that that is exactly what has gone on? And, and, and that's the thing. And like, think about the fact that he, you know, he's calling it again to go back to Nietzsche, like he's calling it a morality Another play. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing. So what is the implication here? Like, is the implication that like, well, come on, you fuckheads, like stop moralizing about this. Stop this like holier than art thou shit. Like, fine, we get it. Like we've destroyed much of the environment. We've, you know, depopulated so much of animals. We have animals that are just in unprecedented numbers suffering under, you know, factory farming in ways mm-hmm. that has never happened before. You know, like, come on, like, s- s- like, stop, stop talking about it. Stop mentioning it. it doesn't matter. Right. That, that, that is exactly what Nietzsche says. He, he says that the, these considerations, like in terms of human values, like, yes, you could put compassion as one of your values. That's fine. But you don't have to. And you could have suffering as a value too, because suffering might ostensibly lead to something else. That's that's by implication exactly what he's doing here, right? Just by denigrating this like this is this is such Nietzschean language. Like like if if he had if Nietzsche had the the phrase morale morality play to use in this way, he would absolutely use it in precisely this way. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is what gets me like, and we're going to, again, we're going to go to Nietzsche later, but this is what gets me about that, that final chapter when he's just like, you know, attacking Nietzsche. Like this is, this is such, you know, this is exactly what human beings are. It's exactly what Nietzsche says. You know, we have made the calculation that, you know, enough time to retire the morality play, because yeah, here's the fact, like, you know, with more technology, uh, better technology down the line, like, yes, some of this is going to improve, but as long as we have human beings on the planet, that wish to use resources, that wish to occupy land, that wish to have this comfort, that comfort. And if we have eventually, you know, billions more people who will want exactly the same comforts that people in the West want. Yeah. Uh, it's it's true that, you know, like, yes, you know, the carbon footprints per capita eventually are going to be going down. You know, things are going to get more efficient. So that 12 billion then, you know, peak population by the end of the century is going to look different than, you know, if we had that population now, this is true. But the fact is, as long as we take up some level of space in the world and use technology, like he, he starts the book by talking about entropy, right? So mm-hmm. this, this should be baked into his analysis, but it's not. As long as we exist, as long as we continue do, doing what we do, there's going to have to be some trade-off when we say it's okay to destroy X amount of species. It's okay to allow X number of creatures to go extinct. It's okay to do this and that. It's okay to you know factory farm. These trade-offs are always going to exist, right? And again, this is a Nietzschean argument and to just dismiss it as a morality play. Well, I thought that's exactly what we're trying to transcend. We're trying to mm-hmm. transcend this, like, you know, a non-compassionate, you know, view of life, right? But you know, it, it seems like in, in many ways, like you don't actually get that in the book. Yeah. Well, uh, right. And a couple other points just to make in this chapter. Um, you know, the one bit of context I want to give is that he's using that that paragraph there as um a, a, a you know, a clap back to tree huggers, basically, I guess is what you'd call them, mm-hmm. right? Like really, really adamant, um, you know, green, green focused people who, uh, you know, want everyone to live in like handmade log cabins again or something and um, hunt and forage. I mean, he, he kind of uses such an extreme example of, of a regression to some earlier times, you know, that, that I'm sure some people, you know, I know some people advocate for that. But that's the context in which that pops up. 
he also tries to make the argument that, you know, as technology improves, we can quote dematerialize more and more, mm-hmm. which I don't know. Again, I, I guess I'd have to see more data and more graphs. It's like, on one hand, that kind of makes sense. Like I get that a smartphone he uses that example, like think of all the things a smartphone does now in one device that we used to have, you know, a shelf of goods for that all did mm-hmm. separate things. And I can see some of that, but like, if, if you continue any kind of consumptive trend pattern, you know, we're still going to be mining all kinds of metals. We're still going to be uh, creating mm-hmm. semiconductor chips. We're still going to be, you know, people are still going to be enamored of fast fashion. Like all this kind of stuff is going to keep up. And um, it, it, he talks in here about, you know, quoting a couple other economists or, or um, ecologists maybe who talk about the fact that we've potentially reached peak stuff. <clears throat> And I, I don't know. I mean, that, that strikes me as just simply not true right now. Like if you think about the the rest of the developing world and, and if there's a desire to help more and more of those people attain a, a better standard of living. They're going to want what we well, have. Well, well they're going to want what we have. So, so here's the, the issue, right? Is like, okay, let's say everyone in the developed world, the rich nations, keeps right at where we're at. Mm-hmm. But then you bring up that, you know, that less uh, advantaged population. Well, right there, it seems to make an argument against peak stuff. You're going to need a lot more stuff to construct infrastructure, mm-hmm. buildings, houses, schools, mm-hmm. uh, all the stuff we have, like in rich nations, right? And then you're also going to have to expect that human nature completely reverses itself where everyone in the current rich nations is okay with stopping accelerating mm-hmm. their own you know, uh, consumption. And mm-hmm. I just, I, I kind of, you could call me cynical, but I feel as though the keeping up with the Joneses nature of the typical human being, especially one raised in, uh, an abundant culture where anything you could want is at your fingertips. Like your average American is, I don't think going to be content to just say, well, you know, well, yeah, I'll keep mine right mm-hmm. here until everyone else catches up. I, I think there's going to be a desire to, well, you know, God damn it. If I, you know, I should still be higher. So now I'm going to buy another SUV and I'm going to really try to, uh, you know, put a bowling alley in my house or whatever kind of shit people can and do dream up. You know, I don't know if you agree with me on that, but it just seems to me like trying to sit here and say, yeah, we've probably reached peak stuff. So it's going to start coming down. So it's, it's all good. You know, we're going to figure that out. Yeah. I don't know about that. I mean, the way that I would view it is uh, there's definitely going to be surprises in the next century in terms of like, you know, spikes in consumption, right? Stuff that, you know, uh, I guess Pinker hasn't thought about. Uh, But it's it's also true that to some degree, you know, let's assume that we do get, for example, you know, uh, nuclear fusion. He says, well, this time it may actually really be only 30 years away, right? Assuming that we have like better um, technology uh, uh, for, you know, reducing uh, emissions, we could start solving maybe some of that. But again, that's a big if, right? Like that, that is a huge if. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, also, you know, like when, when you, uh, you know, in the example of smartphones, yes, well, smartphones are the, are the thing we have now, uh, in the future, you know, we might be able to consolidate a whole lot of other stuff, like into smaller, uh, units. Right. And we might find, um, you know, some minerals that are, 
you know, useful in the same way that are, you know, we still use rare earth minerals, but we might find a, a situation where, you know, we're using less and less of those in exchange for something that is either cheaper or something that we could actually manufacture ourselves in some way. Um, those are also possibilities, but I generally agree that, you know, peak stuff might be the case uh, in, in some countries and some places, but, you know, it's definitely not, uh, uh, we're, we're definitely not hitting peak stuff any uh, time soon, right, when it comes to the developing world. And I think it's kind of telling that, like, in this chapter in the environment, you know, um, when, when he kind of like, you know, uh, kind of like cheerleads a neoliberal order, one of the things that he uh, talks about as, as like a, a huge positive move in, in the right direction is, uh, you know, the, the Paris Climate Accords, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, Trump, of course, you know, he went out of them. Uh, uh, Biden is, uh, put, uh, is, is now back in. Uh, but one thing that I didn't see people really talking about over the last few months is, there was like a report that was released that basically all those nations that uh, signed up to, you know, the, the Paris Climate Accords, uh, the, one, the ones that stuck to it, they did not come anywhere close to hitting their targets thus far hmm. and are not in, on pace at all to hit these targets. So again, you know, if, if Pinker wants to say that it's only knowledge that gets in the way, well, clearly, it's not just knowledge. I mean, to the extent that we don't have nuclear fusion, so therefore, that's why they're not hitting targets. Well, right now, we don't even need nuclear fusion to necessarily do more than what has already been done. There is, again, greed. There is inertia. There are entrenched interests, right? It's going to take you know more time. It's going to take more catas catastrophes. It's going to take more pressure. Right. So, um, you know, we, we it's, you know, like things are not really looking good in that front. I think it's pretty certain at this point that we would get uh, at least two and a half degrees Celsius of heating. And it's also within the realm of possibility that we do end up with four degrees of heating. And to anybody yeah. that's not aware of what this means, four degrees Celsius of heating means that everything south of Montreal is an uninhabitable desert that is just filled with solar panels powering the rest of the world, which exists in depopulated form in high-rise apartments in Canada and Russia. Okay, mm -hmm. that that's the reality. You have some places in Patagonia, they'll be fine to reside and you're also gonna have some high-rises there. But generally speaking, that is the reality. And we're probably hitting at this point, it looks like two and a half degrees. Um, and I, you know, I, I think uh, what what we saw in terms of, uh, and you know, like you can't even make the argument that, like, well, you know, maybe if America would have stayed in, these other countries would have taken it more seriously. You know, bullshit, I say, right? They, you know, it's it still would have been more or less the same, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, yeah. you know, like everything in this regard is always like not enough. Which you could, you know, you could sort of like, you know, like if you're a capitalist, right? Even and I'm not saying that you necessarily have to be a socialist or anything, but if you're a capitalist, you have to deal with the reality that something that is this like long-term externality that doesn't affect the people that are currently in power, it means that they're not going to hustle to solve these problems. Like there's nothing within capital capitalism that incentivizes solving issues that will become serious issues a century from now. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and, you know, like th that's just that's just the, a, a fact and logic of, of capitalism. Right. You, so you, you're going to have to deal with that 
um, in, in some way. And um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, be, uh, before we move on, just, just three more real quick points I wanted to make in, in this same channel is that um, with, with the present state of, uh, you know, our, our economic system in the rich developed global north, um, you know, it, it, it's always praised as being maximally efficient, right? There's this, um, there's this myth that the, the free market and the invisible hand guiding it is efficient and it's the most efficient way to possibly move forward. But it's so clear that it creates incredible inefficiencies. Uh, I mean, there's a few I can think of right off the top of my head. Number one is what you just said, right? The incentivization towards short-term thinking and the next quarter or two of profits to benefit shareholders. So problems that exist are allowed to persist for much longer than they should if people are really being more efficient and more intelligent about the future, both for themselves and successive generations. Number two is just the shit that gets produced. I mean, you know, for, for every important invention and thing that comes around, how many ancillary and complementary products get made that are completely optional, completely unnecessary. Um, you know, I mean, it's just absolutely insane. The number of, of things, but, but there's an incentive, right? If you can become uh, like an entrepreneur in America who makes, uh, you know, a lizard flag out of a certain kind of cloth and set of metals that catches on as a fad on TikTok, And now mm -hmm. you're rich because of something that is a complete, complete non-entity in terms mm -hmm. of any import, but you know, bully for you. I mean, now, now you're rich and you're maybe, and that adds to the GDP numbers, right? That's and also it, going to be part right. of the, the GDP it, spike. It adds to the GDP. You can go on fucking shark tank and pitch, you know, the, 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 the Furby ice cream scooper. I mean, whatever it is, right. But mm -hmm. like, there's no way to even think through all of these insane, unnecessary bullshit things that, that have come up that use resources that draw people's money that draw their attention um, and, and on and on and on. I mean, it's just wildly unimportant and inefficient in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And then the last one, and we can maybe talk a little bit more about some of these ideas, uh, you know, in a bit, but I was telling you that I, I rewatched a couple of the Dan Schneider video interviews with Carl Weiderquist, who's a, uh, you know, a, a, an economist and political theorist slash philosopher. I watched the, the most recent video that they just did together on uh, his co-authored book, um, A Prehistory of Private Property, mm -hmm. and then uh, his one on universal basic income from a couple of years ago. And he, he did a nice job pointing out yet another inefficiency of the, you know, the current neoliberal setup that we have, which is simply, uh, as we already know, you know, government handouts to the ultra rich, you mentioned that earlier, right? Um, socialism for for, for the for the downside, privatism for the upside, um, but also just lobbying, bribery, all this kind of stuff that goes on behind closed doors. But he even mentioned, you know, as simple an example as an ultra rich person who a can do all that lobbying, but b then has you know private jets, private yachts, all these things they use that consume insane amounts of resources to just bodily move themselves around to different areas where they can shake someone's hand. Um, 
and, and do some kind of fresh deal that probably benefits only them. So, mm-hmm. you know, when, when you think about the praise heaped upon, you know, the the current system for its for its efficiency, it's the best possible way we can think of. Carl also, you know, spends a lot of time talking about how supposedly it's the most free uh, economy and society we could have, and and we need to really really question that for a number of reasons that I, that he elucidates well. Um, uh, you know, again, all all of that just getting to that one quote I read, you know, ten minutes ago, fifteen minutes ago from Pinker about you know we need to get off of this morality play of uh, mm-hmm. of how we you know frame ourselves. It's like no, not really, because it's exactly what the fuck is going on most of the time. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, what do you want to go on to next? Um, uh, I think this is going to be a nice like lead into to income inequality. It's still s- staying in the uh, chapter on on wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to share a, a couple of things quickly. Um, just uh, I guess so. In terms, so we we also saw that graph with uh, GDP, right? Um, and the fact that mm-hmm. it's just like one straight line over the past uh, two centuries. Um, yeah. So let me just share the screen um so beyond gdp right uh this was uh back in 2013 there was this uh um article or rather the study beyond gdp measuring and achieving global genuine progress right people Mm -hmm. have known for a long time and pinker says as much himself that gdp is a very kind of crude way of uh, measuring progress um, because there's all these externalities that don't necessarily make their way into GDP. They don't reflect the negative costs. Uh, you mentioned, you know, like, hey, you know, we could have like a fucking like random like lizard flag that, you know, becomes a meme that adds to GDP. We yeah. have like, you know, shitty books from, uh, um, you know, like uh, some, 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 sh- some, sh- some like, sh- like shitty kids books or whatever that sell like, you know, billions of copies and suddenly that's pro GDP. And that's, that's a- actually an example that Pinker himself uses. So, you know, since economists knew that this is kind of a crude way of me- measuring uh, progress, uh, uh, there's the study that tries to find a new way of doing that, right? And they posit something called uh, GPI, right? So the abstract says, while global gross domestic product, GDP, has increased more than threefold since 1950, economic welfare, as estimated by the Genuine Progress Indicator, GPI, has actually decreased since 1978. So actually starting in the 60s and 70s, you had this kind of stagnation, right, around the time that Pinker says, wow, look at this, like people are losing trust in institutions, people are losing trust in expertise. I wonder why that is. Could it be because you're force feeding them progress while other metrics, right, don't show the same progress? So uh, we had this like period of stagnation for GPI and it started actually decreasing from 1978. So we synthesized estimates of GPI uh, over the 1950 to 2003 time period for 17 countries for which GPI has been estimated. These 17 countries contain 53% of the global population and 59% of the global GDP. We compare GPI with gross domestic product, human development index, ecological footprint, biocapacity, Gini coefficient, and life satisfaction scores. Results show a significant variation among these countries, but some major trends. We also estimated a global GPI capita 
over the 1950 to 2003 period. Global GPI slash capita peaked in 1978, about the same time that global ecological footprint exceeded global biocapacity. Life satisfaction in almost all countries has also not improved significantly since 1975. This is also something that um, Pinker himself says. He's like, there's mm-hmm. this kind of odd thing where over the last few decades, even if some things are getting better, or in his uh, framing, many things or most things are getting better, people are not necessarily more happy. And he just kind of dismisses it. But here's actually one of the explanatory factors, right? Um Globally, GPI uh, slash capita does not increase beyond a GDP slash capita of around $7,000 per capita. If we distributed income more equitably around the planet, the current world GDP, $67 trillion per year, could support 9.6 billion people at $7,000 per capita. While GPI is not the perfect economic welfare indicator, it is a far better approximation than GDP. Development policies need to shift to better account for real welfare and not merely GDP growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's just like one way that I will frame this, uh, you know, in, uh, a question of of uh, wealth, right? I mean, that's you know, that's just that's just part of the reality, right? We don't have to necessarily go with GDP if we go for GPI. We, we we have like a metric that coincides very nicely with some of the things that Pinker is all too willing to chalk up to like, you know, things that may be like somewhat explanatory factors. Like I do believe that he's correct when he says that newspapers, for example, are very um, incentivized to like report on bad news. I think this is true, right? Because mm-hmm. if you do report on good news, I mean, it doesn't really seem like news, does it? Um right. Uh, so that could be playing an impact on, you know, uh, people's thoughts, uh, how they, you know, process the world. But we also have, like, obviously, real material indicators that we could point to as well, right? And you can't just dismiss them at, 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 out of hand in that way. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if you have anything to say about that, but I, I have a lot to say also about his, like, in the same chapter on wealth when he starts talking about, you know, communism versus capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why don't we transition over to to that and um, yeah, feel free to to lead in and then we'll we'll start to go through the income inequality stuff and all right. Um, yeah, and I, I'd say income inequality is going to be the longest part since we have lots of like articles and back and forth to to deal with. But uh, yeah. just to stay with wealth for a little bit because this actually frames like a lot of the remainder. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, first of all, just to get this out of the way, uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to be defending communism, right. I'm not going to be defending, uh, more, you know, I'm not a Marxist, right. Uh, I, I'm perfectly fine with, you know, like I, it's not that I don't necessarily believe that long-term we can't be in a Marxist type environment, you know, let's say a span of centuries down the line or whatever. It's just that right now, you know, I don't want to get lost in all this like fucking theorizing, right? At a minimum, we need the the world to be on some kind of like social democratic model first, right? We Correct. need to, at, yeah. like, to use America as an example, like at, at a fucking minimum, we need universal healthcare, right? Before we even talk about like the, the fucking proletarian revolution or whatever that you want to get lost in because it's all an abstraction. It's all, mm-hmm. you know, cultishness right now. Uh, we need, you know, universal health care. We need to solve, you know, stagnating wages before like anything else happens. So um, I, I, I'm perfectly willing to just, you know, agitate for 
a macro social democratic model, you know, along like Sweden, Norway, whatever, for uh -huh. the entire world. I think that baseline ought to exist. You know, we need to like eliminate uh, homelessness. We need to eliminate poverty. Blah blah blah. Right. All, all, all that all that good stuff. So yeah. uh, this is not you know a defense of of uh, Marxism or anything. That said, I will also say the following before I uh, get into all these quotes. Um, I do not have, you know, philosophically any preferences for one criminal cartel over another. I am perfectly willing to say that Stalinism, Maoism, Leninism, it's a criminal cartel. Stalin yeah. was a was a was a criminal. I have no problem saying that. Mao is a criminal, no problem saying that. But that is simply one criminal cartel that serves as a kind of like, I call a faux counterweight because it doesn't really solve the problem that, you know, of what like America and other nations are doing, right? Uh -huh. I mean, what? So, you know, we, we answer American depravity abroad or slavery domestically with, with Stalinism, you know, internet, like it doesn't make any sense, right? So right. Uh, uh, ju just, you know, like philosophically speaking, I don't have any preferences, you know, between one criminal cartel and another. The only exception to this is the following, and this is like a very different statement, but uh, I'll make it. Um, I am happy to be the uh, beneficiary of the American criminal cartel. I'm happy that I'm able to be an American in the United States, being able to do what I do, live in a house, you know, in a situation where I probably won't get robbed, probably won't get killed, probably won't have to suffer in the way that other people suffer. But I have no illusions about the fact that for me to get all these benefits, they clearly have come historically at the expense of other people. Okay. So I can, on the one hand, be happy that I personally don't have to suffer, you know, the worst of what the world and history has to offer. But that's very different from saying that the American criminal cartel is so much better for the world and so much nicer and so much less savage than something like Stalinism or Maoism because fucking bullshit, I say, right? It's bullshit. It's simply not true. So getting that out of the way, um, I I'm just going to get into this is on page 90. Uh, Pinker starts talking about, you know, communism versus capitalism and, you know, like uh, methodologies uh, of wealth creation and so on. Uh, in 1976, Radelay writes, Mao single-handedly and dramatically changed the direction of global poverty with one simple act. He died. Though China's rise is not exclusively responsible for the great convergence, the country's sheer bulk is bound to move the totals around and the explanations for its progress apply elsewhere. The death of Mao Zedong is emblematic of three of the major causes of the great convergence. The first is the decline of communism together with intrusive socialism. For reasons we have seen, market economies can generate wealth prodigiously, while totalitarian plan economies impose scarcity, stagnation, and often famine. Market economies, in addition to reaping the benefits of specialization and providing incentives for people to produce things that other people want, solve the problem of coordinating the efforts of hundreds of millions of people by using prices to propagate information about the need and availability far and wide, a computational problem that no planner is brilliant enough to solve from a central bureau. A shift from collectivization, centralized control, government monopolies, and suffocating permit bureaucracies, what in India was called the license Raj, 
to open economies took place on a number of fronts beginning in the 80s. They include Deng Xiaoping's embrace of capitalism in China, the collapse of the Soviet Union and its domination of Eastern Europe, and the liberalization of the economies of India, Brazil, Vietnam, and other countries. So first of all, just like uh, as a quick comment, uh, I, I agree theoretically that there's definitely downsides to planned economies. I'm not like a planned economy proponent, right? Although I, I am very, very much in favor of tons more regulation and tons more, you know, federally mandated. Like when people say like, oh, you know, like conservatives always love to say like, oh, America needs to be run as a business. I don't think they get what they're talking about because the uh -huh. downsides of capital capitalist business is the fact that you have all these laws you need to obey. You have all these rules you need to follow. If America decides to uh, use a command economy in some regards, such as saying like, we will do a five-year plan where we produce like, you know, thousands of miles of like high-speed rail, guess what? You will have such a spike in GDP and such a return on investment that no business can do. You know why? Because it's the federal government that is mandating this and nobody could say no, right? Mm -hmm. Businesses are not able to function this way. So for anybody that says, let's run America as a business, be my fucking guest, but understand what this means. You need to leverage federal power in ways that businesses cannot, right? So I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. against that, right? Um, uh, but uh, he's also uh, very much underplaying like, okay, so he's going to talk about um, uh, in, in this uh, chapter, he talks about the fact that one of the Chinese five-year plans called the Great Leap Forward, I believe that was in the uh, early 60s. I think it was like late 50s into the into the 60s or something around that time period. Um, it's true that the Great, Great Leap Forward was a five-year plan that led to famine and that actually led to uh, uh, a, a, a downgrade in China's economy, right? They went backwards. They actually lost GDP. They lost productivity. Uh -huh. uh, and, 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 and that's and that's because like you know um uh, given you know that you have like a totalitarian state under Mao's China all the you know apparatchiks that are you know supposed to be you know hoarding for example grain that was like supposed to be one of the things in the great greatly forward um you're incentivized to like pretend like you have more grain than you do right because mm -hmm. if you don't right. well, what happens maybe you get executed or something killed, right? yeah. so, <laughs> so 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 of course like that's one of the downsides and you know as it turns out nobody had enough grain that was all a lie right so suddenly you had a famine um i get that but uh in this chapter like if you're going to be talking about command economies and you're going to isolate the great leap forward as proof positive of everything that you're saying well what about all the other five year plans are you really going to tell me that those other five year plans did not have just such dramatic effects on the economy that you know capitalism never can i mean even to to take it from you know capitalism uh, to take it from china to the ussr mm -hmm. uh my my great grandmother was born in uh, 1924 uh, a couple months before lenin died and uh the change that she experienced from 1924 to 1945, basically before the time that she, you know, like by the time that she was like 21 years old, it was just absolutely unbelievable. We went from a peasant society in Russia to a modern industrialized superpower. There is no capitalist society that can talk about that kind of change. It has never happened. It can't mm -hmm. happen. Of course, what happens in the process is you have to liquidate tons of people. 
Mm-hmm. You're going to get tons of famines. A lot of things like that happen. This is true. But again, we're talking about you know various value judgments. And Pinker, when he has his own niche in value judgment, what 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 is part of it? Well, American slavery is part of it, isn't it? Correct. Uh, the extermination of almost 10 million Native Americans is part of it. Yep. You had an additional unit of GDP in the United States, right? And that was slavery, right? Suddenly, oh my goodness, we have free labor, right? That's an additional mm-hmm. unit of GDP that otherwise would not have existed. That's definitely a head start, especially since you were later, for example, than Britain uh, in terms of uh, banning the slave trade, right? You have a head start in terms of being, you know, the top dog in terms of capitalist economies. So when he says things like, well, you know, uh, uh, communism poses totalitarianism, I mean, it does, like, there's no way of denying that, but it's not as if uh, capitalist nations, like, like, w- w- like, I feel like there's like this, like issue with uh, causation that that he hasn't truly wrapped his mind around, because he credits like all this good stuff to capitalism, which again, I'm not against doing that to some degree. But he doesn't seem to get that, well, what are the wealthiest and most well-to-do and happiest blah, blah, blah nations on the planet? They all seem to look like the nations that A, engage in slavery or some form of slavery, even if it's Mm -hmm. not explicitly slavery, B, engaged in extermination of their native populations for the sake of a Nietzschean let us use their corpses as fuel for something grander, which is our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, they engaged in land acquisition by war, which is illegal. I mean, like, first of all, you know, the United States, right? Like it, you know, like it's not, it's not as if, you know, America was, w- didn't have its own population. America is full of like mines and all these riches and all this, these wonderful natural resources, but these are not resources that innately belong to Americans, Right. right. They, they were being exploited by natives. Right. Um, and some were not, you know, being exploited at all. So just like most mines and so on and so forth. Um, but all of that had to be completely destroyed to make way for these wonderful American democracies that he's talking about. Mm-hmm. So and if, and, you know, if, if, if Steven Pinker wants to do this thing where he chooses to privilege ratios and per capita as opposed to absolute numbers. Well, what do we have? We have a population in China. Like, so for example, like if we eliminated 10 million Native Americans, right, uh, from the United States, that's 90% of natives that get exterminated. Well, Mm -hmm. if we're going to do this in terms of like a per capita basis, then extrapolate 90% of natives that we had to do to, that we had to kill to get to where we are today to, Forget like, you know, the Great Leaf Road or, or, or whatever. Imagine 90% of China's near 500 million population in 1949 being exterminated to get to where they are today, okay? Because nobody's mm-hmm. going to deny right now that China is doing poorly, but they didn't have to exterminate 90% of the people. People want to talk about Stalinism. Of course, it's vicious. Of course, Stalin is a fucking criminal. All that is true. Mass murderer. There's no reason for me to deny that. But- he didn't have to liquidate 90 million people. I mean, uh, 90% of his population to go right. from 1917 to 1945, right? That process of industrialization happened much, 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 much faster, right? And the liquidations, because they occurred in such a shorter time span, people want to pretend like that is the moral depravity. And yet 
There is no equal moral depravity that we could point to in our past. And this right. is the thing. This is what really gets me so much about Pinker. Like he wants to deny the reality of Nietzschean morality. He wants to deny that this is in fact how even enlightenment era and post enlightenment states and states that, you know, play, play lip service to the Enlightenment or even not just lip service actually believe in it. Um, They've they they've engaged in the same kind of Nietzsche morality, and I think there's this kind of motivated reasoning uh, with with Pinker where he tries to pretend like that's not actually happening, right? Mm -hmm. He wants to pretend that as he's typing away on his computer, right, on his laptop, making the next book, that that laptop was not made somewhere by fucking slave labor. Most recently, we had what like in the past week. Uh, there was a news story where they found 215 corpses of children in a Canadian school. And the reason why that was is these natives, right, the, the natives in Canada, uh, they were forced not only through like an extermination process, just like, you know, the United States had its own extermination process. But up until 1970, all these native kids they were forced into these schools where they were not allowed to speak their native languages. They were not allowed to worship, you know, their own religion, right? This is, this is an enlightenment era state, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and, you know, uh, that, is, but that is simply a fact of life. If, if you are a nation state that is founded on genocide, it stands to reason that even as we go into modernity, we're going to have these like knockoff trickle effects. So all these kids, like they were so, you know, obviously they were being disrespected. They weren't treated as human beings. Um, many of them were just outright killed, sexually molested. And here's a prime example. Now that's 205, uh, 215 dead kids. Before that, we had millions of natives in Canada that were exterminated. Pinker is standing, being a Canadian, he's standing on the skulls of all these fucking kids, of all these natives. And that's just a fact. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no point in denying that that's reality. When he writes his books and he, and, it, and it's a laptop made on, made by slave labor. Well, he's going to have to justify it in some way. And I'm sure that he does in his head. He says to himself, well, I get it, but a, I can't do much about it. B, I have to do what's right, which is if I can't stop, you know, this kind of, you know, constant oppression going on globally or in the past, like I can't resuscitate those corpses, right, that I'm standing upon for me to be, you know, a well-to-do Canadian, uh, at least I can write, you know, a great book that's going to maybe change the trajectory of the world. That's a Nietzschean mm -hmm. calculation. And guess what? I'm making the same calculation too. For mm -hmm. my family to do well in the city in Russia, well, we're actually from Belarus, but uh, for us to do well in the city in Belarus, how many people had to be fucking liquidated, you know, in the countryside, right? I'm not, you know, and I, but the thing is, I'm not denying that, right? Mm -hmm. There's no reason for me to deny that, right? I hate when I see things like white guilt and Nietzsche is the same way. Nietzsche, like there was no such thing as white guilt back then. But if you would see something like that, he would hate this kind of guilt because he would say, you can't fucking do anything about these corpses, you can't do anything about the past. You can't do anything about this death and destruction. You can't tell you can't tell someone where your laptop came from. The only thing you can do right now is you have to use the past and all the suffering as a fuel to move forward. China mm -hmm. did the same thing. Russia did the same thing. America is doing the same thing now. So I completely don't buy this like completely fucking asinine argument that there's 
one criminal cartel that we need to treat preferentially over another. So the way that he just like starts framing this argument, um, you know, like it, it just it just bothers me, right? And again, like you can't tell me that capitalism in, in Russia from 1917 to 1945 would have accomplished what in fact what what state kind of like capitalism or state socialism, whatever in between that you want to call it, uh, it would not have done the same thing. There's no way other than like I remember like when I first got into Marxism, one of the first books I read was Leon Trotsky's uh, "The State: the, the 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 Revolution Betrayed," and in the first chapter he goes into is a chapter titled "What Has Been Accomplished." He goes into all the things that happened up until it was written in 1936. So from 1917 to 1936, it just amazed me. Even back then, when I was a kid, like wow, like I didn't even think about all these changes that are just kind of it's just it's impossible for me to imagine them under a capitalist society, right? And again, like uh -huh. we don't have to say that Russian society, socialist society, communist society is what we need to emulate. But again. Don't make this, this disingenuous argument that that would have been possible under ordinary capitalism. Um, I'm not sure if you have anything to say about that, but I mean, there's more to say after. So maybe I've yeah. talked too long already. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's a lot of a lot of great points there. Um, just a couple quick interjections to make. You know, uh, number one, and, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit, but you know, obviously, modern China is is also very got to be a very frustrating thorn in the side for for typical mm -hmm. neoliberal capitalists i mean they have accelerated you know their their economy in the present day with yes um you know globalization interconnectivity open trade they, they've liberalized their economy in a number of ways but it is still uh there there's a strong element of central planning there's strong cohesion there's um you know one of the things that piero scarufi has talked about because he wrote an extremely long piece on on China's economic miracle, you know, over the past, um, let's say, thirty to fifty years, and uh, and talking about the continuity of planning that they have executed to go from where they were to where they are today, to where they will continue to go, and that they do not fritter about with the same bullshit culture wars, the same hey, every four to eight years there's going to be a leadership change that's not mm -hmm. that that's really not that big. In reality, but will made be made to look really big with a lot of, you know, hand wringing and fanfare between Democrats and Republicans, and who has control, and then a lot of stalemating. Um, and and so again, you know, that that's just a, one modern example of uh, of something that's, a, a, you know, one hybrid. Uh, you mentioned the the Nordic nation hybrids, you know, with with social democracy and how much better that has worked for the citizens of those countries. Um, and, and this is the direction that, you know, that you and I agree we would need to move in the near term to make some, uh, some longer term, even larger transitions. But, um, but besides that, I, I, again, in watching these videos with uh, Dan and Carl Weiderquist, it was interesting. Uh, Dan made another comment, like to your point about what can be done with, with those central planning and, and that, you know, being one kind of criminal cartel, but the lightning speed with which it can move. And Dan made the point about also, you know, like rabid rampant capitalists who j just like lose complete sight of the totality of the infrastructure around them that they need to build any capitalistic thing. And he used the example of Jeff Bezos. He's like, well, it doesn't matter how rich Bezos gets. Let's say he's worth $200 billion today. And if he hadn't gotten divorced, it would be double that. So $350, $400 billion, whatever. doesn't matter. There is no way 
in which he personally could ever combine enough resources mm-hmm. to build his company. He yeah. needed every piece, in, you know, throughout history and the trajectory of America and all of these other things in place to then, you know, go be the ant that climbs to the very top of that anthill, but wants to, to act as though, you know, is only mm-hmm. by his own doing. I mean, and that's just the case over and over and over again. It doesn't matter what example you pick. He's, you know, probably the, the most extreme today. Um, but that's also so true. And, uh, so I don't know, there's, there's a couple little ancillary points that come to mind off, off the back of what you said there, but, um, anyway, yeah, let's, let's keep moving. Um, yeah. And yeah, just, just to go like, uh, further, um, so going on, like, this is the, the paragraph immediately after, um, I, I, I found this also like very telling. Okay. So Though intellectuals are apt to do a spit take when they read a defense of capitalism, its economic benefits are so obvious that they don't need to be shown with numbers. They can literally be seen from space. A satellite photograph of Korea showing the capitalist South aglow in light and the communist North a pit of darkness vividly illustrates the contrast in the wealth generating capability between the two economic systems holding geography, history, and culture constant. This is such an incredible fucking statement. Like, what do you mean by holding history constant? Like, mm-hmm. are, are we not aware of the fact that Korea was built up essentially by the United States as a bulwark against the communist China, China. right? Yeah. Like, 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 Korea got billions and billions and billions in food support and military aid and, you know, essentially like welfare statism, like they got so much to be built up. So what we had essentially was we had the equivalent of, you know, imagine some capitalist state somewhere finding a smaller state and saying, we're going to now, you know, by way of this, you know, uh, uh, Marshall Plan, allow you to under undertake your own five-year plans with this money that's just coming out of the ether, and in exchange, right, you're going to serve us, you know, as a kind of like you know client security state. Now, yeah. listen, you know, I love Korea. I visit Korea. It's one of my favorite places to be. But the fact is, it did not get to the way that it did merely because it just embraced markets and the communist mm-hmm. north didn't that's not what happened right mm-hmm. um and you know like that 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 that's you know that's uh uh you know and and also like other examples that that he uh cites like for example taiwan right i mean ta- taiwan isn't like what like what is with all these like american fucking like client states like so mm-hmm. ta- so like ta- so taiwan you know so like a- after uh the Kuomintang uh d- realized that it's going to lose and it's like civil war against uh, uh, Mao. Um, you know, they uh, these uh, these uh, mainlanders they were called, right? These like immigrants. They you know flee from uh, China to Taiwan, right? They flee to uh, Taipei, and uh, alongside, like, what do they bring them? Okay, so first you have like about two million soldiers um and refugees like that's not like when you think of like in terms of immigrants, it's not the ideal like immigrant makeup. Right. In terms of like, you know, when you're bringing in refugees, that's like very, very indiscriminate. You're going to get people that are wealthy, people that are not wealthy. You're going to get people that are 
educated people that are not educated. But the fact is you have, you know, a soldier class, which was, you know, gainfully employed for a while. Um, you have tons of intellectuals, right? Tons of the leadership are making their way there. And what are they bringing with them? They're bringing with them tons and tons of Chinese gold reserves and other assets into Taipei. And not only now do they suddenly have like, you know, uh, these like newfound riches, but America also is giving them billions of dollars in food aid, military aid. And uh, Taiwan, although this is not a communist society, right? They're supposed to be anti-communist. What do they do? They embark on their own literal five-year plans. They have five-year plan after five-year plan after five-year plan. Okay. This is this this is capital. It has to be capitalism because, of course, um, you know, this is under the rubric of the United States, but this is still, you know, a quasi-planned economy. And mm-hmm. again, you know, like to, to me, I, I I would much prefer something like that early Taiwan model. You could keep your fucking capitalism. I don't really care about that. Uh, but you know, th- this kind of you know, it, it, but it's so disingenuous to compare, you know, something like the United States uh, and all these other like you know democratic you know uh, capitalist countries to um, you know China, North Korea without like like he, he's saying like holding history constant. Like, what do you mean holding history constant? Right. Right. There's been a break in that history in the Korean War. Like there's no holding a constant. Everything after that and everything before that. That's a that's a that's a serious thing that you have to consider. And again, yeah. um, you know, again, it, it's not that you have to then be, you know, an apparatchik and a partisan for communism, especially not for like, you know, Stalinism or, you know, uh, North Korean uh, communism. You don't have to do that. But I don't get why in this book. When he's talking about the Great Leap Forward or whatever, why is this not part of the discussion? It, it seems to me that it's extraordinarily incomplete and disingenuous, right? Um, and, 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 to, and to not, and also like we're going to get into colonialism soon, like to not even discuss colonialism and sla- like to him, like no slavery, is, no, yeah, yeah. Sla- slavery is just this abstraction that is allowed to like you know wither away because Enlightenment ideals you know shine this like fucking light you know onto slavery and now it has to wither when in fact like all these things that you claim to love and all these positives like they were built on the backs of millions of people. Right? That's there's no way to escape that logic. Right? And you know like you know and that's the thing like. Uh, because like slavery is no longer tolerated, China can't do fucking like slavery. What, so what did it do ins- instead? It did five-year plans instead. It forced peasants to do whatever uh, it is that they wanted them to do in the five-year plans. Um, you know, in the nineties, they still had the Lao guy uh, labor camps were eventually kind of, you know, dismantled, right? That was their form of, form of slavery, right? It's not American style slavery, but they're just playing catch up with the West. And what does that entail? Yeah. That means in 50 years, we need to do all the carnage that America did and all these other states did in less time. And mm-hmm. I would argue that, you know, because of the you know nature of, of change and you know compassion and all these other things that Pinker rightfully cites in his book, um, China was able to do it in a way that was probably more compassionate than mass genocide, right? Like they're you know they're they're opening up you know new labor camps now to make slaves out of Uyghurs, but yeah. Uyghur slavery is, and I'm sure Pinker would agree, Uyghur slavery is nowhere near American slavery. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we have benefited from that, right, it's not so much that I want to say China should be allowed to deceive. Obviously, they shouldn't be. But 
my problem is not so much whether or not they should be allowed. Cause again, the answer is no, you shouldn't be. Uh, my problem is with this fucking like moralizing tone, right? That yeah. Nietzsche again, Nietzsche would say this is bullshit, right? Like what, like, like what right do you have to moralize over this shit? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, like why, yeah. why can't you be like us? I mean, come on, give me a break. Yeah. So, well, and, and I think we're probably about to start transitioning more into the end and coming equality stuff and colonialism and slavery, but just on a final idea real quick, that's popping up on that point is we talked earlier about coercion and the, the, the need presently for, uh, th- you know, through hopefully it no, should be nonviolent means, but, but still, you know, taxation, social programs, whatever coercion of those in power to give up more of their advantages to help out more people. I mean, in the United States, in the 19th century, this is what we ended up with via a civil war. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah. we, we have the, the American South that wants so desperately to hang on to this institution of free slave labor to benefit themselves and their protected interests economically, that they are willing to take up arms and potentially form a new nation to maintain mm-hmm. it. Now, exactly. Pinker would, you know, Pinker would probably make, uh, you know, an argument uh, to the effect that, well, the leaders of the South and and everything else in America had uh, had lost the had lost the narrative there on Enlightenment values, right? Uh, but you can't hide from the fact that this is not very long after the Declaration of Independence and America winning its, you know, its Revolutionary War. It's founded on all these principles and you have the founding fathers with slaves in their home. You have a continuation of that pattern down into the South and it's, it's allowed to thrive. It's allowed to be part of what launches our, you know, our nation into its present state as one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest in the world. And it takes an awfully long time for anybody to really uh, bat an eyelash, let alone then take up arms to, uh, you know, to, to try to counteract it. So, um, yeah, I mean, to your point, it's just, it, 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 it's very silly to pretend that the, the bloodbath doesn't extend every single direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no matter what kind of system it's operating under the, 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 the patterns and the underlying, uh, you know, unfortunately mass graves and layers of bodies are, are there propping it all up. It doesn't matter which way you want to cut across it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, yeah. So let, let, let's do this transition to uh, inequality, right? Uh, maybe, maybe yeah. you want to, uh, I don't know if you have any quotes that you want to pull out, but I mean, he, he, like he, he does begin with like a lot of um, just kind of like, you know, just, just justifications for inequality, right? This is like, like ironically enough, like the most philosophical part, of the text is is the part that starts with income inequality, right? Yeah. Um, the um, crazy let, part. Me, let me see. Let me see. Let me see. Yeah, get into inequality. I mean, I highlighted quite a few different things from this chapter. I mean, also um, just like at the very beginning, like it just like starts with the you know with the justifications, I guess, that we could get into. Um, yeah, you're, you're saying right at the beginning on page 97 with the, but is it all going to the rich? And yeah, then um, you know, economic inequality has long been a signature issue of the left. 
and it rose in prominence after the Great Recession began. Oh, actually, on page ninety-eight, uh, after that little um, uh, section break, he has oh, okay. like the, he has like the more kind of philosophical. So, like, yeah. So the, the, he starts the the chapter by posing this question of inequality, right? He quotes Barack Obama, who says that income inequality is, you know, the the biggest problem of our day, or one of the biggest problems. Um, and now he kind of like starts to wax philosophical about this question, whether or not it's really the problem that it's made out to be. Yeah, I gotcha, gotcha. So, um, yeah, he gives the example you did earlier about the neighbor who, you know, wants his other neighbor's goat to die. And so now yeah. uh, Pinker says on 98, the point of the joke, of course, is that the two peasants have become more equal, but neither is better off aside from Igor's indulging his spiteful envy. The point is made with greater nuance by the philosopher Harry Frankfurt in his 2015 book on inequality. Frankfurt argues that, argues that inequality itself is not morally objectionable. What is objectionable is poverty in italics. If a person lives a long, healthy, pleasurable, and stimulating life, then how much money the Joneses earn, how big their house is, and how many cars they drive are morally irrelevant. Frankfurt writes, from the point of view of morality, it is not important everyone should have the same. What is morally important is that everyone or each should have enough. Indeed, a narrow focus on economic inequality can be destructive if it distracts us into killing Boris's goat instead of figuring out how Igor can get one. The confusion of inequality with poverty comes straight out of the lump fallacy, the mindset in which wealth is a finite resource like an antelope carcass, which has to be divided up in zero-sum fashion, so that if some people end up with more, others must have less. As we just saw, wealth is not like that. Since the Industrial Revolution, it has expanded exponentially. That means that when the rich get richer, the poor can get richer too. I had to uh, fight an urge to laugh there for a second. Even experts repeat the lump fallacy, presumably out of rhetorical zeal rather than conceptual confusion. Thomas Piketty, whose 2014 bestseller Capital in the 21st Century became a talisman in the uproar over inequality wrote, the poorer half of the population are as poor today as they were in the past, with barely 5% of total wealth in 2010, just as in 1910. But total wealth today is vastly greater than it was in 1910. So if the poorer half own the same proportion, they are far richer, not, quote, as poor. Uh, Lastly, I'll just read, read this. Yeah. A more damaging consequence of the lump fallacy is the belief that if some people get richer, they must have stolen more than their share from everyone else. <laughs> Um, and then he goes on to talk about J.K. Rowling as an example of a wealth creator. And though she got, you know, hundreds of billions of, or hundreds of millions of dollars from Harry Potter, like everyone wanted it. So, you know, more, more power to her, et cetera. But um, yeah. It's, uh, and, and I mean, like the rest just goes like goes on about like, you know, uh, the spirit level theory, uh, the fickle effects of inequality and well-being brings up another common confusion in these discussions conflation of inequality with unfairness like it's really like it, it, like i was a little bit disturbed here how just he 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 like he spends more time philosophically on inequality than he does like trying to get nietzsche right who's a fucking philosopher or that they or that mm -hmm, he spends mm -hmm. trying to get the enlightenment right Right, which is not only a philosophy, you know, like a, a sub study of like philosophy more broadly, but also the entire frame for this book, right? Which is just kind of crazy. And yeah. again, um, you know, like I, I, I found, I found this kind of a, a thing, uh, you know, very uh, uh, telling, right? And you know, later on, he just has like a bunch of graphs, um, you know, about income inequality, sort of, you know, uh, going down. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, except for the, the very interesting graph on 106 where he shows England and UK, right? Mm -hmm. And and how, uh, you know, they were going up and up and up, and then they had a spike downward, mm -hmm. and now they've been going back up yeah. since 1950, right? So and just, uh, just to show that, right? One yeah. line is uh, the United States, the black one, and then the gray one is the UK. And you, I'm sure you get the same kind of trend everywhere, right? We had massive uh, inequality during the uh, medieval era. Um, then, you know, uh, we in the past century, it, it dropped. But now, like going back, like again, why is it that this magical time, 60s, 70s, why does that seem to be such a kind of odd turning point, right? Where people are still, you know, they're not becoming happier, right the uh, uh gpi index is not um you know is not is not keeping pace with gdp uh you know what wh why is it that you know media at that time starts to kind of you know coalesce into this kind of you know liberal sphere where it's just kind of lots and lots of you know you know status quo propagation um and you know a, a lot of the stuff like he needs to uh you know he he, he should have answered but but he doesn't um but you know, it, it, instead of like uh, dealing with the book itself, there's actually um, this kind of summary, I guess. Um, of I'm not sure if, if you want to do it, but there's that that Vox article uh, on on uh, global poverty. Right? I remember when like you know Bill Gates tweeted out a chart that um, Pinker uses in the book to deal with inequality. This yeah. creates this whole. I'm not sure if you want to tackle that yourself, or if you want me to read it. Um, hold on one second. I got to pull it up anyway. I, just as you were making some further comments there, I was scanning through the rest of that chapter after the US-UK uh, graph. I mean, Pinker does talk for a minute in here about how social spending has increased and that mm -hmm. it, it's better than it used to be, which which again is one of those things that seems kind of like undeniably true. He talks yes. about past, past societies spending essentially nothing. Um, but, you know, th this another area where at least I don't immediately see it here. Um, does he talk about proportionality though? The correlation between social spending and social well-being holds only up to a point. The curve levels off starting around 25% and may even drop off at higher proportions. Social spending, like everything has downsides. Um, so, you know, there, there's still some hedging of that bet. There's not a whole lot of talk about, you know, the proportionality uh, you know, if, if we have a graph that looks like that one we showed earlier with an, mm -hmm. a vertical spike up, um, yes, okay, maybe social spending has increased, but, you know, proportionality is still really important and, and that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Um, um, and, and also, like, again, going back to the magic of the 60s and 70s, uh, I'm not sure if, like, social spending is necessarily smaller than it was, but we've definitely had a kind of tapering off in the sense that, you know, the, the massive expansions of the social safety net, like everything that we could talk about in the 20th century, you know, that was from FDR to Nixon, right? And and uh -huh. after that uh -huh. point, due to the nature of like, you know, the new tax demands, uh, corporations uh, could no longer like find places to dump their goods on. Uh, the new way to be competitive is to just like pay as few taxes as possible. The right. second you start, you know, like uh, eliminating... Um, 
uh, uh, taxes, right? You're going to get fewer and fewer programs. I mean, even like, you know, with Biden's like most recent, like I, I've just been seeing more and more like annoying headlines the last few days about like Biden's like, you know, massive, like, you know, social spending plan, the social spending plan that they're fucking talking about it is tax cuts. Okay. It's always yeah. tax cuts. They can't generate new programs because that requires tax increases that a corporations and the corporate donors do not allow uh, uh, taxes to go up because they don't want to pay those taxes. Correct. Um, and you know, like, and also, you know, going back to this, like the, the philosophical, before we even get to the data, like philosophically, when he says that, you know, income inequality, uh, uh, isn't necessarily, you know, a, a key component of well being. Well, I guess in an abstract sense, no, but again, it's like this thing that he always does where he tries to divorce, you know, uh, 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 reality from reality right by like you know doing this like smoke screen of abstractions like i guess yeah. you could sort of make some of those philosophical arguments but the way that power works is if you have some people that have a lot and some people that have less even if they're not impoverished let's say that we could get everybody out of poverty you're still going to have a situation where the people with the most property the people with the most goods are the people with the most power they are going to be the ones that write the laws right yeah. um you know, again, going back to Epstein, if Epstein was just some sort of like random shit kicker, he can't get away with a, you know, multi-decade child sex ring, right? But Epstein can, right? And that that goes for, you know, absolutely anything, right? The richer that you are, the set of rules are different. Like one, one uh, quote that I love is, um, if you could pay a fine, you know, to make something go away, it's actually not illegal to engage in that action, right? Because uh -huh. if you're a, a rich person and uh, in exchange for like dumping mercury into like a river somewhere, all you have to do is pay like, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollars, That then it's legal, right? Then, then the cost becomes, well, is the fine, right? Worth me doing this action? Because if I can make a million dollars off of this thing that costs a hundred thousand, well, fuck yeah. Imagine that kind of, imagine being, imagine being an investor, where you could do a 10x, like literally, yeah. like you know, overnight, like guaranteed, right? So yeah. you know, it's it's, well, it's, it's and, and and I don't I don't know this to be true, but let's uh, let's take a at least a 50-50 shot that that one hundred thousand dollar fine in America could pro probably also be a corporate tax write off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So I mean, it's just yeah. yeah, it's so it's so brutal. But uh, but yeah, the the. To your point, the whole like let's pull out a you know another quote that justifies like well you know people don't really care about inequality as long as they've got enough. Well, yeah, they still fucking do. And when when the gap is as enormous as it is, right? And this Vox article we're about to look at you know where we have um, the tete a tete between Bill Gates and Pinker and then Jason Hickel and some others, where it's like you know. The, we, we can't even apparently agree on, you know, what constitutes extreme poverty these days, mm -hmm. first of all. And, you know, trying to have people acknowledge that, like, we need to raise that line even to $7.40 per day, mm -hmm. like Hickel advocates for. And it just seems like to most that, you know, in, in, in the rich countries and the rich people in those rich countries, that's just too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's just too much to ask for. I mean, look at these yeah. other data points that show that people used to live on a buck a day. Their income's gone up a hundred percent. Now they live on two bucks a day. Too much, too much avocado toast, right? In the global I mean, south. Yeah, um, it, it's it's just absurd. It's just yeah. absurd, you know. So yeah, um, you want to pivot over to this Vox article? Yeah, and, just one more thing. You, you said you know, like you know, well, people do care about in income inequality. I mean, even if you can make the argument that 
people don't assuming that they have enough otherwise. Well, it's true that in that regard, they might not care about income inequality as an abstraction, but what do they still care about? Do they care about that the super rich are the ones that ends up writing the laws? Yes. Well, that mm-hmm. that's an effect of income inequality, right? So, you know, yeah. like it's it's just another kind of like a bit of a disingenuous tactic. I mean, who gives a shit if like people in the abstract don't care about this thing itself when all the effects of it, right, that people absolutely do hate, they exist, right? And that's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about inequality as an abstraction, right? And, and a Pinker goes out of his way to, you know, do this like multi, multi-page philosophical justification because these are the actual questions that you have to answer. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and when we're talking about the, you know, which we'll probably discuss at more length here in just a few minutes as we go through these articles, like when you're talking about that exact thing, which is another piece um, that Carl Weiderquist talks about a lot in those conversations with Dan is um, the, 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 the insider nature of the way that the world is run and, you know, with legislation and um, our justice system and whatever else, mm-hmm. you know, you, you end up with um, so many efficiencies, so many kickbacks, so many bribes, so many lobbying, uh, you know, interests lobbied for, and then, uh, you know, agreed to and so on. And when you have that massive disparity and, you know, select few people able to control what goes on, uh, you know, one of the biggest frustrations to me when we look at all of these arguments, whether it's about universal health care for, you know, anybody who lives in the United States, a rich developed nation, uh, or these bigger ticket problems for billions of people in impoverished areas of the world, all of the money that could be used, apparently, according to Hickel's data here, to solve that is sitting in offshore bank accounts mm-hmm. run by the rich many times over, right? I mean, yeah. I think in, in the uh, Google, the talks at Google, which is, of course, ironic that he did that talk at Google and uh, and was talking about these issues. But when he brings up that I think his number was $6 trillion or so, mm-hmm. you know, could solve the, the at least hit the, the $7.40 a day bogey uh, that he's talking about. And there's approximately 30 to 35 billion offshored in the Cayman Islands, Bermuda, Switzerland, wherever else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's 5x. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's so appalling and it's so galling. Yeah. And, uh, and this is why we say, you know, obviously knowledge is not the problem. Yeah. You and, and I and, sitting and, here yeah. who, are, who have no positions in government, no real, you know, sway over anything yeah. other than our vote and maybe some public commentary here. We know this. And yeah. everybody who could make something happen with it knows it and nothing happens with it. So anyway, yeah. so uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Go- going back to the idea that, you know, income inequality, like there's no one to blame. Th- there is bullshit, right? <laughs> there of course, is. there's someone to blame, right? Yeah. You know, uh, unless you want to make the argument that, well, they're not actually doing it. It's just in that, well, you know, the inaction is, is a choice, right? All these are choices, right? And it's this, you know, it's this thing where like, you know, he, he uses the enlightenment ideals as this, you know, thing that's like stripped of agency and it kind of, you know, spreads elsewhere where like other things are stripped of agency, right? Like nobody can be blamed, right? And and it gets like conflated with like witchcraft and shit, right? You know, or like, you know, the scapegoating, you know, like, oh, you want to blame the rich, right? Well, why why don't you go scapegoat the Jews, huh? You want to know the Holocaust? Right. It's like this, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's very kind of, and you know, like, I, I'm not sure to what degree Pinker understands this or not, but it's shocking that he doesn't. Yeah. Um, do you want me to screen share yeah, this just, article? Uh, yeah, just let's do that. Okay. 
All right. Is it there? There we go. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, what do you want me to do? Just just kind of read through. Yeah. Let's let's comment. just let's just read out whatever. If you want to like comment, jump in, whatever. Let's just comment as we go. Okay. Yeah. So this is from Vox uh, a couple years ago. Bill Gates tweeted out a chart and sparked a uh, sparked a huge debate about global poverty. Has global poverty declined dramatically? That might seem like a straightforward question to answer, but it's become the topic of fierce debate among development wonks, economists, and scholars. The dispute all began with this chart, world population living in extreme poverty, 1820 to 2015. So as we've been talking about, similar to all these other charts, you know, there's just this dramatic drop off where uh, we used to have about 90%. Today it hovers around 10, according to this World Bank data. Um, and it's from, again, Our World in Data, where most of Pinker's stuff comes from. Produced by Our World in Data, a Gates Foundation-funded nonprofit website led by economist Max Roser that highlights long-term trends in human living standards, the chart depicts the extreme poverty rate, measured as a share of humanity living on $1.90 a day or less, plummeting from 94.4% in 1820 to 9.6% by 2015. As Roser is quick to note, it's not his chart. It's similar to charts many economists working on poverty have produced, such as one in Georgetown professor Martin Ravallion's book, The, Econom the Economics of Poverty. The chart tells the story of massive global progress, a story I've promoted in my writing as well. But after Bill Gates tweeted the chart and others from Our World and Data, so this was like the infamous tweet with I mean, this is a lot of Pinker's book right here, <laughs> right? Uh, the world has 100 people over the two centuries and what proportion of them are benefiting from good things like basic education and getting out of bad things like extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. um, anthropologist Jason Hickel stood up to say not so fast. In a Guardian article titled, Bill Gates says poverty is decreasing, he couldn't be more wrong, Hickel raises a variety of, of objections to the chart. The $1.90 a day line is obscenely low. And earning $2 per day doesn't mean that you're somehow suddenly free of extreme poverty. A minimum of $7.40 per day at least is necessary for basic nutrition and normal human life expectancy. That right there seems kind of inarguable, right? Mm -hmm. You yeah. already talked about. And by, and, and, and by the way, many of the uh, same people that, for example, our world in data, they also advocate for a higher, um, you know, uh, 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 like dollar per day, right? I, I think like some of them are 740. I think Roser, I think maybe he even says something like 10. I don't, I'm not 100% mm -hmm. sure, but you know, uh, people know that dollar 90 is, is, you know, bullshit in that regard. Yeah, that, that is, that does seem to be, you know, pretty widely acknowledged now. Um, using the percentage of people in poverty is misleading, as we should instead focus on the absolute number of people in poverty, which according to Hickel's preferred 740 a day line has increased since 1981. All the numbers before 81, when the World Bank began collecting detailed survey data on poverty are illegitimate. Anything before that is extremely sketchy and to go back as far as 1820 is meaningless. Roser draws on a data set that was never intended to describe poverty, but rather inequality in the distribution of world GDP and that for only a limited range of countries. The chart erases the toll of colonialism, particularly in the 1820 to 1981 period. The world went from a situation where most of humanity had no need of money at all to one where today most of humanity struggles to survive on extremely small amounts of money, Pickle writes. The graph casts this as a decline in poverty, but in reality, what was going on was a process of dispossession that bulldozed people into the capitalist labor system, 
during the enclosure movements in Europe and the colonization of the global south. Related to point four, it's not clear that going from a pre-monetary society to a monetary society, even if that monetary society is cutting monetary poverty at a rapid rate, represents an improvement in living standards, especially when that transition happened in large part due to violence and coercion by Western powers. And six, virtually all the reduction in extreme poverty occurred in China, which relied on extensive state support for industry and exports. It is disingenuous then for the likes of Gates and Pinker to claim these gains as victories for Washington consensus neoliberalism, Hickel writes. A wide ranging back and forth ensued with Harvard psychologist and firm believer in a global progress narrative, Pinker responding to Hickel, Hickel firing back, Joe Hassel and Roser at Our World and Data defending their methodology, Hickel redoubling his critique of it, and Bronco Milanovic, a CUNY, a City University of New York economist and arguably the Dean of Global Inequality Studies weighing in as well. By the way, do you, um, want, to do you want to comment on those like, cause uh, Hickel presents like, well, it's like six points or so uh, up. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, uh, do you have anything comment on, on his objection to like the income inequality data that Pinker is presenting and that Bill Gates tweeted? Yeah, I, 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 he seems to me to be pretty spot on with this in terms of, you know, if, if we use 740 a day, then global poverty has actually increased in his, um, his talk that he gave that you sent me the link to. Uh, he uses the, you know, a couple graphs to show that basically there's like a very slight hump where it increased and now has been decreasing again slightly, but it's been about stable. And he uses multiple charts that do exclude China. And if you do that, right, then, then again, mm. the number has been basically stagnant uh, using mm. these more, more realistic numbers for what it would take for someone to, uh, to be able to live an even somewhat decent life. Um, the, the one thing that stood out to me is, and I don't know if you have comments on this, I don't think I've formulated an actual you know, deep opinion about it, but um, he's saying you know, it's not clear that going from a pre-monetary society to a monetary society represents an improvement in living standards. And I think he comments more thoroughly in a couple of his other articles about mm -hmm. you know, this, this capitalist system was imposed on, on people, especially through colonialism, um, and maybe they were you know, better off before that. And, and, and so maybe that's the case. I, I, I guess I feel like, though, today, you know, in, in, in the sense that if you want to participate in some of these gains, some of this progress that's been made, you do probably need a central government that's going to have a central bank that's going to link mm -hmm. up your economy to the modern monetary economy. You know, yeah. I, I think it might be a kind of hard to argue that, you know, if, if you can't live on 740 a day, then cut yourself off completely from, you know, from modern society and just continue to live as like a hyper-localized agrarian society. Um, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to think about that more and do more research on it. I don't yeah. know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah. I, if you scroll up just a little bit uh, to the first point. Um, yeah. So j just to like uh, uh, talk about this a little more. So the first point, uh, he says $1.90 a day line is obscenely low. It should be 740 And if you switch it to $740, um, uh, uh, the the absolute number of, of people in poverty actually increases right since since the, this time now again this is just kind of like a a reiteration of what i said earlier pinker when he uh, uh like so pinker you know objected uh to uh, uh hinkle here and H pinker's objection to this framing is well 
fine. This is true that if, if you look at absolute terms, this is true, but uh, the share, right? Uh, uh, no matter where you put off the, the, the cutoff, right? That share is decreasing simply because everybody's going up. So just by a little bit, even if it's only a little bit, that share is decreasing. And my objection to Pinker's objection here would be, again, this may be true, the share is decreasing, but in a book about enlightenment, in a book about humanism, you need to accurately and seriously deal with the fact that if you do choose something like 740 per day, um, the mass of human suffering in that regard is unprecedented. Maybe unprecedented is too strong a word, but generally speaking, I don't think the word unprecedented is too bad, right? Maybe mm -hmm. you could choose a slightly different word, but the basic idea would be correct, right? That the 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 the, the sheer number, right, uh, of people that are rational and could be living normal, decent lives could actually be contributing something to the world. They, in that Nietzschean sense. Are the sacrifice right so mm -hmm. that is simply you know a value that that you know pinker chose he chose the long-term tra trajectory which from a nietzschean sense it does make sense right he, to him the trajectory it's this abstract outer thing that is somehow great right and wonderful and conceptually rich and is pointing to something right and that arrow exists whether or not we have masses and masses of people that in unprecedented fashion are suffering. But again, let's be clear, that is a Nietzschean argument. And if Pinker is making it, fine, but please own that argument and don't try to like backstab Nietzsche after you literally verbatim take his argument and put it into your mouth. Um, yeah. So that's the first part. The second part, so you asked like, you know, you're not, you're not so sure about, um, you know, like, so, so like what exactly happens in this transition from you know, pre-colonial to a, a, a post-colonial society. And, uh, I, you know, I think there's a mix of truth truth here. Uh, you know, uh, uh, on the one hand, um, it is true that, you know, pre-colonial societies, many of them, uh, or not many of them, most of them actually, you know, th they do deal with like cyclical famines, right? You will have mm -hmm. situations where you could have a perfectly, you know, happy, content village. Maybe it's like one of the, one of the more peaceful areas in the world. They don't even have to suffer war or anything like that. But very often in history, what we found is uh, uh, there is suddenly, you know, some famine somewhere. And, you know, before you know it, like literally a village or many villages, they just disappear, Right. When you think of something even, you know, like not even like, you know, pre-colonial, but like, you know, something like, you know, the the Irish potato famine. Right. Mm -hmm. Or when you think of like, you know, famines uh, just just in general. Right. I mean, um, you know, th there is a serious amount of suffering in pre-colonial societies. Now, this suffering isn't always distributed in the same way. Some people could play, I'm not sure if it's fair to say like a kind of Russian roulette. Maybe most people don't necessarily have to suffer in this way, but there are going to be winners winners, and there are going to be losers here. And when you do have losers in a pre-colonial society, it is awful, right? It is a, a, an awful scenario that they're in. It's not necessarily all that better than, um, you know, like a, a post-colonial or, or an in, in the colony, colonial reality. Uh, but the second part is, you know, um, this could be a bit anecdotal, I guess. I don't know how you would necessarily quantify that, but there's been like tons of interviews with like people that have been like on this kind of transition, people that have been forced 
off of their land into like someone else's plantation, right? Some other country's plantation. Um, and they would say like, listen, like, you know, it might've been a hard life, but I was able to respect myself. I was able to have a family. We maybe were not rich, but we still had everything, right? So the question is, is like, you know, uh, is this like pre, like pre-agrarian society and 740 a day? Uh, like, it, like, does that 740 actually capture like the reality? Like, I mean, you know, like if you're able to, for example, you know, routinely catch an antelope or something or some other wild beast, right? Is that 740? Like how, how much does that cost? How much does having your own land cost? How, what about the fact that you, you don't have to get up and work on someone else's land for someone else? Like, can you put a price on that? So it's hard to quantify some of these things, but uh, I think it's telling that, you know, no matter where you fall on this question, like which is better, um, I think in a book like Pinker's, the fact that this is not addressed at all, that this is not treated as a confounding factor, confounding variable, uh, uh, the fact that it, it just doesn't make it in, that is telling. And that is because, you know, when we get specifically into colonialism, like we'll, we'll, we'll see, like Pinker needs to ignore this for, you know, maybe not for the entire thesis to be true. Cause again, I accept the thesis, but for large chunks of it to continue to make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and two other points I would make, and then we can keep moving through this is, um, first of all, one of the things that, that Hickel comments on, uh, in his talks and, and maybe one or two of his articles is, and I would think that Pinker would have to agree with this if he's going to hold to, his main thesis here in the book is it's not even so much that the problem still exists or that things have gotten a little bit better for these people at the bottom. What is abysmal is our ability to solve the problem and our refusal to do so. Right. And today, because of the explosion in worldwide GDP, however, that came about, we already talked about it at length. Right. And a lot of it is, is ugly and brutal. But here we are today, and this is the situation. But there is the capacity to solve these problems on a global scale and a tacit refusal to do so by the people who can make it happen. That seems as counter to any Enlightenment ideal as one could imagine. Yeah. Right? If, exactly. If, if, you're, if you're truly holding to these ideals, you would see, you, if you just, um, it's such a helpful exercise, I think, for a lot of things in life. But like, if you just were to, go ahead and exclude all the reasons why it exists and say one day I'm walking around and I happen upon a treasure trove of $32 trillion and you don't ask why it's there and where it came from. And then you, you just know it's available and there's problems that could be solved for a few trillion or maybe 10 trillion mm -hmm. that would help out most of the world you it would be very anti-enlightenment to not go ahead and then solve that problem well yeah. it turns out there is a treasure trove of 30 trillion dollars of available yeah. money turns out that we know the mechanisms by which we could you know we could go ahead and solve these problems and hickel talks a fair amount about you know the 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 salve for the the developed world's conscience is charity work and what he calls the de the development uh industry Right, you know, be be a graduate from an Ivy League school, but go dig some wells in Africa and feel better about it. But then come back to your investment banking job next week, right? Mm -hmm. Like, 
the, this kind of stuff that when you look at the amount of charitable money that goes versus the resource extraction and the benefit economically that flows the other direction, it's enormously imbalanced. I think that probably comes up later in this article. So that's one thing. It's like, we have the capacity to solve the problem. We continue to refuse to do it. We've had the capacity for a long time. It's yet again, greater than it's ever been today, but we've had it for a while. We haven't done it. Mm -hmm. Number two, just to come back real quick to that whole, you know, participation in monetary society and is it better off with that or not that, um, you know, to me, again, the big point would have been the empowerment of these nations that own these resources and have their own people that can work them and create an economic system to benefit themselves and let them make the decision whether they want to participate or not. But the, the cold, hard facts are they were coerced into participation and then robbed of all of the benefit mm -hmm. of those resources and labor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is no other way to say it. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, um, do we want to keep going here through? Um, we, we could just go to the bottom. So, you know, all these people came together right uh to do this kind of consensus like pinker likes to talk about you know well the consensus position is xyz blah 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 um and if you just scroll up a little bit um so uh oh just a little more there, there's that like whatever it was what um, everyone agrees on yeah like yeah. yeah so so a bunch of people came together and so you know since pinker likes to talk about the consensus this is what the consensus is like this is what people have uh, uh, agreed to together right these different uh, uh multi uh disciplinary kind of um you know i guess intellectuals economists anthropologists whatever so these these are uh these are the mm -hmm. items if um let me just read some of those then so yep. uh the first one uh, quote, the $1.90 a day 2011 uh, purchasing power uh, parity line is not an adequate or in any way satisfactory level of consumption. It is explicitly an extreme measure. Some analysts suggest that around 740 a day is the minimum necessary to achieve good nutrition and normal life expectancy, while others propose we use the U.S. poverty line, which is $15 a day. So this is the first thing that the consensus view uh, agrees upon. Uh, second, the proportion of people living under $1.90 per day has declined significantly, but poverty as measured by 740 a day has declined more slowly from 70.8% in 1981 to 58.1% in 2013. Okay, so uh, again, uh, we could say that there's been these uh, uh, declines, but uh, and also like in terms of like absolute numbers, right? That also changes a little bit if you choose to take that frame. Third point, the average consumption of people below both the $1.90 and 740 poverty lines and above those lines has increased. The poverty gap, the average distance below the poverty line has been shrinking again in terms of long-term trajectory. This is, you know, good. It's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. um, quote, income and consumption does not tell us the whole story about poverty. Poverty is multidimensional, and some aspects of human well-being can be obscured by consumption figures. And this also goes back to what we were saying about what happens in this transition from pre-colonial to colonial to post-colonial societies. And the last one, the present rate of poverty reduction is too slow for us to end $1.90 a day poverty by 2030 or 740 a day poverty in our lifetimes. To achieve this goal, we would need to change economic policy to make it fair for the world's majority. And just to like put a, a pin on this, 
the 740 a day figure, uh, I think I saw something like to reach $10 or like $11 a day, which is still below the US poverty line, uh, it would require at the current rate to, it would require 250 years. Okay. So mm -hmm. that's also, you know, a piece of reality that, you know, uh, should be part of these considerations. So, you know, when, when Pinker says something like, you know, he has this kind of like, you know, self-congratulatory kind of a, a comment somewhere in the book where, you know, think about it to eliminate extreme poverty sometime in my lifetime. If only I could live to see that day, you know, very self-congratulatory, but it seems like, you know, by the fairest measure, it would take a couple of centuries for that to happen at the present rate, unless something substantial changes, maybe it will. But, you know, before we uh, start to toot our own horns here, that's the reality. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Um, and it carries on from there, you know, there's this article about other measures of well-being yeah, that have that have gotten better that everyone agrees upon. So you know, you know I've talked about this: literacy rates, education, years of schooling have gone up, um, life expectancies have gone up, overall healthcare is probably better. So so that's good. Mm -hmm. um, so Hickel says here: Yes, of course I agree that life expectancy has increased and child mortality has decreased. Hickel wrote in an email to me: Those data are not controversial. Although I differ from Gates and Pinker in my assessment of the causes of those improvements. As for the graphs on literacy and years of schooling, the data are accurate, but I believe these are very narrow indicators of education and that a broader, more holistic view reveals a more complicated story. Um, so we've got poverty lines and absolute numbers. So, so they're saying that, you know, all that agreement that we just talked about, this is where the disagreement ends. Mm -hmm. uh, this is where the agreement ends, and this is where more of the disagreements between Hickel and Pinker and others uh, uh, make their way. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is what you said earlier, update. Indeed, Roser himself agrees, writing in a Twitter DM. I also very much agree that higher poverty lines are important to use. Um, we can and should be aiming for more. So, it, you know, we don't want to demonize these people too much. They're, they're just trying to report that data. I suppose, and say that it's gotten better, but it does seem like uh, he still agrees to be reasonable. It should it should increase. Um, you you want to talk about this figure here? It's an interesting one. This chart, yeah. So says uh, so. This chart from a 2013 paper by Shawa Chen, the lead development statistician at the World Bank, and Martin Ravelian requires some unpacking, but illustrates the point well. So basically. Uh, it's a chart on the uh, y-axis. You have um, the uh, uh, percent of, of people. Um, and on the x-axis, uh, you have from 0 to 13, um, we have the poverty line, right? It's $0, $1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, up to 13. And we have a, a few lines here, right, uh, that are supposed to represent um, different years. So the blue line, 1981. Uh, another line for 1990, another for 1999, another for 2008. So um, this is just shown over time, uh, depending on where you look, right? So if you're saying, okay, how many people are in poverty uh, or rather or below the poverty line, uh, depending on, on the dollar amount, right? So if you look at, for example, in 2008, um, uh, the black dotted line, 
the number of people that are under $1 a day seems to be somewhere around uh, 10%, mm-hmm. right? The people in 2008 under $2 a day are uh, a little bit under uh, 40%. Uh, the people under $3 a day, it's about uh, uh, maybe a little bit under 50%. And then when we get to $13 a day, uh, uh, most of the world's population right now, meaning over 80%, at least in 2008. Let me see. Let me see that. Yeah. So this would be about maybe 85 to 90% of people in 2008 were living under $13 a day, which is less than the US poverty uh, line. Um, And I I think that the point that it's showing is we have this kind of like, you know, flare between the earliest one, which is the blue line, and the black dotted line, which is 2008. So from 81 to 2008, that width between the two lines, it has expanded, um, you know, uh, uh, some ways. It's it's not like a huge decrease, but it's a considerable decrease, right, uh, in, in the amount of people mm-hmm. that are living under the worst, worst uh, poverty. So that part is true. Again, going back to this idea of trajectories, the long-term trajectory, especially if you are talking centuries and not just decades, right? It would look even better than this chart, right? I think that part is not deniable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so this just kind of explains that chart, which you just did a good job of. Um, I mean, we can move on to like the next uh, article, do something else, uh, unless you, you find something else here. Yeah, I'm just scanning real quick. Um, yeah, I mean, using absolute numbers risks confusing reducing poverty with preventing poor people from existing. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> the latter is a much weirder and frankly more disturbing goal. The history of Western countries trying to intervene in population growth in the developing world is extraordinary, extraordinarily ugly, full of forced sterilizations and other human rights abuses. Um, I, I think Hickel's uh, response to this, like, so when I reached out a little bit above, um, yeah. uh, where he says, so like, you know, th- this idea of like, well, are we talking about making, you know, poor people, you prevent them from coming into existence? Like, is that what we're talking about? Which to me, it seems like a silly frame, but so this guy, this writer asked Hickel about it, and Hickel says, when I reached out to Hickel about this issue, he pushed back arguing that in a rich world, we should assume that any individual born to poverty is a policy failure. Again, there's no way to deny that. Quote, in rich nations like the UK or US, we would never say that a growing poverty rate has to do with reproduction, he wrote in an email. No, we would point out that that it has to do with the minimum wage being too low or weak labor rights or subprime mortgages or inflated housing prices or whatever. It we identify systemic issues because we know that poverty amidst plenty isn't natural. It is created. So why, when it comes to the global South, do we imagine otherwise? And the, the writer pushes back. This feels to me like a bit of an evasion. We use poverty rates, not absolute numbers in discussions of use poverty as well. But in some ways, Hickel's response reflects the crux of the dispute between him and Roser. Roser, like most economic historians, does not view poverty as created, but as the original state of humankind from its inception until the Industrial Revolution. It is a policy failure insofar as we finally have the tools to end it now and have not done so yet, but what we're attempting to do is escape humanity's natural, brutal conditions. 
Hickel sees things differently. I don't know if he sees things differently, but I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with this latter statement, right? It's a policy failure insofar we finally have the tools, the ability to end it and have not done so. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. I mean, th- th- that's that's kind of like all that we're talking about. Like, I, I mean, like I'm not I'm, I, I'm perfectly willing to grant, you know, poverty in the past. I'm perfectly willing to grant that the average person anywhere, you know, um, you know, uh, two centuries ago had it worse than than the average person today. Right. Uh, I, I'm perfectly fine saying that. But we are talking about policies today and what exactly, you know, is, is Pinker's role in the status quo here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and instead of like maybe reading this colonialism section, we could just directly deal with colonialism in the two articles that I have uh, brought up on yeah. my end. Unless like you have something else to say about all of this here. No, let's uh, let's let's go there. Let me exit my screen share here. Okay. You can pull up one of the other articles if you want. All right. So, um, okay, let me do that here. Uh, share screen. And just real quick, um, I don't know how much more stuff you want to make sure to cover because I've got about an hour left. So, all right, let's just let's just try to do this fast then uh, before yeah. we go to uh, Nietzsche. Um, yeah. Okay, so so share this. Okay, so just uh, uh, just quickly on income um, inequality here. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So 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 this is a absolute changes in income from 1980 to 2016. So this is a, a graph from uh, Hickel, and Hickel says essentially that. Um, uh, so, like, if, if you look at, uh, uh, okay, so USD dollars, right, on the y-axis and on the x-axis, we have uh, income uh, group by percentile. If you look at uh, the top 99, right, um, the top 99% has overwhelmingly taken the share of uh, this, you know, of this, um, you know, of these, of these absolute income changes, right? The, 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 top 1%, right? Not 99, but the 99th percentile. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 99th percentile, the top 1%. Uh, so we go from somewhere under $20,000 in income, right? Uh, to a hundred and looks like a hundred and maybe $30,000 in income, right? That's the top 1%. Now the top 10% had, you know, a little bit of a change would go from what it looks like maybe like a few thousand dollars to about $10,000. A lot of this, I'm sure, has to do with China, right? When I visited China in 2009 versus China today, it's completely unrecognizable. 2009 mm-hmm. China, you had a middle class that was like 10%. Now the middle class is like 70%. I mean, that is a, a huge change to lesser degrees, you know, places like Russia. You had some yeah. expansion in the middle class, but everyone else, right? You know, basically the bottom 90%, it barely, barely, barely moved. So, and also, you know, anytime they talk about like, well, we tripled, we doubled, we quintupled income. Keep in mind that the way the math works is if you start with a tiny, tiny fucking number, it sounds very impressive to say that we doubled it or we tripled it. But in terms of actual changes in the day-to-day life and day-to-day misery, um, very little change for the bottom 90%. And especially, you know, once we get to like the bottom 50%, right? Like virtually no change, yeah. right? In, in, in that way. Um, but uh, anyway, like maybe maybe we uh, could like just maybe not read the whole thing here, but uh, in, in, in this article uh, by uh, uh, Jason Hickel, 
basically how Britain stole 45 trillion from India. Um, it's it's just arguing that uh, during colonialism, uh, they had this like kind of you know uh, tax kind of system where they essentially uh, took money in the form of taxes from India, but also then used uh, this money to cheaply buy goods. Mm-hmm. There was this kind of drain from India into the coffers of the UK to the tune overall of 45 trillion. Now, I'm sure there might be some economists that could look at this and say, well, actually, the number should be something like 30 trillion. Maybe it should be something like 40 yeah. trillion, like whatever. <laughs> the, the point is, you know, in terms of colonialism, what you have to understand when I talked about Marxism and, you know, China versus all these other places, the US versus Stalinism, whatever. Um, the, the 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 effect of colonialism is this if you want to you know sort of virtue signal from on high saying well we in america we do shit differently we in western europe we do shit differently well here's an example of a western european nation 45 trillion is the number that we have this is 45 trillion that could have been used to save india from coronavirus maybe if they had 45 trillion maybe they also could have had vaccines right maybe uh-huh. if they had 45 trillion maybe they wouldn't have to be as impoverished as um uh they are today what is one of the main differences between china and india well let me give you one of the main differences china by using communism even if you want to talk about all the liquidations and all the great famines guess what china today does not have to deal with the bullshit that india has to deal with okay right you know china yes even if we want to blame china for coronavirus the fact is you know uh china had what maybe at most maybe let's say they're uh you know fucking around with the numbers maybe a hundred a few hundred thousand people died in a nation of like over a billion you know it's a very different situation so all those liquidations all those famines blah 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 in that nietzschean sense since pinker is unwittingly using nietzschean arguments this is now the difference between china and india okay and that difference is one was colonized the other one was able to escape it in 1949 and was able to have a very different kind of existence since that point. Okay, so maybe we we don't have to re, read that all that much, but this one is kind of more generic, right? So this is now mm-hmm. we're talk we're talking about this is now post colonialism, right? We don't even have to talk about you know all the uh, uh, insane kind of um, you know uh, unfairness and injustice that, that colonialism created in terms of you know an imbalance in wealth and and income disparities. This is now, uh, the headline says, uh, since 1960, right? So rich countries drained 152 trillion from the global South since 1960. So this is Jason Hickel, Dylan Sullivan, and Huzaifa Zoom Kawala, right? So they all collaborated on this article. So let's just read that quickly. We have long known that the industrial rise of rich countries depended on extraction from the global south during the colonial era. Europe's industrial revolution relied in large part on cotton and sugar, which were grown on land stolen from indigenous Americans with forced labor from enslaved Africans. Extraction from Asia and Africa was used to pay for infrastructure, public buildings, and welfare states in Europe all the markers of modern development. The costs to the South, meanwhile, were catastrophic. Genocide, dispossession, famine, and mass impoverishment. Imperial powers finally withdrew most of their flags and armies from the South in the mid-20th century. But over the following decades, economists and historians associated with, quote, dependency theory argued that the underlying patterns of colonial appropriation remain in place and continue to define the global economy. 
Imperialism never ended, they argued. It just changed form. They were right. Recent research demonstrates that rich countries continue to rely on a large net appropriation from the global south, including tens of billions of tons of raw materials and hundreds of billions of hours of human labor per year, embodied not only in primary commodities, but also in high-tech industrial goods like smartphones, laptops, computer chips, and cars, which over the past few decades have come to be overwhelmingly manufactured in the south. Again, for us to be here and transfer this information from where it would be otherwise hidden to the public doing this video. I have a very fucking fancy screen here, the size of a fucking television set. I'm not under any fucking illusions that I acquired this in a bloodless manner. I didn't. Mm -hmm. What would Nietzsche say? Instead of being some fucking like, you know, white guilt moron, actually do something from it. You can't, you know, you can't resurrect those corpses. Guess what? If you think that this is valuable information, put it out there. Do something with these fucking corpses, okay? I'm not shy about saying that. That's reality. So this flow of net appropriation occurs because prices are systematically lower in the South than in the North. For instance, wages paid to so Southern workers are on average one-fifth the level of Northern wages. This means that for every unit of embodied labor and resources that the South imports from the North, they have to export many more units to pay for it. Economists Samir Amin and Aguirre Emanuel describe this as a, quote, hidden transfer of value, end quote, from the South, which sustains high levels of income and consumption in the North. The drain takes place subtly and almost invisibly without the overt violence of colonial occupation and therefore without provoking protests and moral outrage. In a recent paper published in the New Journal of New, New Political Economy, we built on the work of Amin and others to quantify the scale of drain through unequal exchange in the post-colonial era. We found that the drain increased dramatically during the 80s and 90s as neoliberal structural adjustment programs were imposed across the global south. Today, the global north drains from the south commodities worth $2.2 trillion per year in northern prices. For perspective, that amount of money would be enough to end extreme poverty globally 15 times over. Again, if you want to say that poverty has no causes, we're not responsible, blah, 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 fucking bullshit. Over the whole period from 1960 to today, the drain totaled $62 trillion in real terms. If this value had been retained by the South and contributed to Southern growth, tracking with the South's growth rates over this period, it would be worth $152 trillion today. These are extraordinary sums for the global North, and here we mean the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Israel, Japan, Korea, and the rich economies of Europe. The gains are so large that for the past couple of decades, they have outstripped the rate of economic growth. In other words, net growth in the North relies on appropriation from the rest of the world. And, um, uh, uh, and also just about aid, right? So for the South, the losses outstrip foreign aid transfers by a wide margin. Mm -hmm. For every dollar of aid the South receives, they lose 14 in drain through unequal exchange alone, not counting other kinds of losses like illicit financial outflows and profit repatriation. So, I mean, uh, this is kind of like, I guess, the... Um, uh, the, 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 the basic idea. Right. And I mean, the, 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 the point here is, you know, even like going to like this, this, this financial aid, right. This like international aid. I mean, 
it's like the same thing with taxation, right? I mean, billionaires want to, you know, have a kind of like voluntary charity regime, uh, preferentially like over tag force taxation because they're always going to give less, right? At, at least like during the time that they're alive, they're always going to give less than they otherwise, you know, would to charity. And he, and here's just like a prime example, right? You're getting $14 of value. You're giving one in exchange. When Nietzsche looks at something like this, he says, that is some bullshit, right? I can't believe this kind of Christian moralizing about we are the good guys, right? Everybody else is, are the evildoers when this is exactly what you know what you do. Like you give a little bit in exchange for taking so much, right? Let's not be, you know, let's not be secretive about what that morality actually entails. Um so uh yeah, so I guess that's uh, that's kind of uh, uh generally what it is, I mean, do you have anything more to say about uh, this this uh, article or or uh, uh, post colonialism, post colonialism, or what? Yeah, my final couple of comments would just be Hickel uh, again talks about the the manner in which this is now presented and discussed and has been for the past seventy five years now. Um, mm-hmm. He he says that you can trace back to. The late 1940s, when President Truman, while he was campaigning, uh, you know, to, I guess, to retain his presidency, began to use the term development rather than colonialism, right? So there was this acknowledgement mm-hmm. that, um, hey, you know, with the, with the distraction, so to speak, of, of the World War being over, and so there's no longer a common enemy, people are maybe unearthing once again some of the United States's uh, sins. What are we up to? Where, you know, where are we going wrong? And of course, you know, to keep the economy booming in the post-war, uh, we needed all of this still, mm-hmm. right? For, for the numbers they wanted to try to hit. So uh, they began to call it, you know, things like these structural adjustment programs, I guess, maybe that was the UK term for it. But here in the States, it really became known as, you know, we're developing those nations, those are developing countries. And mm-hmm. we as the developed nations are developing them when Hickel's argument is, of course, it's really the other way around, right? You know, mm-hmm. we're, we continue to develop at a rapid pace. We're still at the, you know, these rich nations, we are still developing uh, all this technology, all this wealth. Uh, but where is that coming from? You know, it's, it's coming from these resource rich areas that, uh, you know, have, have had any ability to control their own destiny taken out of their hands. So, um, you know, that's the real shame of it is it, it would be a vastly different world if, if, if this hadn't gone on, right? Who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, the balance of power would be potentially immensely different. India with a billion people, same as China. Um, who knows where their economy would be today? Uh, I imagine the U.S. would still be powerful. Europe would still be powerful. It, you know, things would just look different. Um, so, <sighs> yeah, there's uh, it's pretty eye-opening. But those those are those are just insane numbers. Insane numbers. Um, yeah. So I mean, it, anyway. you know, it's, it, it, it's just important to remember, like you know, that is the cost. Like, what, what is the cost of Steven Pinker? You know, sitting around, you know, writing these books, extolling uh, progress. Um, you know, on his laptop or whatever. Well, the co- the cost is you know is 152 trillion dollars, right? In in drain, right? Um, we are able to uh, behave in this way. We're able to rapidly develop in this way because other people kind of can. And I, I mean, like th- this kind of gets to the crux of the issue, right? He he says, you know, like it, it's wrong to think of wealth as this kind of limited pie, 
right? Or income is this kind of like limited pie or that, you know, because I have something, you have less. Well, but in a functional sense and given how power dynamics play out and given how the real world and real economies play out, right? Um, you know, perhaps in the future, this could be different, but the way that these things work is functionally, that is kind of the case. I mean, you know, for us to be so highly developed and for us to enjoy everything that we enjoy, um, the the cost is 152 trillion that is not in someone else's pocket right that's just reality there's there's and there's no reason you know there's absolutely no reason to deny something like that right well and there's also um you know at this point there there's a need to continue to perpetuate mythologies mm -hmm. uh, that that have developed you know in the course of american history or european history which is uh, certainly at least one tributary that feeds into the river of things like, you know, nationalism or racism where, uh, you know, we're so proud to boast about all of our technological accomplishments and stuff, you know, and in the book, I mean, all these things that have happened, it's like, uh, yeah, it's undeniable. These inventions have been made. These, uh, these bits of progress have been made. Uh, also, most of them have been invented by, you know, Europeans or European descendants here in America. Um, and it, if not invented, then certainly, you know, mass produced with our, our engines of economy mm -hmm. and, and the way that we churn things out. Um, and, and who knows, you know, in addition to just this straight labor and resource robbery that's gone on, uh, the intellectual and cultural robbery that's happened, mm -hmm. you know, if, if India had been allowed to keep those resources, right, pick any country, right, any that yeah. we do this with and have done, um, who knows what the contributions would be from those people, they, they could have been and probably would be just as, if not more extraordinary. Um, you know, it, it's so clear that, you know, any, anybody, any nation uh, can produce incredible people who are capable of incredible things. So uh, again, that's why I say, you know, I'm sure there was just tons of deep seated fear. I mean, our most common ones, especially from recent history were like, you know, the space race with Russia or the atomic race and like these ways that the U S needed to try to stay ahead, uh, and maintain, you know, our power and, and the best of everything. And I'm sure, you know, our leadership was just scared shitless all the time that if you give an inch, you know, back to India, they might take a mile and who knows when they might overtake us on some, you know, some part of the economy or some technological breakthrough. I, I'm sure yeah. there was plenty of that going on at the time and, and still is. So um, anyway, it's, it's, uh, it, it's kind of wild to think about how different things could have been. But um, anyway, do you want to, I mean, we're coming in on kind of the final 45 minutes yeah. to an hour here. Do you want to go to your Nietzsche stuff? <clears throat> yeah. Um, not, that, not that we haven't talked about him and said his name plenty yeah. already. But. Yeah, it's 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 funny because like you know like he's you know like on the one hand we have Steven Pinker right who's like framing the entire book and progress and everything you know in this kind of like alignment framework, right? Uh, the West uh, allegedly is like exporting alignment values and yet. Um, you know, here we are draining, you know, from the global South, like, you know, he, 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 he starts off the book with these epigraphs about rationality, right? That a, a purely kind of, you know, rational human would not want to do something to another that you would not allow done to yourself. And yet, I mean, here we go, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's actually happening, right? We're, we're having the drain and to be able to say that, to be able to conceptualize that, right? To, and to be able to, you know, say like, look at us, we're a democracy, we're this, we're that, like 
all of that has to occur. And the irony is it's like, well, you know, China, um, you know, like Ch China has like, has tons more like legitimacy in the eyes of its people than our government does in the eyes of our people, because Correct. it's true. You know, China doesn't have like, you know, uh, uh, fair and free elections. Uh, maybe they have like, I don't know exactly. Maybe they have some local elections or whatever. Uh, but, you know, in the United States, like we we're constantly cratering you know, uh, uh, voter turnout because people are like, we don't, we don't take this shit seriously. Right. This is like nonsense. Meanwhile, you know, like, you know, like whether or not he's a dictator, Xi Jinping is so fucking popular among Chinese, even if you, you know, correct for the fact that mm -hmm. you can't get like a true measure, because again, it is a, uh, you know, it is a totalitarian state. Still, I will guarantee you that Xi Jinping, you know, even correcting for that has more legitimacy in the eyes of, of, of their people um, than, than Joe Biden has in the eyes or, or, or Trump has or Hillary Clinton would have had or Obama yeah. had in our eyes. It's just a fact. Um, so anyway, I mean, we could uh, uh, move to we can move to uh, uh, Nietzsche now. So uh, this is the, the last chapter uh, in the book. Uh, I believe what is it, like chapter 23 or something. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, chapter 23. So this is page uh, 443 where, you know, he, he already like tackled uh, in the, uh, before in the book you know, the so-called enemies of the Enlightenment. And now he turns his attention to uh, a thinker that I hope I'm not being unfair to Stephen Pinker. I'm not convinced that he's actually read Nietzsche, but um, we will adjudicate this, I guess, as, as this goes on. So this is the way that he uh, characterizes Nietzsche. After laying out the logic of humanism, I noted that it stood in stark contrast to two other systems of belief. We have just looked at theistic morality, let me turn to the second enemy of humanism, the ideology behind resurgent authoritarianism, nationalism, populism, reactionary thinking, even fascism. By the way, all things that absolutely Nietzsche was against, except for authoritarianism. Right. As with theistic morality, the ideology claims intellectual merit, affinity with human nature, and historical inevitability. All three claims we shall see are mistaken. Let's begin with some intellectual history. If one wanted to single out a uh, to single out a thinker who represented the opposite of humanism, indeed, of pretty much every argument in this book, one couldn't do better than the German philologist Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, earlier in the chapter, I fretted about how humanistic morality could deal with a callous, egoistic, megalomaniacal sociopath. Nietzsche argued that it's good to be a callous, egoistic, megalomaniacal sociopath. This is, it's just so fucking, un like, this is just, anyway, yeah. not good for everyone, of course, but that doesn't matter. The lives of the mass of humanity, quote, the botched and the bungled, the chattering dwarves, the flea beetles count for nothing. What is worthy in life is for a superman or ubermensch, literally overman, to transcend good and evil, exertable to power and achieve heroic glory. Only through such heroism can the potential of the species be realized and humankind lifted to a higher plane of being. The feats of greatness may not consist, though, in curing disease, feeding the hungry, or bringing about peace, but rather in artistic masterworks and martial conquest. Western civilization has gone steadily downhill since the heyday of Homeric Greeks, Aryan warriors, helmeted Vikings, and other manly men. It has been especially corrupted by the, quote, slave morality of Christianity, the worship of reason by the Enlightenment, and the liberal movements of the 19th century that sought social reform and shared prosperity. 
Yeah, share prosperity. We just talked about the share prosperity. 152 trillion drained uh, from the global south since 1960. Mm-hmm. Such a feat sentimentality led only to decadence and degeneration. Those who have seen the truth should quote philosophize with a hammer and give modern civilization the final shove that would bring on the redemptive cataclysm from which a new order would rise. Lest you think I'm setting up a straw ubermensch, here are some quotations. So here's the first quote from Nietzsche. I abhor the man's vulgarity when he says, what is right for one man is right for another. Do not to others that which you would not that they should do unto you. The hypothesis here is ignoble to say the to say to the last degree, it is taken for granted that there is some sort of equivalence in value between my actions and thine. Here's a second quote. This is from uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a novel that Nietzsche wrote, right? Not a work of nonfiction. I do not, oh, sorry, not, not, we're not there yet. This is a separate quote. I do not point to the evil and pain of existence with the finger of reproach but rather entertain the hope that life may one day become more evil and more full of suffering than it has ever been. So in the second quote, just to be clear, uh, when Nietzsche is talking about suffering in general, uh, he's not just talking about, you know, uh, some, some, you know, callous sociopath that without reason exerts a will to power and forces everybody else into slavery. Um, he is actually usually when he's talking about suffering, it is the suffering of the self, right? It is oftentimes his own suffering, mm-hmm. right? Nietzsche often said he wants to make something of his own suffering. He basically says that, you know, um, when we're talking about human values, uh, is it possible that compassion is not, you know, the only basis for morality? Can suffering also be a basis for morality? Does personal suffering lead to anything of value? And can historical, you know, when he talks about historical suffering, can historical suffering lead to anything of value? What is interesting is that Pinker answers the question in the affirmative again and again and again and again. Do we have all these corpses that we stand upon with Native Americans that are, you know, genocided away? or you know a slavery that is done to present an additional unit of gdp or colonialism that allows pinker to have a cheap laptop on which that he you know writes his books pinker's answer is yes uh nietzsche answers in the affirmative as well but nietzsche doesn't dress that up in like anything that's highfalutin or anything that's like you know trying to you know um uh, deny that this reality exists he says yes right he's not ashamed to say that when he talks about an overman that overman will not be ashamed to say yes just like pinker is not ashamed to say yes but pinker the reason why nietzsche would absolutely hate pinker is pinker does not want to take the next step and say well maybe i could be an overman right? Maybe mm-hmm. I could play that historical role. Nietzsche, Nietzsche would say, what a fucking coward. He's willing to step on the corpses of the past, and he's willing to write these books extolling these virtues of the West, but he's not willing to actually take the next step, rip off the fucking Band-Aid, and say that, you know what, I could be this overman, because look at me, I'm writing these great books, you know, on the corpses of others, right? This is, this is where the disagreement will come in. So another quote, and and this is actually, this is a quote from a a novel, right? Thus spoke Zarathustra is a novel. Mm -hmm. Man shall be trained for war and woman for the recreation of the warrior. All else is folly. Thou goest to woman, do not forget thy whip. 
And he's using this quote, right, to show that, well, you know, he's sexist, he's, he's, you know, militaristic, which, you know, it is true, like, 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 uh, Nietzsche, he was a great fan of Napoleon. Um, mm-hmm. He wasn't a fan of German. He wasn't a fan of his own country, but he was a great fan of uh, Napoleon. He definitely has a militaristic streak. But it's it's odd to use this quote explicitly because, and also, you know, he was he was a very sexist. I think uh, I think her the, her name is Salome, the the woman that he was uh, uh, in love with. Uh, his most sexist remarks actually coincided with the time that Salome uh, refused his you know entreaties for marriage. Yeah. Um, and in fact, like when he would like send around his books to like women that he did know, he would say like like please like don't you know don't take some of these like you know statements personally because he he sort of you know he, he was kind of like you know the proverbial incel right before we had that term. Um, <laughs> and, and you know like you know and he was sort of aware that you know there would be this negative response. But the the reason why using this quote for this is so odd, it's not even so much that it doesn't necessarily capture his sexism. I mean, I guess it does in some ways, but uh, the reason why in in the scope of the novel it doesn't is, so, you know, uh, Zarathustra approaches this woman and and she tells this to him. And later on the book, he approaches the same woman later after Zarathustra undergoes his like psychological changes. And he says, remember when you told me that um you know like uh do not forget uh uh do not do not forget thy whip um guess what i'm gonna now try to whip you and she and she stops him and corrects him and says but how could you say that you really wish to whip me when i imparted all this knowledge to you when i made you greater than when i gave you this nietzschean morality and you cannot do this to your co-equal because although i am a woman I have accomplished something great by giving you this education. You must treat me as your equal. And guess what? Zarathustra actually says you're right. Right. Mm-hmm. So literally, like th- this quote, it, it does not, it does not work in the way that Pinker thinks. I doubt he's even read the full book, right? That's the crazy part. Right. He tries to capture this philosophically. I doubt he's read the full book because he would know the context under the multiple contexts under which this quote appears, right? Um, and the final quote, a declaration of war and the masses. Uh, by higher men is needed, a doctrine is needed, uh, powerful enough to work as a breeding agent, strengthening the strong, paralyzing and destructive for the world weary, the annihilation of the humbug called morality, the annihilation of the decaying races, dominion over the earth as a means of producing a higher type. Um, so anyway, and you know, like just just uh, just to wrap wrap up a uh, Pinker's uh, thoughts on on Nietzsche. Uh, he, he basically says that, you know, uh, uh, these genocidal ravings may sound like they come from a transgressive adolescent who has been listening to too much death metal or bored parody of James Bonneville and blah, blah, blah. But actually, it's from Nietzsche, who was among the most influential thinkers of the 20th century, continuing into the 21st. Later on, he calls them uh, very overrated. He says that Hitler, you know, uh, uh, tapped Nietzsche's philosophy, uh, although Nietzsche wasn't an anti-Semite and, in fact, would be very much against fascism. Uh, and, you know, like Pinker kind of like he sort of admits that Nietzsche wasn't an anti-Semite and you have this in your notes. Uh, maybe like you I mean, maybe you could just take it from here since since this is what you were talking about. Yeah, well, on, on page 445, this is just another instance where we don't get the full picture because uh, it says, though Nietzsche himself was neither a German nationalist nor an anti-Semite. So there you go. To your point, he, he does say that it's no coincidence that these quotations leap off the page as quintessential Nazism. 
Nietzsche posthumously became the Nazi's court philosopher. In his final year as chancellor, Hitler made a pilgrimage to the Nietzsche archive, presided over by Elizabeth Forster Nietzsche, the philosopher's sister and literary executor, who tirelessly encouraged the connection. Well, you know, even the, the cursory reading of the Wikipedia or Encyclopedia Britannica, Britannica article about Nietzsche, first of all, he feuded with his sister throughout their lives because she was a rabid anti-Semite and German nationalist and married one, you know, a man who was, who was as well. Um, and when he died, obviously a fault of his, I don't know exactly why he didn't manage to leave his literary estate to someone else's care, but he left it to her care. Maybe that was just by default because he didn't leave it to anybody, I guess. Uh, and she was next of kin, who knows? But she went ahead and collected his, uh, you know, previously uncollected writings into the will, the will to power, mm -hmm. and gave it no context. Uh, you know, just disseminated it out into the world, and then, uh, you know, as as Pinker talks about, I mean, yeah, his sister tirelessly encouraged the connection to Hitler because she she was a Nazi. So, yeah, um, it, you know, all these ideas were antithetical to Nietzsche's personal philosophy, I mean, it's so well documented that he broke mm. ties with Richard Wagner. He, he broke ties with numerous people who he had grown up with or become friends with over the years that, you know, their particular fascist, nationalist, anti-Semite views got to be too much for him. And, and mm -hmm. he ended the relationship, you know, he didn't do that with his sister, presumably just because she was his family, even though, again, they were on again, off again, and, you know, throughout the years. So, uh, it's, it's just a pretty wicked misrepresentation to act as though, you know, Nietzsche would have loved the fact that Hitler wanted to come, you know, make a pilgrimage to his his grave or his workplace or whatever, and then, you know, appropriate all of his writings for the Third Reich. Um, yeah, that's, but it's not, it's not really explained any further than that in the book. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting how like, you know, Pinker, he, he, you know, he doesn't want to be uh, accused of being like, you know, intellectually disingenuous. So of course he has to say, although uh, Nietzsche wasn't an anti-Semite, but he doesn't, he, he doesn't actually tell you the full story, which is the following. Not only was Nietzsche not an anti-Semite, he actually thought that Jews among the world were like the most noble and the greatest race and the greatest tribe of people to have ever existed, right? He is so respectful of Jews. He 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 looks back on the past, right? Because you know this, this fits so well with Nietzsche morality, right? Like look, look 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 like the reason why you know Nietzsche is saying stuff like you know maybe suffering could be you know one of uh, human values depending on how it's used is the fact that well look at the Jews, right? Uh, the Jews had to go through, you know, years and years and years of pogroms. They had to be, you know, a sort of, you know, expelled in every country that they went to. And yet they have produced, you know, so much in terms of literature. They've produced so much in terms of the like, culture more broadly. They've become very powerful, even, you know, during Nietzsche's time. Like we had at that time, like, you know, um, before Theodore Herzl, we had like, you know, uh, a more kind of, you know, just like we had like utopian socialism, we had like a kind of like utopian Zionism, right, with all these like people trying to, you know, colonize uh, uh, Palestine. Um, and the reason why they were able to do that is because they had the wealth, they had the means to immigrate, 
the reason why Israel was able to like get so many promises, what became Israel from, for example, uh, uh, the British is, is because, you know, they, they just like today, they have a, a large number of pressure groups because over time, uh, Nietzsche's argument is that Jews were able to sort of use their suffering to build something from it and to, you know, kind of like, uh, become greater than now, I think like historically speaking, some of that argument is kind of silly. There's a lot of like historical incidents that occurred along the way that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, put Jews into power. Whereas like, you know, black people did not have the same opportunity. So, you know, t- t- you know, slavery, like didn't ennoble like black people, right. And just fucking, you know, just, you know, just completely destroyed, you know, uh, a black America for so long. It still has all these ripple effects that, you know, have, have never gone away. Um, but you know uh, nietzsche was was so emphatic about the greatness of, of jewish people um and in fact if he were to see nazism you know come about uh for like first of all he he disliked uh germany he thought that you know german germans were lesser than jews uh uh if he were to see nazism come about to nietzsche this would be a prime example of slave morality nazism mm-hmm. as slave morality itself the except the, the difference though is that it's a slave morality that happened to have um accumulated enough power to actually you know uh take its uh he calls it a resentment right later french resentment to take to, to, to take its power and to sort of you know force it on others and to destroy others that were greater than the nazis so and you know that that would be a perfect example right nietzsche believes that germans are like an inferior you know tribe Suddenly Nazis come about, they claim without evidence that they're greater than, and they end up destroying the truly great tribe, which is the Jews. To him, this is slave morality. This is resentment. This is exactly an example. Because to, to him, you know, powerful or greater than is not simply, you know, like, like Pinker wants to treat it as, you know, I, I guess you could say philosophically, there could be a slippery slope to something like fascism. And it's not that, you know, Nietzsche wasn't an authoritarian. In some ways he was. But to, to Nietzsche, it's not just crass power in terms of like, well, you happen to have like the riches and the guns, so you clearly are the most powerful. That's that's not a Nietzschean concept. The Nietzschean concept is here's the people that is noble, that is cultured, that is powerful historically and otherwise, and here is an inferior race to him, the Germans, that see this, they become jealous, they want their money, they want their power, and they're going to exterminate them because they can never produce anything of value in the same way the Jews have. And the fact that like he misses this and doesn't even like offer this as a caveat, except to say, although Nietzsche wasn't an anti-Semite, it is, it is intellectually dishonest, even if he offers a ca- the caveat of he wasn't, you know, he wasn't uh, an anti-Semite. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much, so many more layers to to that whole situation, like you just highlighted, that um, that just get bounced over. You know, I think maybe more than anything, for the sake of trying to talk about the present counter enlightenment with Trumpism mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff, and say, you know, Nietzsche's still to this day persisting as the the kind of person or the kind of philosopher whose ideas are adopted by these authoritarian types and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And um, I don't know, maybe that's true. It's impossible to think that Donald Trump even knows who Friedrich Nietzsche is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not to say that he, I guess, couldn't be influenced by his ideas through a yeah. chain of just 
you know, idolizing Mussolini or whatever, um, yeah. or Kim Jong-un, but you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's, it's not, it's not mm. really realistic to think that Trump's got a, a copy of, uh, thus spoke Zarathustra in yeah. his cabinet. Um, um, so anyway, I, 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 yeah. I actually have like a, just, just, just a few more things, just like, you know, what, what, bo what bothers me so much about like, you know, pinkers of treatment of, of Nietzsche here, just to kind of like, I guess, uh, summarize it a bit. So, um, like, first of all, like I said earlier, over and over again, like, uh, Steven Pinker's, you know, philosophy in Enlightenment now is just suffused with Nietzschean value judgments, right? It's just it's just full of it, right? Whether it's like he he's choosing to use a um, you know, a, a ratio as opposed to absolute numbers, that is a Nietzschean value judgment. Um, you know, uh, uh whether, you know, it's the fact that, you know, he's like literally like, you know, typing away on a, you know, slave labor computer, you know, a, you know, living off of, you know, the the bones of everybody that came uh, before him in Canada. Like it's just suffused with with the uh, Nietzschean logic. Um and, you know, like like what what Nietzsche was arguing is that, uh, you know, human beings, no matter where they are, just, the reason why I don't really consider him kind of counter-alignment is this, just like David Hume says, hey, you know, uh, uh, we need to treat, right, uh, uh, reason as slave of the passions, and it ought to be the slave of the passions, because we can never get beyond this point where, you know, we no longer have to make value judgments, right? We will always have to make value judgments. And Nietzsche, like he emphasizes just even more than humor. Right? He says, we're constantly making these evaluations, these kind of value judgments. Some people are choosing to do it invisibly. I'm going to do it visibly. I'm going to be open about this greater than. And but when he discusses things like an overman or like, you know, uh, the, the, the nature of the great man is he has to become cold, he has to become compassionless. It's not, it's not simply that he imagines a world where you have just like massive slavery, although that's not even like, you know, beyond the ken of, of Nietzsche. I don't even want to make that argument. But to him, what he's arguing explicitly there is if you have a man that is hard, right? Uh, is able to sort of look back in the past and say, these corpses do exist. You can't resurrect them. There's nothing to do about that. They have to be now used as fuel for something greater. We could either be honest about it or we could dick around and dance around the issue as Pinker does, right? And pretends like that, that that's not the, the, the calculation that we're making every single day when we choose to buy a new laptop, when we choose to live in the United States and, and feel happy about our station in life and feel good about the fact that, hey, aren't I so lucky to be, you know, a, a, a patriot, you know, in the United States and everywhere else is so bad. Like, you know, we're constantly making these calculations. It's constantly this idea of, of this, this fuel, like moving, you know, uh, upwards for something grander. Right. Um, so, uh, uh, and also like, you know, th th this thing of like, you know, um, you know, Nietzschean morality is not merely just like a matter of like, you know, he says he wants to get beyond good and evil because to him, uh, there's another set of values, which is good versus bad, right? Good versus bad meaning excellence versus non-excellence, which again, completely suffuses Pinker's point of view here, excellence versus non-excellence. What is the excellence here? What is the analog? It's, oh, look at us. We're on a trajectory that's moving forward, that's moving higher. That's the excellence, right? 
Uh, everything else is just kind of like a side detail, right? Everything else is just, it, it can be elided because, you know, although like, yes, we have more absolute numbers of people suffering than ever before, absolute numbers of animals going through unprecedented suffering. That is an example of non-excellence, right? The excellence is the trajectory. This is the greatness that we need to latch ourselves um, uh, onto. Um, and uh, uh so one last point here. What else did I want to say? Uh, just, just, I guess this whole thing about like humanism, right? Like, you know, when, when Pinker says that Nietzsche is not a humanist, Nietzsche would absolutely call himself a humanist, right? And the reason why he would call himself a humanist is he is just emphatic about what a human being is, right? And, and what a human being is capable of compared to everyone else that's not capable of the same, right? And the way that I would frame this is, you know, he has this quote from the gay science um, on this is like aphorism number 304, right? And if you want to really understand what Nietzsche morality is all about, why it's not necessarily uh, uh, not incompatible with like a leftist methodology or ideology, which is what I have, it, 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 it is this. So this is aphorism 304 in the gay science. It's titled by do and we forego. At bottom, I abhor all those moralities which say do not do this, renounce, overcome yourself. But I am well disposed toward those moralities which goad me to do something and to do it again from morning till evening and then to dream of it at night and to think of nothing except doing this well as well as I alone can do it. When one lives like that, one thing after another that simply does not belong to such a life drops off. Same thing with Pinker. He has a laptop. He has books to write. All those other things, all those considerations. Yeah, I'm standing on the fucking skulls of people in the past. Yeah, this was made by slave labor. Yeah, my country has drained 153 trillion from the global south. All of that falls away. That's not part of my life. Those that are suffering, that's their life. That's their lot. That's what they have to deal with. That's not my life. Let everything else fall away. My purpose in life is to write as many books as possible without hatred or aversion. One sees this take its leave today and that tomorrow like yellow leaves that any slight stirring of the air takes off a tree. He may not even notice that it takes its leave. Does Pinker 24-7 worry about slave labor? Is that the thing that's like, oh my God, is he crying every fucking minute of every single day? Because if you were morally like consistent, wouldn't you? Isn't mm -hmm. it fucking like absolutely just unspeakable what's happening all around the world historically into the present day, right? He may not even notice that it takes its leave for his eye is riveted to his goal. Forward, not sideward, backward, downward. What we do should determine what we forego. By doing, we forego. That is how I like it. That is my placidum. But I do not wish to strive with open eyes for my own impoverishment. I do not like negative virtues. Virtues whose very essence is to negate and deny oneself something. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, like, uh, 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 you know, like, it, like, so basically my point is this, if we, if we, if we, if this is history and this is our lot, if Pinker is complicit in slavery as I am, as you are, as everybody is, as we are all complicit historically, if that is the case, what Nietzsche is arguing in his kind of like, let's get beyond good and evil is this. The only thing that could possibly redeem 
all this suffering. It's not Christian white guilt. Oh my God, can you just fucking imagine what's going on, right? It's not constantly crying 24-7, right? The only thing that can possibly redeem it is to do something great based on the fuel that you are given. Again, you cannot resurrect these corpses. You cannot turn this thing that is now fuel into something else. You, the only thing that you could do is you could waste the opportunity, right? You could live out your life just like fucking snorting cocaine, fucking strippers. You know, that's your indulgence, right? After draining 153 trillion from the global South, right? The only thing that could have any sort of redemptive quality is the Nietzsche morality. This is why he's so adamant about this morality. And the fact that, you know, like Pinker is so dependent on this and he admits this, it really just rubbed me the wrong way. It's really annoying. Um, and uh, anyway, that's all I have to say about Nietzsche at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. I, I think maybe my final thought on that, and then, uh, I'll get into my, like starting to conclude comments would just be, um, with, with all that said, it, it is still of course important to like, to have the right framing. And I do still think that, uh, like if you're going to go with, with that Nietzschean morality to, to actually literally use some of these enlightenment values yes. in in combination with that is where you can arrive at the right sort of solution because mm -hmm. you could have someone like uh jeff bezos who seemingly to me would would, would in certain ways be quite nietzschean in in yes. that chain of reasoning right it's like okay well the corpses the you know all this stuff you know what uh I'm going to go ahead and, and build a corporation. That's my idea of a greater contribution. That's what I'm going to do. I have the means to do it, the education, the connections, the will. Yeah, so and, and it would Pinker say that Bezos is a bad guy or that he's unethical or that you know his property needs to be expropriated? Like He wouldn't make that argument, I don't think. Yeah, but, uh, most, most likely not. But the point being, like, there, there's still a tipping point for all that stuff. Like at a certain, at a certain threshold, maybe a company like Amazon is, is good and helpful for the, for the world. By now it's long surpassed that, right? Mm -hmm. Like now it's, it's a way to just appropriate these same kind of things and they're mm -hmm. doing it uh, at a larger scale than any other corporation mm -hmm. just about, or certainly equally with anyone else, right? You know, worker conditions are terrible. They're preventing unionization. They're dodging taxes. They're, they're doing all these things that eventually now turn into massive negative externalities, not to mention the fact their whole company is just a, I mean, I guess they have Amazon web services, but it's basically just a, a consumptive machine for mm -hmm. humanity, right? So then to go give some money to a, you know, a, a charity that's going to help with global warming and commit loosely to some sort mm -hmm. of carbon neutral plan, it's like, no, you need to shut your company down <laughs> you yeah. know, if, if you want to actually be part of that solution. Um, so, you know, you've, you've reached a point there where somebody has uh, maybe for a while been on a, a decent ascent and, and then eventually it just way oversteps its bounds. But you also could have someone, you know, who looks at these same things and decides to, you know, I, I don't know, be in Congress and actually be someone who advocates for the right kind of legislation. And, and they could take that as their, you know, Nietzschean morality play um, mm -hmm. to, to help on all this. And they do have enlightenment values at the forefront. You could have somebody who starts, um, you know, some some sort of NGO that, that can help with this. Or you could have someone like a a Jason Hickel, uh, right. Who's, you know, out there saying, well, you know, I'm going to shine light on, on these issues that I see. And yeah, mm -hmm. I have privilege. Yeah. I'm, I mean, he's from Swaziland, which was actually a, you know, a colonized 
African countries. So he has some personal experience with this. But, you know, present day, he's been living and educated in the US and UK for a long time. And he's mm-hmm. writing articles for Vox and Al Jazeera and uh, doing talks at Google, right? I mean, he's got a privileged life now like you and I do, but he he's making the efforts to, mm-hmm. you know, to take some of that Nietzsche morality and, uh, and point out the things that need to be pointed out and hopefully make the right strides. So um, mm-hmm. anyway, it just, it can still be chosen what direction to take it and uh, you know, more people would need to make that right calculation, I guess, mm-hmm. and com- combine the two. And maybe that's where we can get the next leg up uh, mm-hmm. of, pro- of progress on, on these things. So, um, you know, my, my final comment as we move toward wrapping up, which I put in my show notes to you and maybe mentioned briefly earlier, was just with, with all of this said, um, there's nothing really mentioned in this book at all on Pinker's part about the arts and culture and mm-hmm. all of this, all of this progress that he's going to cheerlead and champion and talk about. Um, that's fine, but especially in in the rich, developed nations, which now have way more than we ever could possibly need. Um, yeah, there's distribution issues, et cetera, et cetera, all the things we've talked about. But just in general, it's now there. It's been tapped into, right, and it's available. Mm-hmm. But then for the higher pursuits, um, you know, what has culture become presently mm-hmm. and, and, and where are we with, with some of these really important things? Because, you know, to a certain extent, especially with things like, you know, the enormous rise of the self-help industry or the fitness industry or, you know, all this different kind of stuff. It's like, these are massive parts of our culture um, and they, they're focused on just continuing to increase happiness and well-being. Mm-hmm. So to, to write a whole book about the way that well-being has transformed and come along and, you know, has been and is an obsession in a way for much of humanity, uh, where do we go from here with extrapolating that forward? Because, um, well, I, well, yeah. I mean, P- 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 Pinker's answer, like he, to the extent that he does touch on the arts, it's basically this kind of like, you know, you know, uh, when he gets accused of like scientism, it would be, you know, something like this, like where he says, well, I think, you know, moving forward, you know, uh, the sciences need to combine with the arts and the arts need to come out with the sciences, but he doesn't really offer much uh, beyond that. I don't think he's necessarily like, you know, all, you know, so passionate about the arts. Like that's not, you know, that's not his, uh, uh area, right. He, he, and to the extent that, you know, I mean, the, you know, going back to the example of Nietzsche, you know, here's like a great writer that's kind of like put before him. And because he has like, you know, a, a bunch of like liberal biases and political biases of his own, um, he, he has to hold Nietzsche at arm's length. You know, when Nietzsche like talks about some of the things that maybe Steven Pinker in his personal life might feel guilty about, he has to hold Nietzsche at arm's length. And he basically reduces him at something like, he says something like after like all this negative stuff about Nietzsche, he says like, to his credit, Nietzsche was a lively stylist. That's right. literally that, that you get like this like great fucking writer that's put before you with such memorable passages and so many things that you could you know uh, bring uh, out of him into your own life for your own psychological well being for your own kind of like you know like navigating uh, you know your, your your surroundings and you know that that's kind of like what he comes away with. I mean, I think it's it's kind of telling, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that line. You know, there's just that that little snippet. It's like giving the, sl- yeah. the slightest shade of credit where it's due. 
uh, in Nisha's case, but uh, but anyway, that's and you're right. I, I, uh, Mozart was technically competent, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like, uh, and I know that you're not going to get a whole lot of that, uh, if any, you know, commentary about something like the arts in a book like this. But um, you know, just as someone to whom that that matters and is trying to participate in that part of humanity and culture, um, yeah. it just feels very, you know, 2021 continues to feel like a very just uh, improvement of well-being, expansion of consumption uh, type type era you know and um, for some for some yeah. i guess for, for, for those who can for those who have the means to do that that's that's what they seem to be focused on um or even if you are you know ostensibly a writer artist of some kind you know it's uh what what is what is your stuff worth out on the open market you know can you become a multimillionaire? can you create an nft of your stuff that now can sell for whatever, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's mm -hmm. kind of exhausting and, and frustrating, but yeah. Anyway, that, that, that cha those chapters remain to be written. Um, but just, uh, I have a couple uh, closing thoughts that I thought were kind of funny. So this book is written, uh, well, it was published early 2018. Uh, he kind of like disparaging, there was this guy that, that made this, um, what was his name? Um, his name was, uh, Martin, Martin Reese, right. He had this like prediction, uh, a bioterror or, or bio error would lead to 1 million casualties in a single event within a six month period, starting no later than December 31st, 2020. And, you know, because the, the you know, the alignment now, like Stephen Pinger's book is so kind of like, uh, it's, it's, it's poly Anna in the sense that like, you know, he, he's always trying to downplay some of these existential threats, which I mean, he's not wrong necessarily for doing that. I think in general, existential risks to the world, especially like to humanity have been way overstated. I mean, even in the, even in something like a nuclear war, right? Human beings are probably going to survive much less something like global warming where, you know, human beings are going to survive. So uh, I'll, I'll grant Pinker that, but in Pinker's, um, you know, uh, desire to keep people away from this like perennial brink of always prophesying the end of the world, end of the world, he does this thing where he starts to like, you know, understate perhaps some of the risks. I mean, I've always kind of assumed that we're going to get some kind of bioterror or bio error that's going to lead to, you know, mass casualties. And guess what? You know, in 2020, we actually did get that. And the, 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 the ironic thing is, you know, uh, Pinker's clerisy, you know, the people that he says are, you know, the enlightened ones, the scientists, all those people. Um, they spent much of 2020 just completely denying that there was any kind of, you know, lab leak hypothesis scenario that was real. Now mm -hmm. Biden is in office, you know, uh, it's now more mainstream to believe that. So it does seem that it's very possible that we had some sort of bio error that mm -hmm. led to a million people dying. I don't imagine that future pandemics are going to be necessarily that different, although yes, overall, pandemics are being dealt with, you know, in terms of like the macro Nietzschean trajectory, like compared to something like, you know, you know, compared to even something like um, 
the uh, Spanish flu, right, in, in the 20th century, uh, most of those th- those deaths weren't even flu deaths. It was just, you know, people going to hospitals. And because we had unsanitary conditions, there were all these opportunistic uh, infections that would just kind of, you know, jump on people and they would die from that. So we're handling pandemics better, right? I, I can imagine something coronavirus-like a couple decades ago, even leading to perhaps even, you know, more deaths, even though we were less globally connected. I think there were probably probably fewer, you know, uh, guard rails in place. But I do find it kind of funny that it seems like this Reese guy has one, you know, that, that bad, at least I, I would make that argument. Um, also like uh, cyber terror, right? He, you know, he says mm-hmm. that like, it's not necessarily an existential threat. And I believe that it's not. But again, you know, uh, in this kind of like twist that's showing what's coming, you know, the past 12 months saw tons and tons of cyber security breaches that were very, very different in, in character compared to what came in the past, including mm-hmm. one where some, you know, some group, I guess, got into the water supply in some town somewhere in, in the United States, and they were able to actually change the directions where they were about to start adding poison uh, uh, into a water supply. And in the last minute, uh, they were able to reverse it, but, you know, we could have had a mass casualty event there, there. And, you know, like the more that these things are happening, like it's, it's pretty obvious that eventually we're going to have those, but I agree with Pinker's thesis that these are not necessarily existential threats. They don't, you know, especially something like terrorism in general, it's never going to rise to existential uh, threats. And he, he says like terrorism comes about from quote a benign security environment, which I also agree with. I mean, the the fact that you know uh, we have less interstate war and more kind of like you know this like ragtag terrorism. Overall, it's a better turn of events than the alternatives, even if terrorism is bad. Um, yeah. Uh, if you have any anything saying that, that I guess I've maybe like maybe a couple more minutes of closing remarks, but maybe you could uh, close first. Uh, sure. I, I think we've, we've covered it, uh, man, every, every which way back and forth. Um, so I think in, in summary, it's, it's important to just state again. Um, I, I have a, a general agreement with a number of these trends that are highlighted in the book. I think it is positive to highlight them. It helps us see that, um, you know, some of these enlightenment ideals and some of just general progressive ideas and policies uh, have have done some good in the world. And mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, to recognize that we we need to continue evolving. We need to we need to come up with some fresh solutions, many of which we were fully aware of what they could be. So the status quo is not acceptable because it's not going to result in any of those kind of changes. Um, and uh, you know, I, I'm I, despite despite all of uh, you know these issues that we see. I suppose I'm still kind of guardedly optimistic about the future mm-hmm. of humanity. I mean, you and I have talked about this. You and I have talked about this before, uh, where you know it, we can we can do our job here and talk through all the, the different sides of the issues. Um, but I, I just I continue to have this feeling that despite all of this, you know, we'll, we'll find ways to continue forward. And, and I hope to do that um, in a more and more equitable manner, um, a more and more, uh, you know, beneficial manner and, and hopefully exciting and interesting manner um, mm-hmm. for, for humans all around the world. So um, yeah, I, I, I think that's about it. And 
go ahead with whatever closing comments you've got. Yeah. So, so just like you, you know, I agree with like some or many of the core kind of, you know, arguments of the book, but you know, all the caveats that I made and also the many of the objections that I, that I made and the reframings that I made, like they, they need to be answered. They need to be considered. Uh, and Pinker does not do an adequate job at all. Right. It's not, it's not enough to just say that we agree with many of the arguments, right. That's, that's not, it's just not sufficient. Um, the last thing I'd say, I guess is, you know, going back to like just the whole framework of uh, the Enlightenment, um, you know, it really does. Like the more that I think about it, like it, it very much is a straight jacket for you know his own kind of set of arguments. Like, I mean, like first of all, like you know uh, when he, you know uh, when he says like, oh look, you know Nietzsche's ideas have been co-opted by Nazis to do all these bad things. Like, isn't he so overrated? Um, but he's not willing to sort of say the same thing about the enlightenment. I mean, like we are an enlightenment nation, right? So is Western Europe and yet they are draining the global South of 152 trillion. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. that's also under the name, like, do, do you have an answer for that? Like, you know, if right. you're going to single out, why single out Nietzsche? It just makes no sense, but kind of like, uh, more specifically when it gets to, you know, his like analyses of like, I guess, you know, political reality, for example, like near the end of the book, when he talks about, uh, again, he makes this conflation between Trump and Sanders and, you know, the, the, these two kind of like, you know, similar populist movements, I guess he calls them. Um, you know, when, when he talks about the election of Trump, like he has this part where he's like, you know, he, he's basically arguing that they were not motivated by material conditions, you know, the people that voted in Trump. And what he cites is just, you know, the ordinary generic fact that, oh, what do you know? Uh, most Republican voters that typically vote for Republican candidates, they went ahead and voted for this Republican candidate who happened to be Trump, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they happen to be, you know, upper class. It's true. You know, the, you know, uh, voters in general lean towards being more upper class than not, right? People that don't vote typically are, are you know, less wealthy, less educated, less everything, um, and, you know, I don't think it's, 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 uh, uh much to say that, Hey, look, um, uh, we have a, a Trump voters that are ordinary Republican voters are richer than the average. I mean, you know, uh, what we need to look at is the fact that in the places where it matters, and I'm sure Steven Pinker is aware that we don't elect presidents in the United States with a popular vote, right? It's the electoral college. When right. it comes to that, the margins of those votes in those swing states, it's not simply what he claims, people claiming immigration as the problem or whatever, or terrorism as the problem. Yeah, they, they made those same claims. But in these swing states, people were saying that NAFTA is the problem. Trade deals in general are a problem. Stagnant wages are a problem because these are the states with those problems. And these are the states that, that uh, decide elections. And, you know, in this like enlightened world of, of Steven Pinker, we had from the 90s onwards, white people essentially undergoing in America a USSR type collapse event, right? In the USSR, after it collapsed, all these white people, right? Uh, all these Russians and, and whatever, and all these people in these client states, these satellite states, they took up alcoholism as a way to cope with the new reality of like complete, you know, destruction of standards of living. So, uh -huh. You know, lifespan went down from something like in the mid seventies down to I think in Belarus, my country, it was something like forty nine for males in the fucking like mid nineties, right? Mm -hmm. That's just insane. 
And same thing in the United States. Since the 90s, what do we have? Well, we don't have alcoholism. Let's do things in a typically American way. We have all these super rich pharmaceutical companies that decide to flood us with all their cheap fucking fentanyl, right? And yep. that's the way that people are dying. That's the way that white men especially are shaving off you know, their lifespans, right? And when Pinker like looks at this, and he's wondering why people voted for Trump. The best answer that he could come up with is we have all these counter enlightenment forces and lies in the form of Donald Trump, like tricking them. He thinks that they were simply tricked. And I guess on some level they were, but they weren't tricked in the sense that, oh, look, your life is actually so good. And if you actually fucking understood this, and if people actually told you the truth about your life, you wouldn't want to vote for someone like Trump. That's not how it works, right? Like mm -hmm. he has he has no actual answers when it comes to this day-to-day -day reality. Like that's such a, you know, I found that to be such an embarrassing little detail. Like essentially like all his argument amounts to is Trump came to power because, you know, you know, people are gullible like that's really like the extent of his analysis that's just it's not an answer yeah yeah pe people are gullible and he, he highlights the fact that it was a cultural vote um mm -hmm. you know according to to his because that's all the people have here. that's all that that's all the people get all that people right. get from either party you're not going to get shit except culture anymore right like right. pinker is not wrong about that but he's wrong about the the ramifications and why that's happening right well, and, and one final thought that occurs here is, um, you know, if you're going to rail against, you know, Nietzsche and these authoritarian uh, regimes and, and dictators and all this kind of stuff, it's like, well, if you're, if you're content with the current corporate neoliberal, uh, you know, imperialist, post-colonialist status quo, corporations are the authoritarian regime of today. Yes. Right. Um, you know, let's, let's not at all pretend that a, a, a corporation picket, you know, Smith and Wesson, uh, Anheuser Busch, whoever, some tech company, right? And they want to go and lobby for their interests, and they grease palms, and and they make sure that all those interests get not only protected but more and more deeply defended mm -hmm. in terms of legislation. Um, you know, because again, it's it's nonviolent in a public sense. And there's not, you know, someone with a machete running around beheading people who disagree with them, but people are still dying or their lives are being immensely worsened in ways they either realize and don't fully understand or they don't realize at all. Um, you know, the, these are the, the, the current status quo products of enlightenment now, I guess, mm. uh, the, the way it stands. So, again, to, to really put those kind of values into practice is, is I think, to be someone who's attempting to understand it and attempting to shine a light on it and and uh, hopefully help more people understand it so that we can move on to, yeah. to something better. One thing that we'll notice more and more as time goes on, and I make this point in my recent uh, essay on automaticnation.com, uh, is that you know as time goes on, more and more of these sort of clerisy enlightened types you know that pink represents that other people represent, uh, they will be increasingly, increasingly blamed for these problems. I mean, again, you know, he doesn't like Sanders. He doesn't like Trump. He would have voted for Clinton, right? And the more mm -hmm. that you get these kinds of Clinton votes, the more that you're going to get the very kinds of phenomena that he is on the one hand accurately decrying, 
but on the other hand, is not able to explain why they're coming about other than, you know, we have this, uh, uh, you know, a force of good and evil, right? Alignment and everything else. You know, it's just, it's just, I don't know, it's just, I, I just find it very silly. Oh my god. Oh my god.